This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Caped Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Episode 200 and the 11th anniversary for December MMXX. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by me because I made this podcast out of scraps when I was in the desert. So really, I'm the one that sponsored this thing. But it is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. 
If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, strap in, hold on to your butts, because this, I think, is a record-breaking episode. I think it's record-breaking in the number of segments that I have, as well as guests, and obviously in the runtime. I'm pretty sure that we are at or above eight hours, and so I now break my record of just below six hours for a San Diego Comic-Con special. So, of course, I'm feeding the trolls all of this. But if you are not interested in listening to the full eight hours and are interested in just one particular segment with the material or a particular guest, then I do encourage you to look at the show notes that are posted with the episode, and I will, which I don't often do, give a tag time of when each segment appears so you can fast forward as you want as with several of my episodes that are specials I will have many musical interludes that are picked mainly because well of course I like them but also I feel like they just get to the fact that I've been running this show for 11 years and that it's the 200th and it's special so a lot of those kind of run on that theme this is a section that you will not find on any of the YouTube videos. It's just me. I think to a certain extent it is going to be stream of consciousness because I don't really have any notes on this. So I'm just going to reflect on my podcast for a bit. And then because all the other segments are taken up, I'm going to put everything else that I haven't covered here. So that will include emails, uh, which there's only one and my literature recommendations, and anime watch lists, which I haven't done for a while. But to begin with, here I am sitting on episode 200, and the 11th year of doing this particular podcast, nearly 15 years of podcasting in general, and I guess I wanted to share what I've learned in that time. I think podcasting is is interesting, because for the most part, unless you have a co-host, which I often do, you're in your room talking to yourself, staring off into space or at a Word document, and you're wondering if it's going to reach anybody. Is it pointless that you're recording this? Is anyone going to listen? What if what you say upsets somebody? What if you misspeak? All of these things. There are so many fears and anxieties that can go into podcasting, and I try to be careful, but to a certain extent, I try not to be beholden also to those those fears and anxieties as well. I have learned to speak up for myself through this podcast, to advocate for myself, and that's something that has transferred from podcasting to real life. I don't do it inappropriately, just when I feel like there's an injustice against somebody or perhaps me, then I will speak up for myself. It's allowed me to communicate better and not just more eloquently, Though there are the occasional filler words, as I'm, I'm still trying to learn to do without, as well as I say cause a lot, and I need to, I think that'll be my goal for 2021, is to be sure to have because rather than cause. But to communicate with others, and that's one of my favorite things about podcasting, and in particular this podcast, is that I get to have people on the show 
even though I try to be on my own having co-hosts I, I have many of them and communicating with them and especially the ones and this is often I would say that I do not see eye to eye with them on particular issues and so to have I think fun disagreements but to learn from that and to have an open mind that's one of the the best things I think about podcasting to grow um, in my learning of I think social justice human rights issues as well as comics and to learn more about Barbara Gordon and who she is, how writers decide to write her. Learning other people's perspectives is something else that I've really enjoyed doing for these 11 years. Learning intent, authorial intent by having interviews. I've been very blessed to have several interviews with people and and of course it shows on this 200th that I've gotten to talk to writers and editors. Using this as a platform, which not many people have that freedom, I think social media has certainly become a platform for good and for ill of speaking up. And we've learned, boy, haven't we? If you know, you've listened to my six hour episode on The Last of Us Part Two, that it can be used for ill and in terrible ways. But I feel like, to a certain extent, podcasting is a great platform to use and I think as podcasters anyone with any sort of influence has an obligation to serve others and to hopefully push forward love and empathy and this gets to I think the main crux of what I want to share today and what I've learned most in doing this podcast and reading the comics that I have done and speaking with the people that I've spoken to and with and my birthday was in November, and where I was, went over to the Sawyers. You know them. They've been mentioned many times. And I think it was Jacob asked me, what have I learned, or what's the one thing that I pass on it in the years that I've lived on this earth? And I said empathy. Empathy is the big thing that I would pass on. And I think that, uh, well, I've got many things to say about this, but I think Great, Scott. I mean, just imagine if everyone showed empathy, how the world would change, how our country, the U.S., would not be in such disarray. And I think if you were to treat everyone as a human being that, yes, is different from you, may have different ideas than you are a different religion or a different sexual orientation or a different gender identity, but they're still a human being and and deserve respect and to treat someone like that I I forgot race I think my goodness how everything would potentially change and I had a a recent discussion with one of my former students she came to visit me at lunch and she said you know it's tossed about at, at the school that I used to work empathy 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 but what about compassion and afterwards I thought a lot about that conversation because I feel like there are, there's a tier or there are four tiers potentially to how we emotionally connect with someone else. And I think at the bottom, you've got pity, you move up a bit, you've got sympathy, you move up a bit, you've got empathy and you move up. And I think the top is compassion where you're like putting yourself in situations. So empathy is, is putting your mind, I would say, your mind and your heart in those situations, but physically with compassion, I think you are there, you are working with people. And I completely 
I, I do agree with her. I think that compassion, we need to stretch and aim for that. But I think just as with the founding fathers who had these sober expectations that humans are failing beings and that we can reach, but we also need to understand that we may fall short, that uh, compassion, I think, might be harder for people to get to than empathy is. And empathy is, I think, still so overwhelmingly positive that if we can get them to get there, think of all that we will have and can accomplish. Whereas compassion, I, th- I think it's harder for people to go somewhere. So I, I can't even, you know, think of a, a good example. Goodness. I, if, if we were still doing sit-ins and things like that, it would be interesting to have a clans member or something, you know, do a, a civil rights sit-in with a, a bunch of black people. I think that right there, you know, would be compa- like actually physically being in that space. It's harder, I think, to physically do that. And, and, and you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to say that it's easy to mentally and emotionally put yourself in a situation where you're trying to understand as well. I just feel like that might be easier for some. And... So anyways, I, I feel like empathy is, is the one thing that I would challenge people to do. And it is a daily struggle. Empathy is not easy. And I am not going to sit here and preach to you as if I accomplish empathy with everyone every day at any moment. I had a lack of empathy <laughs> uh, for parents last year, certain parents who were complaining when they were at home apparently doing a lot of work uh, with their kids and so they felt like it was just too much work was being given to their children because they were the ones having to guide them and I thought really because I'm the one who is creating the work uploading the work helping your child on the work and then grading the work so I'm not sure about that so there was that was a lack of empathy and I recognize that there are certain writers that I I think earlier in my podcasting past I or earlier in my history I guess would be better said that I was hard on the writer rather than the writing which is something that I've tried to change so you know in this recent back row run I've been trying to critique the writing and yes hold the writer accountable and the editor accountable but certainly not attack and I think that I did not have empathy towards Gail Simone with the new 52 and this is something you know I do hope to interview her especially when we get to her Birds of Prey run I will to her face apologize for not having empathy now that you know we know things that she went through but it's easy now and it's easy because we know the backstory of the press pressures that DC Comics was putting on her it's more difficult and it's more pure potentially to be empathetic when you don't know that situation you just know that there is something going on or there's something that you don't know that is causing someone to write that way so like I, you know I don't want you to think that I'm on a high horse and I disapprove or I'm judging you guys because I'm right there with you and I think this political season was certainly a challenge for some because we know that one of those sides has been very hateful towards other people. And then I was shocked to see that, wait, the other side, once the election was going on or afterwards, was actually throwing that hate back 
to that original side. And goodness, you, you've got to be, you've got to be the better person. I, it's hard. It's hard to get slapped in the face, but you can't give that slap back. You've, you've got to be the better person. And just to see some people fall to that and almost become that other side was heartbreaking, heartbreaking to see. And, you know, I'm speaking, I'm speaking as a woman, I'm a white woman. And so I will definitely not encounter some of the things that uh, my black brothers and sisters have encountered. But I feel like as a woman, I've felt attacked with this particular person in office when, you know, on tape, basically, he's condoning sexual assault by, you know, quote, wasn't it uh, grab her by the pussy? And so I too felt attacked, but I am not going to go after the other people. You've just got to, you've got to be better. You've got to, whew, that's why I said it's a struggle. It's a struggle. And, you know, I was thinking about love because I, I think initially when I was going to record this, I was trying to think about which one was more difficult and, and speaking with Sam Heath, which you'll see in part one, he makes a good point that they certainly go hand in hand and they don't, they don't stand alone. But I feel like, gosh, if compassion is hard, then love is even harder. I mean, at, just think about asking someone, hey, can you love this other person over here that voted for this particular person? And they, I just, I, I could not even imagine it. And I know that it's hard also just to sort of get with the, with the Christian message and be like, that's, that's too Christian for me. But empathy, even though it certainly has some Christian ties to it, is something anyone can attain to. And I think if you want to be a happily decent human being, you've got to have it. So absolutely strive for compassion. But if you fall short and you reach empathy, then be ever so proud and just keep practicing it. And if you fail, own it. Own that you have failed. And not lightly either. There are certainly things that I've said in the past that I do regret. In my Minority Report episode, which I am actually really proud of, I kept using the word tolerate, toleration, tolerance. And I regret that now. And I think it's more of... Like if I could go back, I would change it. But also, it's good that it's there and you see me now because now I have learned like it, it can't just be tolerance. It's got to be more. It's got to be more. And so at least it's there. But, you know, again, I own that that was I shouldn't have been using that word. That was just what I was using at the time. And that's who I was at that particular time. And I'm sure that I probably have said questionable things, prejudicial things in the past. I certainly own that I said I believe racist things against Miles Morales when he came out. And that's just, I own that. And that's not the way I think anymore. And I've learned from it. And I certainly apologize to whomever I need to apologize to. And I just work to move forward and be better. <laughs> that's all we can do is just be better love more, show empathy more. So I, I think, oh man, this is what that this is what I love about this podcast. I think that it gives me the freedom to do all of that in an interesting medium that you would not expect. And so that's that's why I like comics. I love them, I should I should say, because they are able to explore different facets of humanity and teach people, I think, subtly. 
which is the way perhaps they need to be taught. I think it does need to be subversive for certain minds. You could potentially have a bigot reading, I was going to say Ms. Marvel, but that might be extreme. Potentially, maybe Batgirl with Cassandra Kane and really loving it. And then there are some themes there that could strike at that person. And maybe, maybe they would rethink some of their things. Who knows? I, I was thinking about Cass. I wondered if she was perhaps the most empathetic of, of all the Bat family because everyone certainly has their flaws. I think Barbara certainly has had her moments, specifically recently. But with with Cass, I just see like, especially that one issue where she, in the Nobody Dies Tonight issue, going towards this man on death row. But I do wonder about her reasonings for being compassionate or empathetic and whether it's completely altruistic because I think she reaches out to those people because she wants you know she wants to find redemption for them because she wants them so I don't know if her empathy is as pure as I would like it to be though because I know Donovan's probably screaming there are clear instances of altruistic empathy on her half as well and then I got to thinking is you know empathy at its heart altruistic like why are you doing this and I think for me anyways, I think there is a certain aspect of empathy that is not altruistic just because I do want to be a better person. So it's for me because so I'm trying to be, I'm trying to put myself in these difficult situations so that I learn. So in that way, it is selfish, but I'm really, I'm really just thinking about the other person and just how, how can I make it better for them or how, you know, how can I relate to that particular person? So yeah, who. Empathy, empathy, empathy. That that'd be the big thing. It's man, if any if everyone could live their life empathetically, think about that. So I think I suppose that's it. That's my little stream of consciousness on what this podcast means to me. And I guess I didn't speak too much about Barbara Gordon at all, but <laughs> I have loved getting to know Barbara Gordon for eleven years and two hundred episodes and seeing what she gets into and how she is relating to other people. And I look forward to seeing her more in the DC universe because she's certainly popping up everywhere and to see her challenging Batman and to see her mentoring Cass and Steph. Those have been uh, favorites of mine. And I think I've become more passionate over the years. I, I hope that I've never, well, I feel like in the beginning I may have been boring just with the with the tone of my voice, the timbre of my voice and my show notes and more or less reading from them. But now, man, I've got this fuel, I think, and, and I certainly have opinions when I come to the issues to record them. So I have enjoyed that and bringing people on to talk about those particular opinions and to a certain extent it's fun when they don't agree with me so that we can hash it out and I can learn from them so that has been great the podcasting family of course that I've had these 200 episodes Dustin thank you so much for keeping me on as one of the the projects on the Batman universe it's certainly been a delight and I've, I've had the pleasure of interviewing several people which has also been great. So I hope that is something that continues and, and we'll we'll see where this podcast goes to. I think, you know, someone asked me 
what I foresee or what, you know, what do I hope for the show? And, and I would love, there are a couple big names that I would love to have on this show, but I do want it to have a satisfying ending. I, I think that this show will reach some sort of terminus once the end finds its beginning. What is that in Aurora Boros or something like that? Where Babs meets Stephanie once again, or I guess Steph meets Steph, something like that, which will be interesting, but I think it'll be a satisfying little like, look at what we've done here. This has been great. Thank you, Barbara Gordon, for your service. <laughs> so we will see, and, and I hope that she's given some, Barbara has is given better characterization in the coming months and years, in modern times at least. And yeah, I just want to keep learning. I want to keep teaching others. I want to keep inspiring. I want to keep hoping for good things to come to uh, the world. And here's hoping I can do my part in that. And if I make a mistake, I hope that people hold me accountable. I hope that I hold myself accountable for sure. And just strive, strive for the high point, have sober expectations, but strive for sure. So I think that's it for my little monologue at the beginning here. I think now we will do listener emails. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. News here. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. So only one email today, or for this episode, it's from Michael Ridge, and his subject line is, what happened? Jim Gordon is out as commissioner. He's drinking. He dot, dot, dot. Salway, Stella, I guess you can't just follow the characters you like in the new DC. Jim isn't the commissioner and Sergeant Bullock took over the job. How does that happen in a city as large as Gotham? Jim is drinking and that's a problem. That isn't part of his history in Gotham. Barbara and Jim apparently never had the relationship that was so much a part of her history before. Issue 49 seems like an alternate world and I don't see how this fits with the last issue. I'm not going to follow every issue of all the bad titles to follow one character. Same, Michael. That's the exploitative, yeah, marketing bull that turned me off Batman in the 90s, Nightfall, for example. I lost $4, oh gosh, I lost $4 because this issue did nothing to advance the main character's life. It was just a time waster. Now you don't need to get up the energy to rant. James Jr. killed himself and apparently there was a body to be buried in the funeral scene. So he is gone for good. I like that because I thought his story was over several story arcs back. Yeah, probably. Several, yeah, for sure. But uh, who knows? He'll probably resurrect himself or be resurrected. Of course, suicide is the ultimate quitting and James Jr.'s final act was to stick it to his father. The family's better off without that manipulative little creep. Why is Jason Bart still here? I thought that was settled in the Magic Kingdom issue. That wasn't the issue... <laughs> That wasn't the issue that took Barbara to Chicago. Oh, yep, yep, yep. The Chicago trip was another alternate world that we didn't get to see. Yeah, I know. That, that's how I think we got a hint of what goes on at DC Comics. 
I hear it had something to do with her mother. This Jason Barr needs to man up and act like a an adult. Barbara, quote, fixed Rick, so he's now Dick again. Barbara will be Oracle again after her own book ends. It's probably because she's too confused by what Batgirl is doing. Yeah, same. I ranted. It's over. All the stories I liked are still there. I will find my mac and cheese of comfort and joy. Michael Ridge. Yeah, I think that's the only thing... Gosh, that is something of that I've learned from this particular run of Batgirl is that you, and this is true really of when I was reading Spider-Man, when I was over at the Spider-Man crawl space, that if you are unsatisfied with your character and you're not leading, leading slash owning and producing a podcast on him, her, or them, then you you definitely need to find some other outlet for of joy so or inlet input I don't know of joy so with with yeah Barbara that was whoo it was not good and so I was just finding some other stuff to to fill that spot for me but I am hopeful I feel like I might give a give Batman a shot to see what Babs is doing in those particular pages and and maybe keep people apprised of that but otherwise my heart my anxiety level, my soul feels a bit better that I don't have to read Batgirl right now. At least Batgirl by Cecil Castellucci. So there you go. Thanks for writing in, Michael. I appreciate it. And you got in on the 200th, so that's super duper special. And I completely agree with basically everything you said. It's, yeah, it was hard towards the end to figure out what was happening with certain characters in Batgirl when really it seemed to be happening in other books and it was somehow affecting Batgirl but we weren't really told how so I agree that if I want a an issue or a story or a book and I'm not going to get the other ones I should be able to just do that I, I don't know if that's true of Batman and Detective I feel like those two are separate as well I mean it was before that things weren't necessarily interacting unless there's some sort of crossover event but whatever Okay, next up is Anime Watchlist, which has been a while since I've done this. So first, a movie, Weathering With You, which came out in 2019. It is one hour and 54 minutes. Tokyo is currently experiencing rain showers that seem to disrupt the usual pace of everyone living there to no end. Amidst the seemingly eternal downpour arrives a runaway high school student, Hadoka Morishima, who struggles to financially support himself, ending up with a job at a small-time publisher. At the same time, the orphaned Hina Amano also strives to find work to sustain herself and her younger brother. Both fates intertwine when Hodoka attempts to rescue Hina from shady men, deciding to run away together. Subsequently, Hodoka discovers that Hina has a strange yet astounding power, the ability to call out the sun whenever she prays for it. With Tokyo's unusual weather in mind, Hodoka sees the potential of this ability. He suggests that Hina should become a sunshine girl, someone who will clear the sky for people when they need it the most, like weddings, etc. Things begin to look up for them at first. However, it is common knowledge that power always comes with a hefty price. And I think similar writer, or same writer or director as... Why can't I remember what it's called? That's terrible. Your name. Whoo! So if you liked that, it's similar feels, I would say. So I recommend it. And uh, it was really beautiful. So I, I will give that two thumbs up. And then the series is Blood of Zeus, which is on Netflix. And so an original Netflix anime. Eight episodes. Recent. So 2020. 
Set in the world of Greek mythology, the series revolves around Heron, the demigod son of Zeus trying to save Olympus and Earth. Though Heron, or Heron, himself is a character created for the show, the existence of such demigods born of the union between a god and a human is implied to be common in the original myths. Implied, please, that's true. The show claims in its prologue, to be one of the tales lost to history rather than passed down with our current canon of Greek myths. The show features gods, giants, automata, and mythical mounts from the original tales. I would just say that it's rather violent, so depending on what your taste is for anime blood and dismemberment, but I enjoyed it especially because of the the Greek myth bent. And finally in this first segment my literature recommendations and I made an error and forgot to note what the last book was that I read for episode 199 so I may repeat it but I feel like it was Midnight Sun so I'll just go from the one after Midnight Sun and then let you know everything so after Midnight Sun The Yellow House by Sarah M. Broom which is a memoir about a family with ooh, several siblings and I would say lower income family in Louisiana. Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton, which, well, you should just listen to Required Reading with Tom and Stella about that one. Lumberjane's True Colors, which was really the art style was different. Well, really the coloring of, of the art was different than we are used to with Lumberjanes, but this was an original graphic novel, so I give thumbs up for that. And Yellow House, I give thumbs up as well. Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption by Brian Stevenson. And this was a true story about his time with people on death row, basically. Uh, and mostly, I would say, black men on death row, but there were certainly other people there as well. Uh, but just to get a sense, I really learned a lot about just that our criminal justice system and the, the prison systems are not good. We've got some reform that is desperately needed. He had some great lines in there. Oh, man, that's actually, I'll get back to that because that actually goes back into my empathy talk. There's a quote that he used that I think summarizes like everything I almost that I was talking about. Queen's Peril by E.K. Johnston which is a prequel to the other Queen's book. I'm trying to think. What was that called? Oh, Queen's Shadow. I liked Queen's Shadow, but I this one was okay, I would say. There are some... I don't think they needed the number of characters that they had and their perspectives. I think if you had just focused on Amidala and her handmaidens, you would have been fine. Between Sisters by Chris and Hannah. Yeah, I did it again. Not my favorite, but it did more or less have a happy ending, which is something certainly that you can't count on her for. Then Night Road by Kristen Hannah. Yikes. This one, this one was heavy for sure. And I do recommend this one, I think, Above Between Sisters. Night Road is about uh, three teenagers. And unfortunately, there's an accident on Night Road. And that's really all I'll tell you about. Liar by Justine Larbolestier, which I only found out about because... I was watching a video and it was either with Princess Weeks or Lindsay Ellis and they were talking about covers and books and YA. I think it was Lindsay Ellis. And she mentioned this book and a cover controversy because uh, I think the original first edition, unless it was like specific, I think it was specific to a region, but I can't remember if it was USA or Australia, came out as a white person, a white girl on the cover. 
and the character is clearly not white and so there's a controversy about that particular thing because authors actually don't have much of a say in the cover but that that one raised a stink so anyway the edition I had there's an actual person of color on the cover then I took a chance Black Friday and I got Dark Knights Metal I got Dark Knights Rising which had the individual issues about the different dark nights that were coming from the different earths and then the actual story and I actually enjoyed it I I would give those thumbs up liar I would also give thumbs up I gave it five stars I thought that it was really engaging and interesting but don't trust the narrator at all how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X Kendi which Sam and I will talk about later and I really enjoyed it learned it just like Having empathy, being an anti-racist is a daily journey and struggle and you have to ask forgiveness, you have to own up to things, perhaps not in that order, own up to things and then ask for forgiveness. One section, I mean there are several things, you've got to I think be discerning when you're reading these sorts of things because they don't have, it's like not 100% and, and Sam will bring up some things. At one point he was saying how education is not activism and I disagreed with that in particular just because I feel like using your voice or a platform to educate I think is a form of activism because if you're able to change people's hearts and minds you're changing their actions as well and I think that's an action on your behalf so I would disagree with that particular thing. Uh, Chaos Rising by Timothy Zahn which is a prequel to the new Thrawn novels really enjoyed that I also enjoyed what they did with the book itself which has a blue border on all of the pages so it's a really attractive book which I'm not used to seeing just that sort of specificity but you get to know him at the beginning and of course he's not well liked (laughs) with his people then I got caught up on the current run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles so I read uh volume 23 which was City at War Part 2 and uh, Reborn, which is Volume 1, and then Reborn Volume 2. And uh, we have Kevin Eastman and Tom Waltz on, I guess, the previous. And it's not a reboot. It's just starting... Gosh, I was about to say, it's just starting things over. But it's really not a reboot. It's just uh, a new status quo, and I won't spoil it. But the Volume 1 and 2, Sophie Campbell art and then writing as well and volume one was great with her heading both of those up and then I read Tess of the Durbervilles which I don't recommend but you can listen to that on required reading with Tom and Stella as well and finally which I will finish today actually I've been reading a lot of I think accidentally I've been reading a lot of black stories whether they are memoirs or fiction or non-fiction and I've got a couple more on hold but I think people have the same idea so I'm, I'm waiting for a while and I thought you know what I what about some some queer stories or queer history which I've I've read some queer stories of course but I've gotten uh this history which I thought naively I didn't think it was going to be as thick which is I suppose good but also disconcerting given really the struggle as it says but the gay revolution the story of the struggle by Lillian Faderman and that's been really interesting and also really disturbing with the the thing so I'm I'm learning a lot there so it's been good yeah have been trying to read I would say a diverse type of literature and gosh Rory Gilmore's 
Reading List was supposed to finish in 2020, but of course COVID happened. But the library just opened interlibrary loan. So I put on, you can only do, I was going to do all of the ones that I needed, which is seven, but they said three at a time. So I put three on. So I'm hopeful that 2021, the maybe the first quarter or so I finish it up and then, yeah. Ooh, man. So that's it. Lots of, lots of literature. And I did surpass my reading goal for 2020, which in January I'll probably talk about maybe my tops, my tops and my lows of reading. And yeah. Oh, well, I think that's it for this segment. So again, if you don't want to listen to the final eight hours of this, then you should probably check out the show notes and see where you want to go. When I come back, I'm going to be with Sam Heath, my nemesis, and we are going to be reviewing the 2001 special event Joker Last Laugh. But first, we've got Zias's Radio Hour featuring It Doesn't Matter Why by Silver Sun Pickups.
Okay, hello. This is probably either the first part or the second part, depending on if I have internal musings about being around for 11 years and 200 episodes. But uh, this particular storyline that I'm doing, there was only one person really who came to mind that I needed to do this story with because he likes this villain for whatever reason. So there he is again. He is my admirable arch nemesis. It's Sam Heathbar Heath. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. And I would like to note the little figurine in the background there yeah. that it it's, looks like it could be some kind of shrine that you've built to him. <laughs> Not at all. I was, yeah, behind the camera, I was peer pressured to bring that out. <laughs> he stands in front of my TV and put it up there. But yeah, little, there he is. The little guy right there. Yeah. There. So we're going to be doing some Joker's last laugh. And we'll see if we were chuckling along with it. But I wanted to start off actually asking you, because I think we at least mentioned it in our politics episode that you were on, that you do like the Joker a great deal. I don't know if you love him, but you like him a lot. What is it about the Joker that draws you in and, and why? Would you consider yourself a Joker apologist? What is it about this guy that, that you like so much? Maybe a Joker fan. I mean, okay. just from a from a perspective of who he is as a character. So- He's, he's so different than any other villain in, in so many ways. One, he's, he's such a foil in a way to Batman in, in, in some ways. Like he's such, a, he's such an anti-Batman. And Batman is my favorite superhero, period. So to, to see like the anti-Batman is, is something that's, that's exciting. I also, and I don't know a ton of the superheroes, but of like the main ones that are more out there in popular culture, like a lot of those have a goal like a like a discernible goal of something that they're that they're pretty clearly achieving and i never really put language to this in, until watching the dark knight trilogy of really looking at the joker as just this agent of chaos and like that's it that's his only goal like he's not trying to to steal something or he's not like you know getting back at some angry thing like scarecrow is of i felt slighted in academia like <laughs> like joker is just pure wickedness and that means that he can do anything and that means as a storyline, like you can have, like the, the, the world is open for what he could do. So I love that he's such, a, he's so against Batman. I love that he's this just absolute, like complete opposite of a moral center individual that you can do so many things with. And he's somebody that, again, not having read, not having read everything, but he's one of the villains that feels incredibly developed and, and used over and over and over. So it's not just me that mm. seems to like him. Like there seems to be this, this yeah. fascination with him. I mean, we just, you know, we awarded a best actor Oscar to someone playing Joker. Sure. And years before that, we had awarded a best supporting actor Oscar to someone. Play so like there's, there's this public draw to him anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Do you like the Jared Leto uh, version? I saw the trailer and that was as much as I could. Handle. Okay. <laughs> and then I read some stories about him and then I talked to you about it. And I was like, nope, nope. No, Not no thing. Yeah, I remember probably some of the stories you heard. I remember he did weird stuff to his castmates. Like he would send them weird things, like weird as in macabre things. Yeah. That if you were outside of that situation, people would probably be calling the police sort yeah. of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think he just really got I'll, into it. I'll stick with Heath Ledger. Yeah. <laughs> He's supposed to pop up again in the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, but okay. I guess he looks different. I don't know. I'm okay. not sure. Okay, so stay but, tuned. Yeah. 
You know, I I won't admit this many times, though I th- guess this is the most public place forum that I could admit it, but I do miss talking to you and our our library uh, get-togethers and our friendship time. Our friendship time. And especially I've been reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, mm-hmm. and I can race through books at work, but this one, once I started, I, I thought I really need to take my time with this. And so I'm just reading maybe one or two chapters a day apart from maybe some other book that I have, but it's just struck me that I wish, I wish Sam, I could talk to him about yeah. some of the the stuff that's going on. So. Oh, there's so much to process in it. Yeah, so Rachel absolutely. read it. My wife read it in her book club. And, and, and there was, there was a ton to talk about. I mean, genuinely any chapter from that book could be its own, like yeah. three hour at a night discussion with a group mm-hmm. of, of anybody. Cause they're, they're so packed, much less like the whole, the whole thing, together yeah and I just finished it a couple weeks ago and I was the same I read it slowly I started it at the beginning of the school year and then just you know read other things too but then my way through that really slowly because every chapter has has a ton and I Mm -hmm. wanted to read it fast just because it felt relevant but then once I got into it I think like you're saying I felt like I just I just couldn't to do it justice yeah absolutely so another thing that I have you to thank for is the reader to a certain extent, mm. just because you mention it so often. And in my first, in my musings on, you know, what I've learned as a podcaster, I think I will be talking about empathy and everything, but that's really struck me about the empathy that he's trying to work through in that particular novel and condoning versus condemning and everything. And I thought about a question that I wondered what you thought, empathy versus love. Mm. And what, you know, if someone were to like only have the ability to do one or try to work towards one, which one do you feel like would be most worthwhile? Is there, is one more difficult than the other? Mm. I don't, I don't know. By the definitions I have of those things in my head, I don't think of those as totally separate things. And I, I'm not even sure which one I would put in one but came before the other. I mean, mm. I, in some sense, I could say, like, if you are empathizing with someone, that's love. Or you could say, if you are loving someone, then that's going to result in empathy. But in, in another sense, like, I don't, I don't know if somebody... I. If anything, those might just be simultaneous. Like they're so they're so linked for me. Like if I'm if I'm truly loving and caring for someone, that's got to come from somewhere. And most likely I think that's from empathy. And if I'm absolutely empathizing with someone, then that's gonna result in love. So I don't know that those are those are separate things, but okay. I I feel like like philosophically I would have to stop and think more about if if there'd be an order of those. Yeah, I just wondered if could you love someone without necessarily trying to understand what they're going through it's just like no matter what you're going through or what's you know what's the cause between behind your actions I'm gonna love you so that's what I wonder if there is a separation between the two of them if by love we mean maybe certain actions that we do that are good and caring for someone like I think like they're I kind of I think of my children who like sometimes are crazy and you know feel <laughs> amazing but also sometimes feel like sociopaths and sure. like <laughs> I, I do these acts of love towards, sometimes I think they're the joker. Sometimes I do these acts of love towards them because like they're right and they're good. And I know that it's a helpful thing, but yet I'm not really feeling the empathy. Like, you know, I know you're real upset. You didn't get candy or get to watch that show or whatever it is or something serious, but like, I'm still going to do this. So if by love, we still mean like, I'm going to engage you and I'm going to dignify you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That doesn't always have to come from empathy. But then again, I think like, well, what is it that's motivating me to even still do that for my kids? If I'm not feeling the full like weight of the feelings, maybe that I could or should, but I'm still doing it. Well, 
where's that coming from? And so yeah. maybe, maybe there's still some empathy under there that's still helping drive those actions. What do you, what do you think? Do you see those as paired or mutually exclusive? Yeah, I was, I was just trying to think about, because I feel like my message that I'll say is, um, and I, I was thinking about the election and that even if we're, we, I don't talk about my political sides, I think it is hard for people who are anti-Trump to reach out in empathy or any sort of understanding to the voters. Mm -hmm. And I totally get it uh, because I I think there was strong messaging that, I mean, if you're voting for that guy, there's, there's something wrong. Uh, You might be racist, (laughs) even if you're saying you're all about the economy. And so I was thinking like, how, how could you reach out to someone who just like can't connect with them? And do you say just love them, but is love just, you know, ignoring everything else and just love that person as a person. Sometimes people can't, can't get past that. And so if I were to go another route and, and say, well, what about, you know, what about empathy and just like treating them like a human being? It's something that I've, I've kind of been working through. And then of course there's the other layer of compassion, but I feel like that would be even harder for someone to, to reach that level um, in the political sphere. I don't know. So that's what I've been mm. working through with with this because I feel like however much we may disagree because I think that's where the reader comes in right however much we may disagree with these voters I think if we were to keep seeding dissension like our our nation is just going to fall apart and so we really need to reach out and do that however hard it, and I'm not saying it's an easy thing either like it's it's something that I think I have to just like being an anti-racist is a daily journey you can't you're not you don't just wake up one day and you're an anti-racist you have to revisit actions all the time that you may have committed that were racist or following racist policies and then uh oh you know apologize for that own it and and move on so I feel like with empathy it's a constant journey as well like (laughs) yikes I really don't understand why you're voting for this man or I don't like that you're voting for this man maybe you are misled and I'm trying to feel for you yeah 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 well Kendi Kendi is so helpful in the sense of saying it's less helpful to think about someone as an entirely racist person and it's yeah. more helpful to think about they did this racist action Correct. and you yeah. know insert anything into whatever that is like mm-hmm. it's so rare that somebody is completely and totally this thing you know they always say in counseling especially marriage counseling like don't ever say to your partner that you always or you never like yeah th- these totalizing statements aren't true but, like in the moment somebody might do something in this mm-hmm. thing so with, with someone who's voting for trump or I did, it's it's so helpful to think about, one, there's a reason. There's a mm-hmm. reason somebody did that. And I might disagree with that reason, but one, there might be something that's binding their conscience. And that's something yeah. that I can say, I wish that didn't bind your conscience, but I really want to understand that. And that's helpful to know. But also like, it's not, that doesn't necessarily speak to you as an entire person. Yeah. And maybe I used to think that way just because it was easier, but it's, it's not true. And, and mm-hmm. you engage the person, you think, all right, I might, I might completely disagree with this decision, but let's label this decision as something that's crazy or awful or whatever and separate that from from who you are overall and mm-hmm. Kennedy does that like he gives enough nuance yeah. to be able to say like someone and he he himself is like throughout the whole book like he was a racist he says he was racist in this yeah. way and 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 he names all of these actions and looks at those of in the moment what was it that I did rather than just blanket state blanket statementing a person absolutely yeah which is something that was interesting because Carolyn Coca is uh, someone who helped me work through the idea that 
people of color can't be racist and like women can't be sexist because you aren't benefiting from that. Like it's always um, sort of the power structure. It can't be you, but I do agree with. So when I was reading that with, uh, with Kenny and what he was saying, no, yes, but at least like he wouldn't be going against or saying something against white people wouldn't be racist, but it's just that he was adding to the racist policies against his own people. And that's how he would. So I suppose if I were to add to the sexist policies against my own sex, then I would be sexist because I'm just adding to it. Mm-hmm. But that was, yeah, something very yeah. interesting. Yeah, because yeah, it helps so much <laughs> for Kenny to shift the discussion to talking about, okay, what is this action doing? Is this action resulting in a racist policy or an anti-racist policy? And if it's resulting in a racist policy, then that person is a racist no matter what. Like yeah. that's, that's a very clean category. It's not very nuanced. Mm-hmm. That's, one, that's one of the problems I had with the book is that it was, it was really inflexible with the definitions that, that maybe didn't leave the nuance for people that, that I wanted, but yet it also was really clean. And like, it gave this system and from beginning to end, he's incredibly, it's, you know, it's like communism. Like it's incredibly <laughs> consistent. Like if I take this premise and, and then he follows it all the way through. But that premise, which comes, you know, within the first like three pages, if you don't take that, then then someone's going to have a problem with a lot that's there. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of communism, <laughs> as an aside to this, there's a student at the school that you work at and I used to work at who would like to create the young, the Yassers, the young American socialists. And he thinks this student believes that you maybe would like to be the teacher, the faculty advisor. <laughs> Wow. So would you the, be up the, for that? The opposite of Young Americans for Freedom for Yeah is the Young American Socialists. Yep. Okay. That's that's the opposite. It would be, I think it's so important for almost any space to have some kind of balancing voice. Yeah. You know, and and whatever that balancing voice would be to balance out the YAF people. Yeah. isn't in that space and, and isn't in a lot of spaces. Yeah. And that would be a good thing. I don't know if it would be socialism, but okay. absolutely that absolutely there needs to be a balancing voice. I'll let them know that you'll consider Please. the position. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. Yeah. Well, so to wrap up the empathy talk, I want to bring it back to Joker mm. and whether you think that readers can or should have empathy for the Joker and in your readings of Batman's interactions with him do you feel like Batman has any empathy or love deep down for the Joker now not erotic love because I did I think send you that article where there there was a like a love story that this writer made basically between the two of them and Lego Batman kind of has some some shipping in there as well but what do you think if we were to tie in our empathy with Joker Mm. Batman seems to be able to deal with Joker in the way that he does because Batman does what he does with a lot of things of he just kind of goes into robot mode and he relies on these principles that he in these rules that he has for everything and he sticks with those and this is one thing I want to talk about like why and they bring it up in in the last laugh several times one like why not kill the Joker mm-hmm. and and two like and this is an aside like why doesn't the Batman world execute Joker, like, why is he in Arkham? Why is he at the slab? Like, why, when you have murdered as many people as he has, like, why, why does the Gotham world, why have they not, I'm, I'm staunchly against the death penalty, but why have they not killed him? <laughs> Man, what a hypocrite you are. I'm just asking the question. But yeah, uh, yeah really, like, it doesn't, it seems like how, 
how has that not come up? I mean, did they, does, does this Gotham world not have the death penalty? I mean, I know Batman and all his buds don't, they don't do that. Yeah. So it does have the death penalty. And the only reason I know that is because I just recently read a, a Batgirl story in 2001 where this man was going to be put to death by electric chair and okay. Batgirl tries to stop it. And then the mom of the victims that, you know, says he he had his chance to change and they end up electrocuting him. So there is a death penalty. I don't know if it's something that Batman prevents happening with certain people because he just wants them to change and he wants them to be better. I don't know. Um, or is it the insane plea where, you know, maybe they've limit. I don't know, though, yeah. if, after reading, what was it called? Uh, just Mercy. That clearly does not help a lot of people who are mentally un. Yeah. Have you read Just Mercy? I have. And okay. saw, yeah, I read it and saw the movie. Yeah. yeah. I have yet to watch the movie, but yeah. clear some issues. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I could not answer that, but that is one of the questions okay. that, of course, we have with the Joker and why is he still alive? Question. Okay. Well, I mean, if <laughs> Brian Stevenson were here, he would repeat his line of you are more than the worst thing you've ever done. Mm, so Joker is true. more than the 500 million worst things he's ever done. Yeah, and the laughing um, Yeah. I don't know if Batman empathizes him because I don't know what that would look like. Like, yeah. I don't I don't see any exceptional treatment that Batman, I see exceptional treatment of Joker toward Batman. I mean, he's mm. out over and over and over and over and mm-hmm. over and over and over. But I don't know if I, I more see Batman responding to what Joker does. And so I, and I, again, I'm curious in all the things that have been written about it. Like, are there these moments where something different happens with Batman of what he does? Like, does he, does he break his rules? I mean, Nightwing by the end certainly breaks the rules Yikes, at, yeah. at the end of last laugh. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I want to talk about that. Cause that was, yeah. that was huge, but yeah. that's, but that's not Batman. Yeah. No, I feel like if I were to see Batman showing any amount of like an extreme amount of potentially of love or empathy or even compassion towards one person, it'd be, it'd be two-faced. But that's, I think, because of his pre-existing relationship with right. Harvey Dent. And right. so he just try, he tries so hard to, to help him out and, and hope for change. But with Joker, I don't know if he thinks he's too far gone, but he doesn't let people kill him, which I think speaks highly of something, some warring emotion that's going on with Batman. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. Maybe it is homoerotic love. If people believe it's a thing. I know they do. I mean, oh, both of them, it, I, and that, and that's a good point. I mean, both of them express exceptional treatment of the other person, I guess mm-hmm. we could say. I mean, Joker seeks him out over and over and, you know, yeah. does all the things. And Batman doesn't just not kill Joker. He also, as, as you said, prevents other people from doing it, which yeah. isn't something that you regularly see Batman doing. So, so in that sense, they are both, they are both doing something exceptional to the other person, but What's underneath that? Yeah. What is that? Something kind of broken underneath it, potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, before we get into it, of course, I have my Find Your Joy segment, which oh. is called Shag's Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy. So it's been since August that I last talked to you. So what have you been doing or what has helped you find joy in, I guess, now stressful teaching times? Yeah, it's been it has been very different teaching. Yeah, our school is meeting in person and and we're 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 still making it. So there are a lot of procedures and protocols and mitigation things that make it possible but also make it so much harder. Being outside has been big both for us as a family and just for students. Like I I I do so much with technology in my classroom that in most other years I just don't 
have students outside because it's, mm. it's 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 harder to replicate. But we have been outside, or I've been outside with my students more than ever before, and on some really cold mornings, um, just so that we can be outside. So that has, and and I had a lot of students talk about that even back in March when COVID really first went down and we all were in quarantine and they were, we were doing school online. A lot of them just kept writing about and talking about going on this walk with my family and being outside, or they would be doing class outside on their, on their computers. So I think a lot of people have taken to that. We, it, it has been big for us, for us as a family, most summers we spend, because I'm with our kids in the summer, since I teach in the school year, uh, we're outside a lot, but we're also at, like at pools or at splash pads, but all those were closed and are still closed. So we've been outside in lots of other ways, or like we've gone to lakes or we've gone to rivers, you know, places that are not, are not closed off. So being outside has been big and it's gotten me kind of worried. Like we have a covered back porch upstairs and that's been like our meeting place for, for interviews, for people, for articles that I've done, for hangouts, for book clubs. And it's starting to get cold. Oh. And I don't know, like, oh my goodness, what do we, do we like buy one of those fancy restaurant heaters? <laughs> we can still meet with people outside, but yeah, sure. like, we don't have anybody in our home. So it is, I, I'm, I'm, we have used that outdoor space a lot. And so I'm wondering, oh goodness, what's going to happen? But yeah. being outside has been major and absolutely yeah. like a joy and absolutely a need, but the weather's changing. Yeah. I Well, I'm enjoying that the weather's changing finally, though it's been a bit schizophrenic just with the, it, it'll get warm all of a sudden and then drop down. But I have been enjoying that. And now during work, I listen to an audio book during my lunch breaks, I go out and sit mm. outside, which is really pleasant. So I, I agree with you on that. Two times, actually, in the past couple of days, I dr- driven past where I would go down to get to your place. And so the people that I've been, I'm like, do you want to go visit Sammy? <laughs> <laughs> which has been fun. But yeah, well, and come on down. I know. I, I tell them that you're so welcoming. And I think you actually mean it. Like if I just rolled up, you'd be so welcoming. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'll try that one day during Christmas break or something after work. We'll we'll be here. <laughs> we likely will be outside. That might be true. Yep. And yeah, for me, I well, my birthday just happened, so I think yeah. that was kind yeah. of joyous. there was a lot of buildup on Facebook. There oh my is God. a lot of buildup. Yeah, it seems out. like it lasts for a month because I mean I'm counting down, yep. and then I have all these adventures leading up to it, and the day of, not much happens, and then it's over, and you're like, wow, that was wow, that's a bummer. <laughs> But I did talk to my mom. I always talked to her at the time I came out in the primordial ooze. And we oh. chat. Yeah, at 8.27 p.m. Oh, well, at least it's not, you know, like three in the morning. Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, she did call me. We've been doing this thing for the past couple of years where we call each other midnight leading into the birthday. I did try this for her on her birthday. She fell asleep. So <laughs> I did not get to her. But I was awake. So we did chat at midnight on my birthday. So. Okay, good tradition. So anyways, yep. Okay. Well, I think we're going to get into this Joker's last laugh. So this is actually, you actually have a good position in this podcast because all the other segments connect to this. (laughs) So it's like, this is the main event. And then I've got tie-ins that are connecting to it. So you should feel privileged. Oh boy. Well, the the story itself was like that. It felt like the the nexus of every dang hero and villain. On the- I know, I felt so bad. Every other well, page of the notation, see this issue of this thing for the storyline. Oh yeah, that was, that was a bit much, yeah. Okay, so this story came out between December 2001 and January 2002. 
And the core storyline occurred in Joker Last Laugh Secret Files and Origins number one, and then the six issues of the actual story. And then tie-ins happened in, I'll just say, Action Comics, Adventures of Superman, Asriel, Agent of the Bat, Batgirl, Batman, Batman, Gotham Knights, Birds of Prey, Detective Comics, The Flash, Green Lantern, Harley Quinn, Impulse, JLA, JSA, Nightwing, Orion, Robin, Spectre, Superboy, Supergirl, Superman, Superman, the Man of Steel, Titans, Wonder Woman, and Young Justice. So it wasn't a little tie-in. I mean, it wasn't a little event, I should say, for DC. So we can talk about that and, and whether it was worth it or not. Yeah. So I'll go through the, let me see here. I have all of the, how do I want to do this? I guess I'll start with Secret Files. And was I'll just- Was written first or was that after? Secret Files should have come first because that at least gives you the setup for- like, was, that one written, was that still actually written first or did they do the six and then go back and write like the prequel? I believe that it should have come first. Okay. But that would, if I had done more research, I could have uh, seen dates that it specifically came out. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, so let's see here. I'll go through all this. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six stories, and then they also have profile pages, which is what these uh, secret files usually do. So we've got A Clown at Midnight, written by Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon, pencils by Pete Woods, inks by Cameron Stewart, and that is actually uh, the setup to all this. You see how Dick and Babs go on the date and how all that got set up. Joker getting tested out at the slab and finding out he's got this tumor. And then we get to know Shiloh and Dinah or Dina a bit. Then we have Touched by Dan Curtis Johnson and J.H. Williams III for plot. Dan Curtis Johnson's script, J.H. Williams III pencils and Mick Ray inks. And this was interesting because it was interviewing different people that had somehow been affected by joker and so you actually do see babs you see harley quinn batman pops up things like that and other people you may not know it was very text heavy it was text heavy yep let's see the joker's hard sell script scott Beatty, pencils leonard kirk inks al williamson and letters kurt hathaway oh it's yeah it's with the person in the dog costume and saying buy this book or i'll kill this dog yep uh, so that was the heart <laughs> and that's kind of like and then this guy pops in and he's basically a nerd because he's got polybagged for freshness and it's meta I feel like it's meta it's just like a commentary it's like breaking the fourth wall kind of thing mm-hmm. um, and it'd be disturbing if it weren't cartoonish violence yeah. okay yes we do have a head chopped off yeah <laughs> Uh, then we have Worm Food, script Jerry Ordway, pencils Pete Krause, inks Dick Giordano, and letters John Costanza. And this is about uh, Mr. Mind, and there's a college student who steals him away. And then, of course, he gets Mr. Mind goes in his head, and he gets affected by it and all that stuff. Joker Fun Facts, script Jay Nitz, pencils Amanda Connor, inks Jimmy Palmiotti, and letters Kurt Hathaway. And that one is the a one woman. where like Bill Nye is a scientist guy. And it's Amanda, right? What'd you say? You said an, um, Amanda, right? Amanda Connor, yes. Well, okay. Get Do you know who Amanda Connor is? I just know she's a woman in a world of just. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, why is he, does he know who she no, is? No, but no, you're no, absolutely no. right that it's the only woman's name on that whole page. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's gotten, yeah, she's been around for uh, Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti, our husband and wife team. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's... And they, 
Yeah. That's the only way to spend time together. Yeah. So that's a Bill Nye-esque little mm-hmm. story. And it's basically how to make the, the Joker toxin uh, that we'll find out. And then the last thing is Joker's personal effects. And it's just written by Scott Beatty, which is basically what he was arrested with, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, And then our profile pages, we've got Shiloh Norman and Dina Bell, Black Mass, Multiman, Leather, Meathead, Carnivora, and Rancor. And all of them, for the most, well, I should say, uh, Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty are are with the text, and then the the pencils and the inks uh, switch off and everything. And I will say that uh, Dina Bell actually pops up in Birds of Prey 12, that I think 12 and 13, where she and Dinah go to Apocalypse, that's whole story arc. So just be aware of that. Okay, so that's just, I don't know. I mean, do you want to talk about Secret Files, like that first story, or do you just want to get into the, because everything might wrap into the main story anyways. Yeah, no, it was, I actually read this one last. Okay. So so it was really interesting to have, like I jumped right into the prison riot in in the first issue and then, and, and it felt like, and I thought it was on purpose, like just thrown into it. And (laughs) so reading this, it gave the buildup in the background, Yeah. but it, it, it gave a lot more depth to it. Um, And I also, I mean, of, of the six storylines plus this one, I mean, th- this one had the clearest, this one had the clearest, most discernible storyline to it, I thought. Yeah. And I'm, I, I wish I had read that first. I think it might've, it, maybe it would have affected my thought of the, of the whole thing. I know you, you also said like, you kind of had a, a strong overall <laughs> thought about, bless you, I think, bless you. Yeah, I think yeah. uh, about the, I don't know about the storyline as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to separate my, the fact that I haven't read a ton of, these other characters and and not just be annoyed that this felt like, you know, like a, like an amped up Marvel movie times a billion, you know, with things going on everywhere and all these things happening. And it's one of the things I love so much about long Halloween or black mirror. Like it was such a direct story. Mm. It was, it was, it was such a clear thing that was happening. And this wasn't that at all. It was, it was, it was all over. Um, can I say this now, the overall thing? like, If you want we- to. I am going to do the synopsis, but yeah, if you want to. Well, it just, it, it affected, I think, how I read all of these in that I think, I don't fully think this, but I don't know of a better way to say it. Like, in some ways, it felt like an excuse to get all of these individuals into a storyline. Hmm. And, and the storyline itself doesn't, doesn't advance much. Like, it was just, you know, what if the Joker thought he would die? What would he do? Oh, he yeah. kills a ton of people. And then at the end of the story, we're like, we're right back where we were. The only thing to me that like advances the cause of this Gotham universe is the fact that Nightwing actually kills Joker, but yeah. doesn't, yeah. But, but he thought he did. And I, and, I would, and I would love to talk about that because that's character wise, that's a major, major thing. And sort of like with Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, I know that a ton of people had a lot of issues with it. But after I read it, one of the things that I said was, I still felt like it advanced the story, like it advanced mm. characters, even if there are problems with it and time travel doesn't work and rolling just can't do it, which is true. But it, it still, you still saw something different about the characters. I didn't feel that about anything except for what happened with, and it was Dick Grayson, right? Nightwing? Yeah, yeah except with that. And so it was, wor- it was worthwhile for that okay that's good to know going into it yeah and i will say just so you know i read the first issue 
And I felt like I was thrown in Medius race. And so then I backed out and I read Seeker Files and I realized Mm -hmm. I needed to read that first. So you weren't alone in reading that one out of order. They don't always come at the tail end of storylines. And it also depends on how big the storyline is because they could pop in in the middle or something like that. So my bad for not warning you, hey, read this first. So you get a good idea. Okay. I mean, all all of the plot points were still in, were still in the first issue. It just, it was a slower, build up to read the secret yeah yep okay well i'm going to go and give all the creator credits because they kind of change with the exception of the writer and then i'll give the synopsis which i took from wikipedia Mm. yeah so the first issue is subtitled stir crazy written by chuck dixon and scott Beatty, pencils by pete woods inks by andrew peepoy and letters by willie schubert uh, Colors by Tom McCraw and Separations by Digital Chameleon. And then uh, issue number two, Siege Mentality, Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty. Writers, penciler Marcos Martin, inkers Mark Farmer and Alvaro Lopez, colorist Tom McCraw. Number three, Lunatic Fringe. Writers are the same, artists Walter McDaniel and colorist Tom McCraw. Issue four, Everyone Knows This Is Nowhere, same writers, artist Andy Kuhn, colorist Tom McCraw. Mad Mad World is number five, same writers, artist Ron Randall, uh, which should make the Sutherlands happy, and then colorist Gina Going. And number six, You Only Laugh Twice, same writers, and penciler Rick Burchett, inkers Mark Lipka and Dan Davis, and colorist Gina Going. Uh, and we'll talk about art because I do want to know your opinion on the art and the and the covers as well. Okay, here we go. While locked up in the slab penitentiary, the Joker finds out that he is suffering from a terminal brain tumor. Determined to go out with a bang, he causes a riot in the slab and in the ensuing chaos modifies the chemicals used by the prison to suppress its metahuman inmates into his Joker venom and manages to jokerize the other inmates, making them insane and changing their appearance, giving them white skin, red lips, green hair, and a wide smile. I mean, so they look like the Joker. The Black Canary, Nightwing, and Batman move in to put down the riot, while Dinah, Laurel, Lance, and Shia... No, that's incorrect. While Dina... See, you have to double check some of these uh, Wikipedia entries. While Dina and Shiloh Norman are trapped inside, the Joker prompts Black Mass to suck the prison into a black hole while he and the other villains escape. The Blue Beetle narrowly rescues the Black Canary, Batman, and Nightwing, while Dina and Shiloh are not so lucky. Barbara Gordon feels remorseful for being absent on a date with Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Nightwing, while the riot first broke out and begins to wish that she could kill the Joker for the pain he has caused in her life. <laughs> we're, I mean, we're going to talk about that. Chaos soon spreads throughout the entire Earth and United States President Lex Luthor. Did you recognize that's who it was? I the did, co- but uh, how did that happen? <laughs> they called him Lex. I, I Then I did a double take. Yeah, we, wow. we were given our, that's our democratic freedom is to vote for Lex Luthor as president. He declares war on the Joker. While the JLA searches for him, the Joker hides out on Easter Island and sends his minions to capture Harley Quinn so he can impregnate her and produce an heir. Harley is eventually rescued by the spoiler, Batgirl, and Power Girl. Meanwhile, the Joker grows disgruntled at the lack of creativity behind his minions' havoc, realizing that every other crisis involves red skies and crazy weather. 
which is a little nod to all the crisis on infinite earths and infinite crises, all that stuff. With the assistance of Stormfront and Mr. 104, the Joker poisons the atmosphere and creates crazy rain, spreading his laughing toxin across the world. His next plan is the assassination of President Luther. While the Jokerized villains are being rounded up, Kirk Langstrom, a.k.a. Manbat, discovers that the venom they are affected with is also deadly and works to produce an antidote in a, whoa, and works to produce an antidote with the reluctant help of Harley Quinn. The Black Canary also discovers that the Joker's cat scans were modified and that the doctors lied to him about his impending death in the hope that it would cause him to lead a more sane life. Inside the slab, Shiloh and Dina are struggling to find a way to get themselves in the prison back to Earth. They initially try to find Black Mass to reverse the gravity well with the help of Mass Mr. Mind. However, Dina accidentally shoots Black Mass during a run-in with the Man-Eaters. They eventually resort to killing Multi-Man over and over until he is able to reanimate Black Mass, who then sends them back to Earth. The Huntress is sent to Arkham Asylum to find Robin, who disappeared into the building and stopped sending out reports. After encountering Killer Croc, she finds what appears to be Robin's shredded outfit and his bones. Nightwing, enraged over Robin's death, goes to face the Joker, who is now holed up in Gotham Cathedral. Oh, there's the God. Remember, we talked about that. With one of his Jokerized metahumans placing a shield around the area. He can let in only whom he wants to and decides to have fun with Nightwing. Mercilessly taunting him, Dick beats him to death until the Batman family, Robin included, arrives on the scene, much to Nightwing's surprise. The Joker's heart is restarted and he is returned to prison. But Dick is distraught. He has crossed the line and simply walks out on his friends. Back at the slab, now located on an ice floe, the Joker is placed in a new cell with no entrances or exits. Shiloh Norman remarks that the only way to punish a performer is to take away his audience. And that is Joker's last laugh. And I did, so a big question for me is why he was in the slab. And I was doing research. I was asking people. I finally posted to Twitter. And one of the writers, Scott Beatty, tweeted me back and said, Stella, I don't think we were specific about a particular arrest or conviction, except that this time the Joker was sent to the DCU's metahuman prison, literally a supermax for supervillains because of his revolving door escapes from Arkham Asylum. Mm, which so that's how he got there frequent, please yeah uh <laughs> so here we go how should we begin this uh well let's talk about the art that's kind of an easier topic before we get uh talking about everything else mm. and we can also go through the the covers as well and talk about the different colors but overall i mean each of the issues were for the most part drawn by someone different and mm. now of the graphic novels you have read. So Sam, I mean, I think you've talked about your history before. I should have asked you again, just for people who didn't listen to that politics. You're not a new reader. You don't consistently read comics, but Mm -hmm. you have read several graphic novels. Is that pretty fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say at least a couple dozen over the years and a bunch of them that you, a bunch of those from you. Yeah. Yeah. So for the graphic novels that he's read, of course, and, and anyone who's read those, you'll probably consist have a consistent team, art team and everything. So this was different. So how did you feel with each issue going in and there was a, a new pencil, you know, a new inker or colorist or whatever? What did you think about the art in this story? I, I think I would have loved it if the story had been tighter. Again, mm-hmm. like it felt like 
so it, it felt like a project that tried to do so much. It tried to bring in so many characters, so many storylines, and it also tried to bring in so many people. And I think both of those are really good things, but maybe those things are better done in separate, in, in, in separate worlds so that you can excel really well at one of those over the others. Like I love that all of those individuals came in so that there's something that, that's really unique for, for each one. And so in each of the, each of the covers especially was, was great and was unique and brought out a different, something that was different for Joker, even just in how he looked. Mm-hmm. But so far as, I don't know, so far as what it did for the story, it just, it felt like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a movie, a movie analogy of something that was just like too big, for its own good. I don't know. Did you ever see Pearl Harbor? Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That was a movie that was just too big for its own good. Like it was too many people. It was too much happening. Like it was too Mm. long. Like it thought that it was this great thing. Mm -hmm. And in a a deeper dive into something, I think would have, would have actually allowed these things to come to the fore better. So Mm -hmm. that was, that was my first reaction is that it felt like a really cool idea to bring some, to have this, to have this storyline, but yet it felt overall to me, it felt really disjointed. Yeah, I would agree with you. And there are going to be several follow-ups to go into the story itself and everything, but I do for a full story or even, you know, an arc of an ongoing comic, I love to have the same creative team just because I think it does give cohesion to it. Um, And you want to see just like the same style throughout rather than get and I'm not saying that any of this art was bad I loved seeing Marcos Martin on issue two because that's like the dream team of Beckerl year one and Robin year one so to see Chuck and Scott and Marcos was great and Ron Randall is a great artist as well so they they were all great it was just like oh wow here's another artist here's another interpretation and I wonder if there's like an outside commentary like a meta commentary on this because and you've read The Killing Joke, of course, and, and even Heath Ledger's interpretation that his history or his biography is multiple choice. You, you don't really know the exact nature of who he is and everything. So could that be something like, hey, we've got all these different interpretations artistically of Joker. Do you think it might be tying into that or is that too like you're getting too deep for what this actually I is? Know. I think that's maybe giving more credit than okay then maybe it's due again. It seems like it was just like, let's all get together and do this awesome <laughs> thing. And it's so fun. Let's reference yeah. all of these things. And if that's the goal, like that's, that's great. But if the goal was like this deep, I don't know if the goal was something like Watchmen, like this philosophical dive, but yet this, this, this epic story, that's amazing. And it, it, it and Joker last laugh didn't do it. If the goal was like this, like, like Batman black mirror, like to, mm. like to, do this incredibly dark but yet like very very clear singular storyline but to bring in a lot of people in different styles into it like Mm -hmm. that that absolutely works or to do even the killing joke to get to alan moore again to to have this story that was that felt like such a bold decisive take on on part of the story that's that's great but it didn't do any of those things Mm. it it tried it almost tried to do a lot of those things and therefore it didn't do any of those particularly well gotcha do you feel like what what would you say the tone of this book is do you think that it is a dark story i don't i i my first thought was playful and my second thought was chaotic and i think both of those were intentional but i think the chaotic was again like it it 
if that was the goal, you know, to have all of this going on, it worked. Mm-hmm. But if the goal was to, you know, to do to do something singular and more uniform. It just it just didn't do it. But no, it wasn't particularly dark. But like, even when you're reading those, some of the, some of the description of what happened, like there's some intense things and deep things, like they're dark and they're incredibly scientific and they pull in a lot, like all of that. Mm -hmm. But when I'm, when you're reading it, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel the the three that I referenced, the Black Mirror, Watchmen or Killing Joke, like all those had a weight to them that this, that Last Laugh absolutely didn't have. It didn't have to, or even Mad Love. Like which I love, which I loved and thought was amazing because again, it was this deep dive of someone like, what if we did this, this one thing? What if we took like this one idea and let it play out? Whereas this felt like, what if we took these fifty ideas and threw them all together? Yeah, I I would agree. I think it is a lighter Joker tale, maybe something you would see in like the animated series. But some of the stuff that goes on does carry weight. I mean, we keep referencing and talking about it and we are going to get to it. Nightwing, obviously. I think some of the Barbara Gordon stuff that I do want to talk about her characterization and that's really interesting. And then some of the things you don't even get to see because they focus on it in one of the tie-ins. So Dinah, the actual Dinah, uh, Black Canary and what happens to her because you kind of only see her get beat up here, but you don't see what actually happens until you read Birds of Prey. So there are serious moments in there but some dark things that are happening are also treated lightly like the multi-man and just joker like killing him over and over again it's like super dark but it's also funny just like you know what power do you have now bam what power do you have now so uh and chaotic i certainly agree with you and i think part of it is just like all those jokers running around and it's hard to figure out what is his actual you know desire what is he trying to do do you feel like this is too big of a story for Joker? Like it just gets too much. His desire to take over the world and and whatever else it is 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 beyond what Joker normally would do, even though he's dying. I don't. My first thought was I don't. Maybe it was too big of a story for that many people who were involved in the project to take on. Like to like you talked about having a consistent creative team. Maybe could have could have done a deeper dive into it that was one thought and the other thought was for joker to i don't know to take over the world maybe he had to jokerize as many people as he did but yet he didn't have to and and part that's another thing like i i wanted the story about joker like if joker is going to take over the world i don't want it to be about all of the people who are with him at the slap like i would love to see what what joker would do how he would how he would bring in people or manipulate them into doing that rather than just I don't know, you know, zombieizing those he was imprisoned with and, and having them as his minions go out and do it. I don't know. It kind of felt, it almost felt kind of like a cheat. Like it was a Joker story, but it wasn't really about Joker. Yeah. I feel like he would have this big hurrah in Gotham. Like for him to leave Gotham and to a certain yep. extent be remote and just be sending people and From be so hands off. Which why Easter Island? Because the the spaces that they pick are really interesting. Yeah. One Easter Island, and then Gothic Cathedral. So the I mean the climax scene is yeah. in Gotham Cathedral, and and let's 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 dig in there. Sure. But why? I mean, was Easter Island only so that they could make the joke that they did about painting the, the painting the faces on the stones? I mean, why why that place of all places? Maybe that song. Isn't there a Christmas song about spending Christmas? I want to spend Christmas on Easter Island. 
or something like that. Isn't that Ella Fitzgerald song? Anyways, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't, it just seemed weird. Like he was almost hands off yeah. and he does right. have minions, but he also, I feel like he's always got his hand in what ever mission against Batman or whomever he has. So it just was odd to see all these jokers run around, but the main joker is not doing as much beyond the first point. And and it's interesting because he's portrayed as really intelligent, which I think is probably true of him, but you see that he knew like the toxicity and and what he needed to jokerize everybody. So it's like this really brainy guy and then all the, his plan is kind of bizarro to connect to that almost. Right. Right. Yep, that that did not feel consistent. Yeah. So let's see, shall we talk about Barbara Gordon a bit? Yes, we must, right? I'm sorry? I said we must, right? (laughs) We do have to, yeah. So I was interested in her characterization. And also we can talk about, I felt like Batman wasn't in this story very much, which I thought was interesting. But we even start with, there are a couple interactions between her and Dick and they're not the best. He, He tries to calm her down a bit. I'm on issue one, I guess, when they're in their car and everything. And uh, what, do you, what, yeah. what do you think? You asked about what I thought about the tone of, of the whole of the whole story. Sure. I mean, what did you think about the characterization of Babs? I mean, yeah. it, it's, you, you, had, you had and still have very strong views on Babs and the killing joke. Yeah. Um, and so like, did you have a similar reaction? Yes. Oh, of, of what I think about this. So it's interesting. And I'm, I'm looking at this now, just that, I mean, she basically wants the Joker dead. She thinks that this would be the easiest way to solve the problem. I think she says this in issue one and issue two, and both times Nightwing's like, no, you know, we don't do revenge. This is not us, which is interesting towards the end. I'm not really sure how that ending comes about, but it just seems like there's a lot of hostility coming from her and, I feel like, at least in the pages of Birds of Prey, that while he's always there, she's been monitoring him. Um, so there's been a, a big lead up to this that she doesn't, I feel like she, I can't say she's gotten over it, but I don't think she would ever cross this line, like, let's get rid of him. Mm. So I almost feel like it's a, a bit of a mischaracterization that all of a sudden, like, all of this anger and hostility is out there, which clearly she's not a fan of the Joker. This would be what I would see Barbara doing way earlier in her career. I would say that rather than a seasoned veteran who's been dealing with him. She's already had a run in with him earlier on in Birds of Prey. So I'm, I'm a, a bit confused where this is coming from. And what's more confusing is that it's Chuck Dixon writing it, who is writing Birds of Prey. So it's just odd to see that this characterization is coming from the guy who's been characterizing her since issue one of Birds of Prey. And we're on. 36 or whatever I think I'll do in this 200th episode so for me it's it seems like a mischaracterization like I feel like I'm reading a Babs that would have been earlier on right after the killing joke but not what she's been doing now who's been working through I think these feelings about the Joker don't trust the Joker absolutely but this I don't know I think she's obsessive I mean oh yeah those and watching those again that's not I, I don't know what brought that about or just like you said it should have been something that you know right after yeah right after the incident that mm-hmm. that that would have made sense yeah it felt even it, when I read that that felt really that felt really out of place I mean she felt she felt like what had happened was very very raw 
and that it had just happened. She was obsessive. She was upset. She was angry. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, I had, I was going to ask like how, how far since the incident was this supposed to be? And it sounds like a while. Yeah. And, and even, I mean, her second interaction with, with Dick, he's saying, I don't want the Joker to come between it. Like it's causing that amount of a break between relationships right now. It's, I feel like she's a bit beyond this. So it's almost revisiting something. Yeah. If this were in another timeline, I think we could get it, but she's even saying we don't do anything permanent to stop him. So it's really this huge thing about getting rid of him. And I do like that one scene with her and Tim, where he uh, hugs her after Dick walks away because clearly she's not okay. And I will say that art wise, uh, I don't think you know this, but the editor, once Birds of Prey started up, he told all artists that you could not put handles on the wheelchair Mm. because she doesn't get pushed. She pushed herself. And actually I'm seeing art right now that she, uh, there's some handles on there. But what's strange for me then, so I'm saying that it's inconsistent with what I've seen of Barbara currently my inconsistency within this whole story is that it's almost like we're we transfer all this to nightwing at the very end so he's been the one who's saying we don't do this we don't kill no matter what we we just gotta let the the joker stay alive and then he kills him so he does cross that line because he thinks that tim drake has been killed so what do you th- do you feel like that was a consistent character like did that make sense for this guy who's been the advocate to keeping Joker alive all of a sudden snaps and then goes after the Joker and per- you know for a moment kills him Well I mean I feel like anybody who's involved with Batman is liable just to snap right <laughs> He's kind of crazy and dark and just does that to everyone around him. But I also thought with Dick, it, it might've been, he felt guilty. I mean, he pulled, he pulled Babs away on this forced date, which the tone of that to me was weird anyway. (laughs) Then all of this went down. Yeah. He, he felt like, you know, at, at this moment when all of Babs's obsession with Joker could have Mm -hmm. actually been productive Mm -hmm. when it, when it, when it might've actually been worthwhile, he is the one that pulled her away and, and maybe that that to me made what he did feel at least consistent within that storyline. I don't know how consistent that is within his character from other comics and other issues, but to me, it felt like he might have just felt really guilty on top of being being yeah. upset about feeling his friend had died as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at this. Uh, she, she's saying no one hates him more than me. No one wants him dead more than me, but this isn't the way. So it's just interesting to go from issue one and two all the way to six. Yeah. All that has changed for sure. Yeah. And it just shows she's, I don't know. She wants, she wants him dead, but she doesn't want him dead in that way. Like she doesn't want, she doesn't want Dick to do it. She wants, she wants some, it to happen in some other way. I mean, Mm -hmm. either for like Joker just to die or someone else to kill him or, Mm -hmm. or even Batman to kill him. But Nightwing, Nightwing seems to undo her in a way that she didn't expect. And again, it's all in Gotham Cathedral. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, which can, I mean, can, I want to say this because I don't want to forget it, but it's, it's a sacred space. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does this act of killing him, which you could say like, because it's in Gotham Cathedral that, you know, like it's, it's, it's divinely sanctioned, but then you have the Joker resurrected within yeah. Gotham, within Gotham Cathedral, like this, this biblical Christ-like resurrection. <laughs> My big question is why, because the Joker sends the note to meet in Gotham Cathedral, right? Mm-hmm. 
So it makes sense like that he kills him in Gothic Cathedral. It makes sense that the Joker's resurrected and the symbolism of Jesus within all that. But why did the Joker pick that as a location? That's a good question. No, I mean, you mentioned like, he's going to have, it would have made more sense to like camp out in Gotham rather than yeah. Easter Island. So at least like the climax, the Joker pulls it back to Gotham, mm-hmm. but why specifically the cathedral? Why is that significant for a reason I'm missing? Or like, are there, does the cathedral come up in other ways? Like, I just don't see, I just, what, what does that mean? Yeah, what's the Joker? Or is it that the Joker still thinks he's dying and like this is his final like subconscious reach towards something divine of if he's gonna die he wants it to be in the sacred space that's interesting yeah i don't know and we've i mean we talked about with the with the politics in gotham that it's religious structures were just used for i think what was it destruction porn or something like that um It was something like that. And then also just settings. Right. And so. Like the trainings happened for the army or something in the. Yeah, there were, yeah, some arms sales going on in no man's land, things like that. Yeah. That's what it was. So, you know, my knee jerk would be like, well, it's just a setting, (laughs) but I do feel like there is probably something significant there. I don't know if it's a central waiting point because that note just says Gotham Cathedral. That's all it says. And so I, I don't think. I can give you a, a valid answer for this of why. I mean, perhaps, I mean, if you're going to get die, then why not get as close to your maker as possible? And he's even wearing a, or someone is, is that him? Uh, an Elvis costume. Yeah. Yeah. And Elvis, ne- Elvis never died. Or that <laughs> was right. There's sightings of him all over. And, and it was, you see the Joker. I don't remember which one it is, but of, of him praying. Yeah. So there, there are these religious moments. And again, I, I assume it's just all because the Joker thinks that he's going to die and yeah. he's thinking about the afterlife. And so those things, those things are brought in. I mean, but again, in Tim Burton's Batman, like the mm. epic confrontation of Batman and I mean, is it an illusion to that? I mean, of, of the epic confrontation in his, in Batman, the first movie was at Gotham Cathedral with Kim Basinger screaming oh. so shrilly oh boy. Um, over and over. That was Gotham Cathedral too. So is, yeah. it, is it a throwback to that? It could be. I, I mean, I wouldn't put it past the the writers, but it's interesting that it's not Batman though. It's Nightwing. It, right. Yeah. Right. Which I him. wonder if was that, was the best way to upset, was Joker thinking the best way to upset Batman was to corrupt one of his most beloved and to, yeah. to get Nightwing to kill him, Joker. The, yeah. the, but it doesn't seem to work. Like Batman doesn't seem all that pissed. He's just like, well, just let him walk it off. He has to deal with it in his own way. And I'm like, your boy just did like broke your biggest yeah. rule. And you're not like Babs is upset. Thankfully, mm-hmm. but Batman is, you know, not doesn't seem to be feeling it in the way that I would expect. Yeah. And I will say if the characters apart from Nightwing aren't against him or you know shaming him nightwing as it happens in future stories or tie-ins and things is really beating himself up about it and feels like he doesn't deserve the the costume anymore and babs tries to talk to him so he's at least feeling it so if joker had his way he didn't necessarily one up batman in corrupting but i think he definitely like destroyed nightwing to a certain extent so he won a little bit but I feel like that wasn't his, was that his point all along though? So that's the whole thing of like this 
story is I feel like smaller because it's in the slab and then it gets huge and then it's like really really small like just with this the pinpointing of the the bat family with joker and everything Mm -hmm. and uh that's it I agree with you that it's chaotic and I'm trying to find the thread of you know what was his main intention his last hurrah was really big and then actually you know no I'm going to go back to original Joker and just try to tear down the Batman family or, or beat them in, in whatever way that I can. So that's, that's kind of a confusing point for yeah. me with this story. Yeah. Oh, it ends by saying, you know, you, you read it at the beginning, you know, the best way to get against the Joker is to take away his audience. Yeah. I mean, is I, that struck me, you tell me, but that struck me as a mischaracterization of what the Joker actually wants. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I never got the impression that the Joker wants an audience. I just get the impression that the Joker just wants to bring about chaos. He doesn't care who's watching. Mm. Just want like I don't know. The idea of an audience makes some things feel performative, and and the Joker is incredibly performative. But like he's going to be performative if he's on an island like by himself. Like it doesn't you know in putting him in a cell with no interest entrances or exits like. He's not going to care. Like he's still going to, he's still going to be Joker. Like it doesn't feel like you're depriving him of the thing that he most desired, which was an audience that, Mm -hmm. that didn't ring true to, to what it seems like the Joker ultimately wants to me. I feel like it depends on, uh, on the incarnation because in Lego Batman, doesn't Batman like ignore the Joker, like turn around? Well, how much weight are we giving to Lego Batman? Um, Well, it's an incarnation. I don't know. I will say that there are some, what'd you say? I said, you're right. That okay. is, that was. So I don't know. It's one of those, like if a dog is doing something bad or a, or wants attention or a child, you just like ignore them and they stop wanting attention. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, you're the Joker connoisseur. I do. I will say that there are a couple storylines where if people specifically Batgirl, Batgirl has laughed at the Joker and he does not like that. Mm. if you're laughing at him and not like uh, he made a joke i'm laughing but i'm just laughing because you're a ridiculous person he does not like that which is yeah he does was that um, specific to batgirl or has that been other characters that have brought i have character? only seen it at least in um in what i in my coverage and everything of barbara laughing okay. at him i wonder if that's specific to her or why it, if Perhaps. it is of why yeah don't laugh at me who yeah. it was that yeah. your post shooting oh let's see here one of them was well because they were wasn't and one was post one was okay 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 Hmm. so uh but yeah in regards to that you know joker does he need an audience Hmm. yeah i just i again i don't think the joker's doing it for that kind doing what he does for that kind of reason like it's not it's not that he wants her that he needs attention he's gonna i feel like he's gonna do it no matter what yeah, I mean, I think that's probably really true of this issue. I mean, even if the world weren't watching, he would have done the exact same stuff. Right. So. Right. Something. Well, actually, before I get into that, do you agree that Nightwing killed Joker? In what? In what sense? Like his heart stopped, right? That's official death. Okay. Well, how did he come back? That's what I want to know. I kept reading that over and over. I'm like, I guess they did compressions. One, two, three, four. Well, because they they mentioned yeah, because they mentioned somebody gave him mouth to mouth, right? Oh man, that poor kid. <laughs> oh yeah, who gave me mouth to mouth? Oh man. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so he does actually. Okay. Yeah. So he was he was he was gone. So it 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 counts as <sighs> as it killed him. Yeah. 
And even Dick says he was dead and I was I was happy about it. He won and the Joker won because of me. Which is true of which like is a statement, which is one of the two statements in the whole story arc that that rang the truest. The yeah. other was I wanted to read this quote. It was it was in Mad Mad World. So in number five. And a Batman says, and of course, Batman would say this because he's the best ever. He says this about Joker's mind. He says it was a billion fiery locusts blotting out a dead black sun, mm. which is just poetic and brilliant um, to describe it that way. Yeah. And again, that's Joker's mind. It's not, I don't think it's an attention hungry mind. If he wanted attention, then he would actually go for Harley, right? Like he mm-hmm. should give him more attention than anybody in the world. And he totally shuns her so like it's just his he is a billion fiery locust blotting out a dead a dead black sun. <laughs> like that's just that's really that's really intense and that's 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 all he is yeah do you feel like this apart from being a joker story is a nightwing and barbara gordon story and that it's not so much a batman story or is it a batman family story but focusing on uh dick and babs i mean the Dick and Babs almost to me have, are most important at the beginning and at the end. And then there's all the chaos in between. And then the weird Shiloh, Dinah storyline, mm-hmm. which me felt like it felt completely unnecessary and that you could have accomplished everything that yeah. happened with them without that, without that happening at all. Um, so I don't know. I think that it's not a Dick and Babs story because I see them only kind of bookending it. It's not Batman because oh, he's just not in it enough. Until is, yeah. I feel like they wanted to make it a Joker story, but mm-hmm. again, it wasn't a Joker story. It was a like every character times a million story. And if it had, if they'd wanted to make it a Joker story, make it about the Joker. Don't make it about all the Jokerized villains. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I think that they wanted it to be a Joker story. And to me, it, to me, it wasn't. And again, yeah. it doesn't advance the character of the, of, anybody to me other than dick mm-hmm. for babs for the reasons you already brought up it like brings her back yeah like, retro wait a second yeah. like, you're years you should be years beyond the, this mindset and these behaviors or or you should have been feeling this all along yeah. and you haven't like you you were doing other things yeah yeah and she's been watching him with surveillance uh in birds of prey and i can totally get that you know don't trust him surveillance but to jump to her hatred and I want him dead kind of thing was a bit of a leap for me. Yeah. I, yeah, it's definitely not a Batman story. I mean, there are several moments where I thought, I think Batman would be here. Like it takes him a while to get to the slab. Things are going on in the slab that he should have been aware of way sooner, which yeah. is just really interesting. Dinah, Black Canary is basically playing the part of Batman in the beginning because she's the the first one in there. And part of that goes to, I feel like, because Chuck Dixon is writing it. Because he's writing Birds of Prey, and Birds of Prey is Barbara and Dinah Lance, aka Black Canary. So it makes sense that yes, she would send her agent out into the field, but it just is confusing. The Justice League take a while to show up, and it's like a, a global scale issue. But where's Batman? And then all the the Bat characters are starting to trickle in with Huntress and Cass and Steph. Um, and Babs, that was an interesting issue because Cassandra and Steph, uh, which would have been spoiler is Steph and Cassandra is Batgirl. Uh, she at first says like, you're not going in there. And then she has to send them in the field because there's no one else apparently. Right. So it just shows her desperation. Right, right. 
Uh, and then Huntress, I have, I'm a Huntress apologist and people get on me for that, but I did like that she played a big part. She went to go find Robin, which that was a good mission, I think, because they worked together before. And then just the fight between her and Croc, I think showed her prowess. And then she actually fought alongside Batman because he's not very kind to her. So there were some good things there. Okay. Okay. Um, here's a question for you. I've often wondered whether Joker was is asexual, as in he has no sexual desires or feelings. I don't think I've talked about this with you. You've I mentioned mean, that, but nothing more than I remember you said that to me. Okay, so I don't like give evidence or anything. But so we know in one of these issues, I can't remember which one it was, it might be four or whatever, he's going after Harley. And it seems mainly he just wants a legacy. There's no like romantic feelings whatsoever. And we know that Harley has had romantic and sexual feelings towards him, but I always felt like Joker, there's not much of a need for him. So I wonder what your perception from the different incarnations that you've watched are of Joker and his sexuality. Um, and is there anything deeper with what he wants from Harley? I mean, besides the legacy. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Harley would be an easy one, right? Like she's yeah. so ready. She's so excited. <laughs> um, she's, she, she is there and he doesn't. And I wonder if it's, I don't know. He completely rejects. He doesn't just reject her. He like denigrates her. Yeah. Like he, it, it's not just that I don't like you. It's like he, it, it is a full on rejection. And so I wonder what that is. Like, why does she, why is she so, why is she so beneath him? I don't, and, and, when she is in some ways such a female version of what the Joker is. Mm. I mean, in, 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 I mean, she, she was created by him in a sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you would think if anything, like her almost as a protege, he would be, he would be really, he would be flattered. Yeah. Uh, but, but he's not. Anyway, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of giving evidence to, to that. Like he should want her in all the ways and he doesn't. Yeah. And in all the, you know, with, did you, you didn't see Joker, Joaquin Phoenix, right? I did not. Like refusing. Um, like there's, there is, you know, he, he desires a character and has a sexual relationship with her in the film, sort of, but at least you see him desiring it. But you, okay. with, with Heath Ledger in the Dark Knight trilogy, you don't, you don't see any of that at all. That doesn't mm -hmm. play, that doesn't play a role. So, you know, one, one film version does, one film version doesn't. So if we're excluding the Walking Phoenix version, which I think you would be happy doing, um, <laughs> then then yeah, I can completely see. I there's not there. I, the only person I see him having affection for is Batman. I mean, I, is it like preschool or kindergarten when like I really like you and I'm going to be mean to you? And so like <laughs> the fact that the Joker just tries to kill him all the time means that he cares for him that much. Because mm -hmm. you don't see him doing that with anybody else. I mean, is that the way that he shows affection? Yeah, I don't know. I wonder, I think about Mariko Shaper, our friend, Shaper Doctor, and her interpretation of cats. She says that cat, not the musical, cats, the animal. She says that cats are like hot girls, <laughs> where if you pay them attention, they don't like it and they're mean to you. But if you ignore them, they, they want to be with you at all times. And so I wonder if that's like... <laughs> joker with harley that she's it's just too much if she were to just leave him alone and and ignore him maybe he would have some sort of and it's true that when he when she runs away from him or is absent from him he wants to get her back yeah so yeah 
Yeah. Well, what else do you think for your asexual theory? Where where else does that come from? I guess a lot. I, I look at the animated series with some of those episodes and just she's always hanging all over him or has like a sexy dance and a cake and for his birthday. I can't remember. And just like no reaction whatsoever. But at the same, you know, I'm looking at, well, yeah, you didn't see Suicide Squad. So he seems more sexual, I think, than Heath Ledger's obviously and I haven't seen the Joaquin version so I wouldn't be able to say but there's clearly I think a a sexual attraction between him and Harley in Suicide Squad and and I think that he I guess I don't even (laughs) try not to be crass uh I think that there's probably a physical relationship there yeah yeah I don't know I just feel like that's not he doesn't need it he doesn't need it it's not something that he necessarily pursues whether it's Harley or anyone Mm-hmm. yeah i mean it is I that can't. is that just a result of him being the joker like or is that <laughs> interesting yeah yeah because because what you know which backstory are we going to take when he yeah. actually has a family or when he doesn't you know is that has that always been part of who he is or is that something that came as a result of his insanity which is not real insanity again right mm-hmm. like you can't no you're not you can't be that insane and that smart at the same time. So that's another reason why that the Joker so fascinates me because like, that's just not real, right? Like the Hannibal electors of the world don't, at least for the most part, like don't seem to actually exist or you can't be as reckless as the Joker is, but it's almost never reckless. It's always this like Machiavellian scheme. That's just amazing. But yeah, he's supposed to be crazy. Like it, it's such an unbelievable character that you just, you never know what's going to happen with it. Yeah. And it's such a versatile character to do so many things. And he's not just a character that lends insight to other people. Like he himself has just has these layers. I mean, the fact that we're talking about if he's asexual and debating it, like is there's, there's so much that's there. Yeah. Yep. Let's see here. I think I'm winding down in my questions. I will agree with you that, the slab stuff with Shiloh and Dina, mm-hmm. I think, goes on for entirely too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand, I guess, probably the writers wanted those characters to keep popping up so we wouldn't forget about them. But you could have either not had them or, and had some heroes doing the same thing or, I don't know, just had them at the, the very end. But it yeah. certainly wasn't. I wasn't grabbed by that. Yeah. Uh, the ending here, we have Barbara deleting the logs. Deleting, I assume, the current video feed as well, and then rolling away. And I think she's got, well, there's narration. I can't remember if she's narrating or if it's somebody else. It might be Shiloh. I've decided to, yeah, I think it might be Shiloh. Uh, so it says, except for a monitor in my office, nobody but the computers watch him now. And as well as being tireless and vigilant, they're pretty humorless. Because without an audience, he's powerless. He can't have the last word or the last laugh, right? right. And so she rolls away. Um, head down. Head down, yeah. So I just wonder, do you think that he did have the last word or the last laugh with what happened? Well, it, it just depends what he wants. I mean, did he want to... I mean, the fact that her head is down yeah. like shows she hasn't left it behind. She deleted it, but she hasn't deleted it, right? Yeah. And this, and, and like, this is not... Barbara Gordon, right? <laughs> right? Like, tell me this. I, just the fact that she deletes it, like, is this great and this heroic thing? And again, like, oh, character development. And then her head is down. Yeah. I mean, she she's upset. I, I don't know. 
it, it the fact that it ends with her head down means it's not over and the fact that it ends with right means it's it's certainly not over so in yeah. a way the joker in a way the joker did win like he's made this permanent imprint on babs and she'll never recover apparently and night he got nightwing to kill him right he yeah. made the killer and so if the, if the joker still wants to harm the batman family like he's he's done it like he's ruined babs's life he's he's affected it in a way that's difficult forever i put it that way mm-hmm. and he, from what you're saying he's ruined nightwing forever right like dick mm-hmm. is is not he's not the same either you know i don't know he's 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 like frank underwood and that he infects every person that nice. that he's around in this yeah. way yeah so i feel like he did have yeah that question mark right like there's that question do you think did he or did he not and it seems like he did have the last laugh potentially her deleting it is maybe her trying to wrest back control of her life and not be so consumed with watching him. So I think that's a positive thing. But the head down means that even though I've done this, he has, just like you're saying, he has irrevocably changed me. He has affected Nightwing as well. So it's it's positives and negatives, I think, with this last page. Mm. Oh, well, let's see if I have any more questions. Where does the Joker storyline go from here? does he does he escape from the slab again is does he go back to arkham like what yeah i could not say yeah because now he's on an ice flow yeah i don't know in my in my current history of where i am so i'll have to get back to you on that one i'm sure someone will write in and be like the joker's gonna do da 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 yeah just because i wonder i mean if this was meant to be the last laugh yeah you know and nothing's ever the last in comics like what's what's what comes next for him? Yeah. For I also sure. want to ask, what did you think about the art? And and was there were there issues or covers that really stood out to you of capturing certain things? Yeah, uh, I do. I, I hear what you thought. Oh, yeah. So definitely, uh, I agree. I like consistency within a storyline or an arc. I did like issue two just because Marcos Martin, I'm a big fan of. Now I'm just going through the different covers to see. Yeah what they're all like um yeah there's some chaos i could actually do a little share screen here oh great and show the different covers so this one's two we good so already with the chaos here yeah and i love this because like look at joker's face in a lot of portrayals of the joker he gets such a silly face yeah this this is not this is like diabolical intent like like i'm scared of this joker and i love the suit like that's such a classic thing with him like all his like you know muscle shirts and all the weird things he was wearing like just was silly joker and to me that's not fully who he is like the joker is and that's that's one of the good things i liked about the killing joke like dark scary like Mm. terrified of him in a room joker like that that cover gets it um what's the first one i think is by brian boland of him uh throwing up the dc logo yeah like a like a bouncing ball Uh uh-huh i mean i feel like that's classic joker yeah this one will really kill you yeah brian boland so he's of course the one who was the artist for the killing joke yeah yeah and that's and and again that's that's a great one this one's a good mix of like silly joker and like i'm very i'm very scared of you yeah but looking at this i would say that the tone is going to be serious and dark and there's not going to be any phone it's not yeah yeah how do you well as a if you were to read more comics i'll say it that way what would be 
your desire for covers? Would you like covers to telegraph more or less what's about to happen in the issue? With mystery, of course, but at least to not be, not lie to you. Or would you like it to be like the first one where it just shows the Joker, but it's not really telling you anything of what's inside? Do you have a preference for either? Yeah, like I want the cover to hit what the tone of the story is. And that's similar. And I'm the, and I'm the same with book covers too, especially like for a novel. Like I don't need to know from a cover what's going to happen in the plot. Like mm-hmm. I, I, that, I'm going to read the book for that or I'm going to read <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to put a blurb on the back, the, the sure. tone, but like, I want something that arrests me and that like, like the one that's up right now, like, yeah. like, like that's silly, like whatever. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't, need to know, men. yeah, yeah. Like I don't need to know those things. That's fine. But like capture, like capture the tone, capture what this, I don't know what the essence of this is. And that's one thing about movie trailers that I love too. Like I love movie trailers that are like a single scene in a deep dive into this moment so that like, oh, I know like the tone of what's going to happen rather than like, I can watch this and I feel like I've literally seen the whole movie. Mm. I, I, I don't, I don't like that. I think that's a cheap way to, I don't know, to draw, to draw people in. Yeah. To, to, to overplay your hand and meaning and reveal just too much. Here's this guy mm. comes at a good time in our nation's history. I love yeah. this country. Yeah. And, and this one, oh man, we could talk about this one, you know, forever. Like, it's, it's sort of like coronavirus, right? Like, we, like the Joker couldn't do what's happening anywhere else in the world, but in the United States, you know, COVID yeah. not going to be, COVID is able to do what it's doing because of problems within the United States. Yeah. Okay, can I say that? Well, you just did, so. Uh, I said it. <laughs> Another question as we continue, I only have two left, I think. The guy who lied about the scans, besides that being an ethical issue, and it potentially costing lives. I don't know what the body count is on this story, but right. with the Joker, I mean, people have died. Do you, what should be the, what should happen to that man? Do you think? Well, it seems like he's already done it to himself. Whatever, whatever should happen to him. He already seems like a shell of a person. I mean, mm. he was unkempt and depressed and drinking and like he, it seems like he got the weight of it. Um, it also seems like, like his intentions were good. I mean, he wanted to calm the Joker down <laughs> by doing this, right? Yeah. Like, and if all of these other things that they're doing don't work, like, like, why not try that? So, you know, his action had all these unintended consequences, but at the same time, like it was a good idea for, for what it was that he wanted to accomplish. Yeah. It's interesting, but it had the, wow. I guess, I guess that makes sense that someone would think if they're on, their last leg that uh, they would try, you know, they would confess their sins and and try to restart whatever last moments that they have and on, on a good foot, but it just went the other way where, yeah, you might just go balls to the wall and bucket list. And that's what Joker did. I show me these covers now that I'm seeing them all at one, at one point, like, Oh my goodness. To me, like very clearly, like part one and part two are the superior covers. Um, I do like this one that it's kind of a a nod to Gene Kelly and Dancing in the Rain. Yeah, that's fun. But that's, 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 again, that's more like silly Joker, but that, that is a, that is a cool illusion. And then our last one, which is a bit of a, I would say a, um, a lie to us. 
Yeah, yeah. See, absolutely. Not even real. That's like the that's like movie trailers that put in like a clip or a scene that's not even actually in the movie. And yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, the first two, the first two are I think are amazing, especially the first one part in in stir crazy i think is the best cover but that's not actually capturing the tone of what happens mm-hmm. but in in part two in siege mentality it's the best cover that actually captures what's going on yeah and it, but it doesn't it doesn't get silly and i love that it's an aerial an aerial shot mm-hmm. so the first one again i think is the best but it's not it's not faithful to what the series actually is but the second one is 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 really good and actually captures the tone how would this issue six, how would this one have changed if it were Nightwing in the place of Batman? Then then that would be it because the Joker actually did win. But again, though, if if the Joker's goal is to really, you know, like to get at Batman in the deepest way by getting at those that he cares about. Yeah. Then, and, and, if, and if Dick was one of those, and of course Dick is, then, then in that sense, he won. Mm-hmm. I guess with if they had put Nightwing in here, though, that would have been such a shocker because you expect Batman and Joker to be paired up together. Right. So right. it would have gone against, I guess, mainline thinking or, you know, status quo to have Nightwing there. And I think that would have been really interesting, potentially. Yeah. yeah. I think those are all the questions that I have if I were to scan through. Mm. Do you have anything else you would like to talk about with this story? No, I'm glad we got I'm glad we got to the covers. Oh, one other thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one thing. So the the military is insanely stereotyped in <laughs> in this. And one I wonder how consistent that is with other comics. But the line that stood out to me was when the guy said, the general or whoever, we weather it, then we look for someone to shoot. I mean, it like the military is just a prop to to further the plot. Like is that and, you know, they, they, but yeah. at the same time, they're like, you know, we don't like these superhero civilians, even mm-hmm. though, of course, they're all the ones like doing the real work. Is the military used that way that often? Do we, or do we ever get some depth? I don't think so. I think I'd probably have to talk to or read some more Superman, which you don't read, mm. but with General Lane being the father of Lois, I think that might be the only time there might be some depth. But in another segment, of this show there's a story with Batgirl and three characters are used to uh, test out this weird scientific ray where it puts them in the simulation and then they have to decide to murder and it's it like tracks how long it takes and they had a priest and I think it took him an hour or something to decide to murder and I thought Jerkins what would you decide to do that a soldier, I think, took like a matter of minutes, which makes sense. And then a back row, I think, was like a, a moment. So there there was just like another stereotype of killing is right there. It's second nature. It only took that guy a couple minutes to come up with a scenario that made it okay for him to kill. Yeah. So as far as my experience with any military presence, it is pretty like stereotypical okay. like this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Unless you're reading something like the NOM from Marvel Comics. That's something completely different, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, how should we rate it out of 10 jokers? Ooh, and 10 jokers being like if it's 10 out of 10 jokers that means that this is an amazing story, it's perfect, there's nothing wrong with it. Oh man. So out of how many out of 10 jokers, what would you give Joker's have, last laugh? Do you have your number? Do I have my number? 
No, yeah. do you want me to go first? Well, I think let's say them at the same time. Oh I, no, because I don't want to. I don't want us to influence each other. But I'm trying to. I'm trying to decide on my on my number. Yeah, I think I got it. All right, we'll we'll say one, two, three, and we'll say it. Okay. Okay. One, two, three, six and four. a half. <laughs> okay, okay. So you said four. So would you like to just like as a roundup of all the reasons going into that four? It just, it just doesn't, it doesn't deliver. It does too much. I don't feel it's fully faithful to Joker. And, and now <laughs> you that you, you are an apologist. Now that you show me these covers, like I'm really mad at that first cover that was mm. so good, but it wasn't, that's not what it was. Uh, but six and a half. Okay. I gave it a six and a half. Um, I think a lot of this works only because it's uh, Chuck Dixon's just with the characters and the Barbara Gordon focus and everything. But I will say that a lot of it doesn't work because it's Dixon, namely that it's not the best that I've ever read. I don't think it's, 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 it's just not that good. I, I agree with you. It's just too chaotic. It's too big, I think, for a Joker storyline. But there are some great art pieces. Mm-hmm. I think some of the the Barbara and Dick interactions are interesting even if they're not characterized well and then just some of the team members like Huntress I think was was dealt with well so there are some positives but it's yeah it's not the best uh story that I've ever read yeah. so six and a half you know giving it a an f plus uh, okay how about we we can average it and say a, a tipping towards the positive side of five okay that sounds fine. Yeah. Which like, man, is upsetting. I was ready to yeah. like be blown away. And there just felt like there were so many moments when they could have they could have dove so deep into so many discussions of so many things and they don't. And they just cut it short for plot. Yeah. We're bringing another 15 characters. Yeah. It was interesting. I mean, it's, I guess it's schizophrenic almost in a way of like just trying to figure out what was his mission. You know, he's got this one thing going with Harley. He's got these minions doing one thing. Now he's in the cathedral and this is his ultimate thing. Yeah. So it's just narrowing down maybe, maybe six issues was too much. Maybe it could have been done in three or four and then really narrowed down his focus, taking out the slab situation. Oh, maybe only have him stay in the slab. I think making it smaller would have been the way to go. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Oh boy. So. Mm. Well, thank you for being on here for this. I do. I apologize to him before we started recording, but I felt bad once we, once I started reading it. Cause I thought, Oh man, I've just thrown all these characters at him, but you did well. No, it was a good, it was a crash course of like, <laughs> I had to look up what is black mass in particular <laughs> that I had to think like, is this a racist character? Or oh, not? interesting. Because I, I had to pause when, well, when I heard his name and then I saw him, I was like, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. What'd you fall <laughs> down on, on that? I, I, well, I, I hadn't thought anything. And then, and then as I told you, I read the secret files or whatever. Yeah. And so I read his little blip and, and got to see a little more after I'd read everything. And that made me feel a little better to hear, like he was humanized and like there was a backstory and, okay. and, that, and that makes sense. But, you know, having, having black mass be, be this overweight black man was felt, felt, felt simple at first. Yeah. But, yeah, I guess we didn't really talk about the slab scenes. Do you think that those were dealt with well, or do you think that was sort of stereotypical of prison scenes that we've seen in movies and things? Did you ever see Face Off? 
<clears throat> the oh, Nick Cage years ago. Movie. I do know what you're talking about, but yeah, and they were in. So instead of collars, they had the boots. Oh, okay. And the, the the magnetized boots, and whenever there was a like a potential jail outbreak, like all the boots would magnetize onto the ground. And except for this one, it was collars. And so I, it if you're gonna make like an, I don't know if there's a deep way to do like a a prison scene with those kinds of characters unless you're just going to dive so deep into one person, which, mm. which they just, they just don't do. I don't know the military and the prison so yeah. much of it felt stereotyped and, and that different, different things were a way to move the plot along so that so many people could be in. Yeah. And I'm, I got introduced to a ton of stuff, right? Like all of these, all of these people that, that now like, wow, there's a lot of reading that I need to do. <laughs> so it, it I don't is, know if you need it, to do it. Well, it at least piqued my interest in seeing like there was there's there was a lot happening. There is a lot to this world, always yeah. more than I ever expect. But yeah, I don't know if I'm reading if I'm reading a Batman story. A, I want it to be about Batman, and this wasn't. And B, I want it to be about Joker, and this wasn't really about <laughs> Joker. And so yeah. I was I was I was upset, but yet it showed me the world around those people that I don't know as well, and that was important. Do you think this would work in 2020? Do you think that it it's a timeless story and that it could be in any era? Mm. And part of the reason I was asking about the prison stuff, because I just wonder I, now yeah, that I, we're understanding, I think a bit more about actually there's a lot of problems going on in our prison system, right. and the criminal justice system. Uh, and that's uh, what I thought about too. Yeah, the, the prison scenes I think would be problematic. Like I wonder if there's conversation about black mass. I wonder if there's conversation about the scenes between Babs and Dick and just some of the, I don't know, just some of the gender roles that they fall into in, in their portrayals um, and in their interactions, especially at the beginning. Um, I think that there would be more commentary. I think there'd be more commentary on that now. I mean, I was disheartened to hear, um, so ta Coates, you know, wrote Between the World and Me. And last night, they two nights ago they hbo premiered a documentary version of his book between the world and me they made it into a play for the stage and then they did in august of this year they filmed a version of it and it was incredible we, we literally got an hbo max free trial just to watch <laughs> just that. for that yeah literally just to watch the premiere um at well, i thought you had hbo time. before because weren't you watching um well, we had access to a friend, but it didn't oh, okay. go max. Okay, because, and, and that that upset me. So okay. we have it for we have it for five more days. Sure. Anyway, I mentioned that because in that at one point, so so between the world and me came out in 2015, and Coates, the author, says in 2020, like you know, man, my words would be different now. And and like if Tanahasi Coates and what he wrote in 2015 is if, if he's saying he would be saying something different now with what he said when what he said in 2015 with that book was was you know, shocking and incredible, how much more with something like this I think would change. It's also interesting that it came out December January of 2001 2002 right I mean right after 9 11 yeah so like like. That was that was a different world. I think there'd be a lot. I think there'd be a lot for people to say about it, especially after Dark Knight trilogy and that Joker and Joaquin Phoenix Joker. Like those have, I think, changed people's conception of what the of what Joker should be. Joker in the Last Laugh is too silly, I think, for for 2020. That I think that would be my summary statement. I would agree. And as far as I know, with what people have been doing with Joker now, he's not been in this situation. 
since then. I mean, they've all been serious storylines, what I've yeah. read and what I know about. So. That, that sounds, that sounds fitting. Yeah. So, okay. Well, we have reached the end. Okay. And you've been pretty prolific on the Instagram. I know that you have been doing some, I don't know, would you consider it social justice kind of thing, civil rights interviews and things like that? And you've also been reading lots yeah. of books. Do you want to talk about what you've been doing and where people can find you and read your things and uh, your interviews and stuff? Sure. So for for the past year and a half, I've been writing articles on the website Medium and putting them out there. And the first, and I've, I've done one about every other, every two weeks. And, and the first bit of those were just processing and responding to thinking about about race and my history with that and our, our land's history, literally the soil that we live on. And a lot of that was prompted after, because we live in Charlottesville, Virginia, our family does. And it was prompted after our involvement with the counter protests in August 12th of 2017, which were less than a mile from our house. And, and, and we were there. And so I wrote through a lot of that. And so a lot of the articles that are out there were processing that. And then more recently, it's shifted into, like you were talking about, some some interviews with individuals, with some people local in Charlottesville, with, Zy- with Zion Bryant, Wes Bellamy, and there are some others that are about to come out soon. Um, and I've gotten a lot more excited about and interested in, like, who are individuals out there who are doing the work? Um, now that, like, I don't know, I have a sense of, I think, like, I, I feel like I have my bearings of what's happening and what this moment is. Now I'm really looking at, who, who is it out there that's speaking of these things in ways that are provocative and helpful? And can I, can I hear from them and can I engage them? And can I, can I hear from their voice and can I put it out there? Um, so I've really, really dug into some of the interviews. Um, so a lot of those have gone out on Medium. Um, so if you look up my name, Sam Heath, H-E-A-T-H, on Medium, you can find, you can find everything that's there. And then Instagram and Twitter is at Sam Allen Heath. S-A-M-A-L-A-N-H-E-A-T-H. So everything's put out um, there too. And then there've been some recent pieces that have only come out in a couple Charlottesville magazines that haven't come up on on Medium. Um, And that's been exciting too. So I'm starting to look for some other places of of publishing other than just the stuff on Medium. And that's been been an adventure. Um, So but the holidays- Do you think it's time for a book? It's time for a book when I don't have- three kids under five years old <laughs> or under six and, 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 you know, and teaching and all those things. Yeah. I don't know. I I've, I've thought about, I love a deep dive for a very quick season into a person or a conversation. Like my favorite thing have been these interviews of sitting with someone for one or two hours and, and asking them a convert and asking them specific things. And then going back through that transcript and finding like, a thread of themes of what they've said. You know, so like Zana Bryant. So she's a second year at UVA. She was in, she was the, she was a freshman in high school when she started a petition in Charlottesville to have the start, the statue of Robert E. Lee removed. And she was the person who made that a public thing. And eventually it came before the city council and Wes Bellamy, who was our vice mayor, was the person who really gave the press conference in 2016 and publicly called for it. And then all the domino effect to everything in 2017 and up to now. But Zana Bryant in high school was the person who really got a lot of that started just by this petition that she made and this letter to the editor that she wrote. And she's now a second year at UVA. And so I interviewed her and and it took a while to kind of, 
I don't know, track her down and, 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 and see if she'd want to talk with me. But it was a, it was about an hour conversation, but just in that hour conversation came this theme that she went back to a lot and, and she didn't even mean to, I don't think of space and just how she moves in certain spaces and how she acts in certain spaces and just, I, there, there was one way I put an article of like, she speaks about space in the way that a dancer or an architect does. Like she just has the spatial awareness of her in a space, the work within a space and just like in, in and I, I hadn't read that about her yet. It came out in that conversation. So it's moments like that in these interviews that have been really exciting. Cause I, cause I don't want to just ask something that they've been asked before. So I try really hard to read as much as I can or look at as much as I can about that person to find out, okay, like what's, what's a deep dive into something that, 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 that hasn't come up. Um, and those have been some of, some of the great conversations. And soon uh, um, an interview I did with Don Gathers is going to come out and he is one of the co-founders of the Charlottesville chapter of the Black Lives Matter uh, organization here in town. And so he has, he, he has a lot to say. Uh, about things that have gone on. And we had a great conversation on that back porch, you know, maybe one of the last ones before it gets too cold um, to talk about those things. So a lot of them has shifted into interviews with individuals of voices that I've either respected or been really curious about and wanted to engage and and amplify and, and put out there for others to see. Do you feel like the people that you've talked to, have they had or spoken with a sense of hope? that even though we're in these bad times, do they, do they speak of the future with positive thoughts or, cause that's one of the things that I had trouble with Coates and between the world and me is that it wasn't uh, very hopeful. And, and I sort of gravitate towards Kendi cause I, I feel like while he recognizes there are issues, he has hope that, you know, we can still, we can move past and we're, we're, we're trying to get better, however hard that may be. But what, what, with these interviews you've spoken of, what do you see? Mm. So it's, it's, it's interesting that Coates is openly an atheist and he'll even say in, in one of his essays and we were eight years in power that he recognizes that religion offers something hopeful that he doesn't have access to because he's not religious. And he even says in the essay, like I'm his, his, the best he can do is just scream at the waves. And what does screaming at the waves do? It doesn't do anything. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything in the sense that it doesn't change the waves. It changes him, but it doesn't, it doesn't change the actual situation. And that, that's pretty, that's pretty hopeless, right? And that's a I think that's a good critique of Coates. But it's like Coates is a is a diagnostician, right? Like he's the, he's one of the best voices who can diagnose what the problem is. He's not gonna give a treatment plan though, because he doesn't fully have one. Kendi, though, does a great job actually giving a treatment plan. But Kendi also not being really religious. Yeah, I've noticed he, that. Yep. Yeah. His is completely focused on policy mm. excessively. And so yeah. I think I think Kendi misses half the problem and that Kendi dis I think it's fair to say this. Kendi almost dismisses people. Mm. He's racism largely as this institutional thing. Therefore we change policy. Even if racism is individual, and of course Kendi thinks it is, he's going to bypass that individual personal aspect of it to go for the bigger thing of the policy. Yeah. Now, the, the people that I've talked to, especially Don Gathers, Wes Bellamy, and Zion O'Brien, all are openly religious. Specifically, they're all openly Christians. Two of the interviews ended with, with us praying together, which was wild. Like, so all three of them are, they were hopeful in different ways. Like Don Gathers was hopeful that the city of Charlottesville has potential to really confront itself for what it is and grow. 
Uh, Wes Bellamy just started his political action group with uh, Mayor Candace Hollingworth, a mayor in Maryland. They started Our Black Party, literally another political party to say to particularly black people in the Democratic Party, like you don't have to vote Democrat. Like there, there is another option and they formed this party to do that. And that's what a large part of our interview was about. And so he's, he's certainly hopeful because he's starting a group to try and do some of that work. And Zion is hopeful in the sense like she's on the streets doing the organizing work even though she's not entirely sure, as she said in, in the interview with me, she's not entirely sure that we can really change this system that's there, but she's mm-hmm. still willing to try because she cares about people. But all three of those people recognize we've got to change policy and we've got to change people. And we've got to have an approach that, that, that honors both of those things. And, and Coates and Kendi, well, well, Kendi airs on one side of those. Kind of, kind of too heavily, and and just I've 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 pulled from Kendi so much that is helpful, but I've really gravitated towards those voices that have just become more holistic. And 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 James Baldwin is one of those. He was huge in addressing people. Like you sat with him, and you were the only I'm, you were the only person in the world in front of him. But yet he also is giving speeches and writing and working to change policy and sitting down with Bobby Kennedy and organizing groups of people like. He, he did both of those things. Um, so I've, I've been drawn to people and voices who, who recognize that we've got to have that, that two-pronged approach. And I don't, by, by addressing people, I don't mean convincing white people to change. I'm, I'm, I'm over that at this point. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, want to, I want to empathize, like, and I want to sure. care for people. But like, like my work and, and my writing isn't about convincing people anymore. It's, and, 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 and maybe it used to be. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's good. Part of it is I think like if someone's not convinced at this point with where we are, then like, oh my goodness, like then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to get you there. But I want to articulate something or I want to bring a voice to the table of someone who is articulating something that is recognizing we've got to address both people and policy. And both of those are not often enough coming up together. Mm. Do you get uh, feedback still? Because I remember you told me there were a couple articles that you got some negative feedback, but in a way, if you get any feedback, doesn't that mean that you're reaching people? Yeah. Um, there's feed, there's feedback often. Okay. Um, there's feedback often. Yeah. Both positive and, and negative, both in person and digital. <laughs> yes. Like the article, the article that I titled, I killed George Floyd. Yes. <laughs> the, the, one of the comment, the shortest comment that I got on it was, uh, well, then you should turn yourself in. <laughs> and I actually had a person at work say that to me in person as well. Oh, interesting. And in, in a very cheeky way, thinking it was it was a unique comment. And of course it wasn't because it also was online and yeah. to say. What if there, it was Leslie Miller, that uh, the boss lady? What if she's the one who wrote that comment? Oh, Leslie would. <laughs> Leslie would so much more substantive than that. No, there's feedback all the time. And I appreciate it. And like, I... I, I welcome it. I'm not going to engage all of it. I'm certainly not going to, you know, get into a Facebook debate with somebody, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to AOC it and, you know, try to whip out the one-liners on social media. Um, like if, if you want to engage me, I'm happy to like sit down with that with you or, or like do that through an email. I don't, I don't like the public spats on, sure. on social media kind of thing. It just doesn't often go there. Like I, I, I heard Coates say, and I respect this. And when he said this, I was like, yes. He said, like, his writing isn't really to convince people. 
he's wanting to articulate something. He's wanting to articulate what he, what, the truth as he sees it. And I thought, that's absolutely it. I don't think I always felt that. I think I was trying to convince people. And I've really shied away from that, that now. I've also tried to really be mindful of who my audience is and who I'm trying to speak to and speak for. And I think I can speak for, I don't know, I, can, I think I can speak for Southern people and, and, and I can speak for white people. I can speak for males because those are things that I know. I, can, I think I can speak to people of color, but I don't think it's my job to speak for them. I, I don't at all. That's part of why I want to interview and engage people of color because uh, I want to hear their voices and I want to get those out there more. So when Coates said that he's wanting to articulate something more so than convince people, that that rang incredibly true. And when Baldwin, when James Baldwin says like he's here to bear witness to something, that rings deeply true within me as as a writer and i think it's been more of why i've moved more and more towards these interviews of there is there's something that's happening that in 50 years we will look back on and recognize as a moment but yet even in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s they still called it the movement they knew that it was a movement they knew that it was a moment they knew that it was something and i and i and i want to bear witness to this and i want to talk with those who are who are out there doing the work and try to chronicle some of these things that are happening that's great yeah and i will say i'm going to throw you under the bus here we've got a reading challenge and you've not participated what's going on with that can you explain but i know you're reading cuz he posts on the instagram i've been reading i just haven't put him in December 1st uh, is the deadline. Oh goodness. No, I've absolutely been reading. Yeah, I put up every I put up every book that I read on on Instagram and I've done that yeah. for a lot of years. So I I need to I need to put them in. <sighs> yeah. I, I mean right now it's just Al and I working against each other. Oh goodness. Well, there's there's a lot that I there's a lot that I can put in. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for taking time out of your busy dad schedule. <laughs> I know you're not working this week because you're off, but it was it was fun to talk about this not great storyline with yeah. you. I had fun doing it. Yeah, which like, and please let us credit Joker. He's so great. <laughs> let's credit him. Okay. And even with a bad story, look at uh -huh. what a great conversation he can provoke. Sure. Well, congrats to you on 11 years, yeah, 200 wait. episodes. All, all the celebrations to you. Yeah. Someone, one of my guests, Welcome. actually, when I asked him if he wanted to come on, he said, are you, 200 episodes? Is there really that much to talk about? And I said, yes, sir. There really is. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. And here's for 200 more. I don't know. I don't know. I hope I kind of hope not, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Well, uh, when I come back, I'm going to be reviewing Birds of Prey 36 through 38 with the former DC editor and creator of Birds of Prey, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, aka Gorf. But now it is Zias's Radio Hour featuring Long Run by Deacon featuring Nina or Nina Nesbitt. See you guys soon. <music> So fast, crashing around my room. I tried so hard to keep on low, but now you're taking me so high. I can't even see the ground. I'm all good, but if I'm gonna jump, I need to know you'll catch me if I fall. And will you take the bad along with the good? Will you take the worst times? Cause I know I would. I never let you. 
Welcome back. I'm super excited to have this gentleman on. He was the editor and creator for DC Comics for nearly a decade. Yeah, I know. It's you. It's you. Most importantly, an editor and the creator for Birds of Prey. Uh, he was editor from 96 to 99. And he may have done a little something for a small event that no one remembers called No Man's Land. <laughs> He's also a music and video producer, founding superfellow of Jewish Impact Films and developer, look at that guy, of Avalanche Comics Entertainment. Please welcome to the show, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, or Gorf. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. I've been binging your podcast oh, for oh, the last no. week, and oh, I have to gosh. admit I've been listening to it on two times speed. So it's nice to hear you not that's sounding fine. like Minnie Mouse. That's fine. I know someone else who does that as well. So that's great. I actually, I thought, oh, that poor guy. I hope he doesn't actually, but I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I did all the No Man's Land episodes oh, back to back gosh. to back. Whew. That yeah. was an event. I was event fatigued doing it on my podcast. So I can't I imagine what it was like so, for you. I was so blown away, first of all, that you would spend that much time on something that I worked on, <laughs> that anybody would, not just you. Uh, but second of all, I learned a lot 
uh, it was really informative and insightful and extremely erudite. And my, if I may just give a little, you know, because you, you can't be too serious over here. Give a little, you know, uh, in the ribs. Sure. My favorite part of the whole thing was when you got to No Man's Land number zero and you read the credit box. And uh, forgive me, I don't remember people's names. They were wonderful, all of your guests. <laughs> all guys, too. Where are the women? But anyway, uh, and uh, you read the credit box and uh, he said, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, who's that? <laughs> and, and another guy said something like, I don't know. I, it was an editor or something oh, <laughs> and, I'm gosh. and i'm thinking okay that just puts me right into uh you know the right context <laughs> i shouldn't 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 get too starstruck over your own accomplishments i think i'm hoping that it was a was it a joke could you tell by my tone like it was a joke because i would have known that you were associated with birds of prey so i hope oh, i wasn't know, being serious i don't know but the fact that you deflated me so effectively <laughs> oh, was no was so awesome i aye, loved aye, it aye. and i i <laughs> it, it was just great okay. so the whole the whole thing was wonderful the, the idea behind your podcast is wonderful and before we begin because you gave a wonderful introduction to me which i appreciate this is your 200th episode it is that's a remarkable achievement and i i meant to bring something of uh uh, 18 and older vintage to drink. Instead, I only brought tea. So you'll have to pretend that this is beer. Sure. It is an A. Oh, it's an A and W mug. That's yeah. Yeah, it's not root alcoholic. Beer, yeah. But anyway, root beer. Yeah, it's yeah. from from uh, Wild Rose, Wisconsin, or uh, close to Wild Rose, Wisconsin. Population 781. Anyway, tell me a little bit about yourself. Use this as an opportunity to reintroduce yourself and where you are in life to your own listeners. And by extension, I look forward to hearing about you as well. <laughs> yes, it's where we're meeting for the first time. Yeah, so this show came about, which is ironic because Barbara Gordon started off as a joke as well, just putting on that background costume. It came out as a bit of a joke that, oh, I should start my own podcast. What's it going to be? And then once I sat down and thought about it, I thought, you know what, a Barbara Gordon podcast wouldn't be so bad. And so I had a lot of fun. It, it's my podcast is mostly about because those episodes that you listen to didn't really have as much. Uh, I guess I did do new issues as well, but tracing Barbara Gordon's start from the very beginning and then also seeing what she was doing currently. And so to just Should look we at... reenact that first cover? I don't know if I've got the right <laughs> angle. Can I get my leg up high enough in my ripped stockings? Man, get a load of those gams. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been great to to trace her characterization through the different eras. Obviously, you know, the Silver Age is somewhat problematic. And then see what happened to her during the killing joke. And then see Ostrander take a hold of her. See what you guys did, you and, and Chuck with Birds of Prey. And yeah. then current the current stuff is Kim Yale by the way yes absolutely yes mustn't forget Kim Yale and the modern stuff right now is not the best so it's great to to stay in the vintage but for me yeah it's been it's a been a passion project it's something that I continue to come back to every month however busy my life may be Uh, for the past 10 years I've been teaching Latin and then I'm switching careers Uh, I hope to teach overseas next year so I took kind of a gap year I'm actually working at an oncology clinic right now. And yeah, so that's basically it. So she's she's been my girl and has been with me through thick and thin. And I've learned so much. And I feel like I've grown as a person too and have learned empathy and, and learned about different people and everything. So that's kind of what my podcast is about, a learning experience for me and then for listeners as well. That's a great story. 
And your podcast is also part of a network or at least an affiliation with other podcasts. How does that work? Yeah, the Batman Universe.net. So originally I was alone and then Dustin found me, my editor, and asked if I want to join this. And he didn't have nearly as many podcasts as he does currently. But it's great because you can find something for Tim Drake. Uh, you've got the Batman and the current Batman books that are going on. People that uh, talk about Batman and literature. So it's a really well-rounded site. And it's nice to be a part of a family, just like Barbara Gordon's a part of the Bat family. And you all guest on each other's podcasts? Yeah, for the most part. Yep. And there really is that much to say on the subject? <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah, that was funny when you said that in our first email, like, wow, 200. Is there really that? There is. There really is that much. I mean, I started, what, in, in 67, and now I'm in 2001. There, and she, when and she- And you don't look a year over 18. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you can't even tell. Uh, yeah, Barbara Gordon's exploding. She's everywhere. She's in Nightwing. You've got her in Birds of Prey, of course. She's in Batgirl. Robin, she pops up. So it's it's almost overwhelming to try to- narrow down what I need to cover and what I don't need to cover. But yes, there's a wealth of stuff that I can go through. Yeah, I I continue to uh, be very close to my Bat Guys partners, Darren mm. Vincenzo and Scott Peterson. And we speak once a week. Usually we waste about 45 minutes making silly puns and <laughs> and reliving the past. But occasionally we talk about things in the present and I'm brought to their attention, your podcast. And uh, they were extremely interested and they wanted me to say hello. So, okay. hello. hello. Or at least shine the bath signal on you. Yes. Because that's the way you. they would communicate. Yeah. I'm always welcome. I'm always uh, interested in talking to more people. And like I said, I mean, this is obviously kind of a, a, an offshoot of what we would normally do, but I feel like you deserve just an episode on your own to talk about your legacy with, with Birds of Prey and, and No Man's Land as well. So I hope to have you back Thank on. Thank you. I deserve that. absolutely nothing, but I appreciate that regardless. <laughs> I, I, re I really do mean it. Right. Uh, and if you saw my royalty check from the Birds of Prey movie, you would see that I deserve absolutely nothing. But anyway. Oh, no. Did you get <laughs> any royalties for that? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm, uh, I was on staff when I created Birds of Prey. Okay. And there's a whole story I, I can tell it to you if you want, but uh, it may not be apropos right now. Okay. Uh, but bottom line is when you're on staff at uh, a major corporation like Time Warner, what you create while you're on staff, they own. Mm. And there's a policy at DC that goes back many years that editor creators do not get credited for their work. Oh. So in one of the world's great ironies, when the credits roll at the end and they have that whole special thanks... Uh, it thanks all the writers and artists and so forth, but I am completely absent from it. And I was oh, not invited to the premiere or any of that sort of stuff. Mm. And many people say, so are you bitter about it? And I go, no, I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, the thing that gives me the most pleasure in life is being able to share the wealth with great people. And if the writers and editors and artists over the years who contributed their time and talent to Birds of Prey in some way participated in this largesse, then that makes me happy and that is more than enough. So God bless you all. I love you all. And uh, I hope that Birds of Prey continues to be the longest running female superhero franchise in the history of comics. Exciting. A female superhero team franchise because Wonder Woman obviously yeah. was longer. Yep. So, I think it deserves that title for sure. That That is the right use of the word deserves. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, DC Comics, you want to throw me a check? Or maybe you send me a DVD? Yeah. I don't need a DVD. Just throw me the check. 
the DVD. I wonder, do you think it's like a confusion because Showcase 96, number three, is really where you saw these women together, but they didn't necessarily have the title Birds of Prey, but maybe they skip over that and just go to like the first Birds of Prey title and, and don't see your hand in the, like the pre-Birds of Prey? I, I don't know. I've never really parsed it that deeply. I think chronologically, but please don't trust my memory. Everybody fact me, fact check me. Gee, fact checking on the internet. That never happens, does it? <laughs> I think chronologically, uh, Showcase 96 came somewhere in the middle of the run or maybe after some of the uh, specials or okay. one shots and before the series, something like that. I don't even remember. Did it say Birds of Prey or did it just say uh, Black Canary and Lois Lane or whatever the heck that was? I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's neither here nor there. I, I have been so fortunate to make my hobby, my, uh, make my avocation, my vocation, make my hobby, my work. Uh, it's given me so much pleasure, so many opportunities, so much, uh, so much, so many channels for creativity over the years that, uh, I just continue to look forward. I never really look back, mm. uh, except for this podcast. And which we'll <laughs> we're be, looking back. Right, yeah. We'll be looking back whether I want to or not. Yeah. Uh, and stories that are not your own, at least. So, well, everything's, everything's part of all of us. You know, yes. uh, who was it? Frost, some, some great poet who said that once a poet writes a poem and puts it into the public, once it's published, it's in the public sphere, it is no longer for the writer to interpret. It is, it's no longer in the domain of the poet. It's now in the domain of the public. Mm. So these stories are for all of us and about all of us, and uh, we can enjoy them as much and as freely as we want beautiful sentiment yeah right now say it in latin no, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding i'd have to think about that one right well you've done something that not i don't know if any of my guests have done which is you gave me homework i think maybe the second or so email you sent me you said here's some homework for you and sent me it was the 20th anniversary panel at san Diego comic-con from 2016 and i thought i wonder if i was there and i did listen to it and i do remember being at that particular panel and that was uh the benson sisters for me their trial by fire because i wondered can i trust these writers because they were about to start back on the birds of prey and i heard their history and, and just that they loved the comics and had read and i thought okay i, I think i can trust these people but it was nice to re-listen to all of that and and you were the the moderator for that particular panel. Yeah, that, that panel was a thrill. By the way, the Benson sisters are so great. They're so cool and so warm. And you meet them, you instantly feel like you're friends with them and their family because their family was there. And I got to meet them also and got an invitation, which I still have never taken advantage of to come hang out and maybe have a barbecue or something. Oh. So that's the, I'm probably totally inventing that in my mind. But hey, Benson <laughs> sisters, that's just the great first impression you give off. So there you go. And don't worry, I'm not giving out your address. So yeah, please don't. Str strange visitors from another planet. Yeah. Uh, and aren't we all that? But I'm curious, where were you seated? And what do you remember about the audience? Because when you are, uh, when you, when mm -hmm. I am a moderator at San Diego Con, I'm sitting at a table on a dais and I'm looking out over a crowd and they gave us a pretty big room. And I have one perspective, but I'm always curious, what's it like when you turn the camera around and you do the over the shoulder shot from your vantage yeah. point? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a pretty healthy crowd. I was uh, stage left. So I was on the right side facing you guys. And 
Yeah, I think I remember uh, because you had uh, Joseph Illich, you had Gail Simone and the Benson sisters. So I think just with the names that you had, you almost had Chuck Dixon. I forgot that you tried to call him and then it didn't go through. Oh, that was such a bummer. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but but talking about uh, the different runs and, and just the legacy of that team, I thought was really good. And I remember the Batgirl uh, because I used to see her all the time who wore yeah. the Stephanie Brown. I saw her every Comic-Con. I was like, there she is. And yeah, she's course, about she this tall and yep. has a personality like this. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But no, I, th- I thought it was great for my end, for sure. Uh, I have a great Batgirl story that I want to tell you up from San Diego Con in a second. Uh, from my vantage point, it was really remarkable. First of all, it was the 20th anniversary panel. And the fact that we had, it was a full house. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would say it's standing room only, except here's the thing. When I looked out in the crowd, what warmed my heart more than anything were the number of wheelchairs mm-hmm. in the audience. Mm-hmm. And there have been people who've come up to me over the years who have appreciated so much mainstreaming a wheelchair-bound disabled person like Barbara Gordon and and treating her as anybody would, a a capable person like that, as a a flesh and blood capable member of society and not looked down upon, not looked up upon, just looked regularly like a regular person. And I'm I'm probably sounding... uh, uh, a little uh, mealy mouth right now and trying to describe my feelings. And it's a little awkward, but I, I, this is really heartfelt. And uh, oh, oh, one of my favorite interactions, I don't think it was from that particular panel, but one of my favorite interactions with somebody uh, who was wheelchair bound at San Diego was when they started to explain to me, oh, you know what? I think this is how it happened. I don't remember who was with me. Maybe Chuck can correct me. But I think what happened was I saw somebody wheeling through the aisles in San Diego, and I pushed my way through to catch up with the person to ask them about the wheelchair because it was one of these incredible sporty racy models that had angled wheels oh, wow. and it had oh, yeah. no handles on the back. Mm-hmm. And that's when I learned that the kind of wheelchair that it was up to that point generally drawn, I know you've touched on this in your podcast, that's gen- that were, was generally drawn up to that point was the, dis- the kind of the disposable um, uh, hospital kind, mm. you know, which folds like an accordion. And really, if you spend too much time in that chair, it's very uncomfortable and actually very dangerous because you can't, um, uh, it, it's not molded to the body the way the body needs it to uh, react to you. So, um, uh, so, I don't remember if I followed up with that person, but then I started doing research. And during my tenure as the Birds of Prey editor, one of the most important things to me was that they kept the wheelchair right. Mm-hmm. And whenever you can tell when I wasn't editing it during that period of time, because if somebody else was handling the character, the, the handles would reappear again. And Chuck did a very clever thing at some point where he put into dialogue, you know, somebody offered uh, to, to push her wheelchair. And she said, no, I don't get pushed around. That's why there are no handles on this thing. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, anyway, so the the quick Batgirl story. Oh well, let me finish with the the panel. So the, the panel was 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 full, and again, the fact that there were that many people interested after 20 years, and that the characters mean so much, and and to have people on the stage who were my successors, to know that it started with an idea that I had in my head, and I remember walking. We we used to have bat summits where we would go away once or twice a year. All the Batman editors, led by Denny O'Neill of Blessed 
memory. Uh, and, and all of the editors and the writers and sometimes the artists, we would brainstorm what's coming up for the next six months. And one of our favorite things to do would be to take walks. It would take place in Terrytown, which is uh, just at the tip of Manhattan, right by the uh, uh, whatever the bridge is I'm blanking right now. Uh, and I remember taking ambling walks with the writers and pitching the idea of this kind of peanut butter and uh, and chocolate combination of characters because it's hard to remember back then Black Canary was an extraordinarily failed character. Mm. This was a second generation character who had been through three or four revamps and that um, memorable costume from the 80s was it in the Justice League the costume? Sure. Sorry, listeners can't see me do that. That's like in a comedy routine, right? When they, yeah. when a co- comedian will go for the punchline, and then they did this, and then there's silence for a second, and then the audience starts laughing uproariously, and you have no idea what hand signal the guy yeah. did. Anyway, so I fluttered my fingers like the little flaps, or what do you call those things? The like on a cowboy uh, jacket, uh, the little frill? streamers, fringe? the frills, fringe? yeah, fringe, fringe. Yeah. Thank you, fringe that. Uh, that fly off of it. Uh, anyway, so she had been a failed character who had been reinvented many, many times. And, and they figured, we're not going to do with her anything with her anyway. You can do with her what you want. And then we were big fans, we being the back guys, were big fans of uh, Barbara Gordon. And while we were saddened uh, to uh, have, have, have her be violated the way she was in the uh, controversial killing joke, mm-hmm. We were extraordinarily glad to see uh, John Ostrander and Kim Yale reinvent her in a way where she was arguably a more powerful character than she ever would have been as a Batman knockoff. And there, I know there are people today who will say uh, or regret that she was miraculously healed, which is something we promised we would never do. And to them, I say, I understand that. But look, we will always have those wonderful stories. And we wouldn't have the wonderful new Batgirl stories if DC Comics hadn't made the decision that they did. I, I know amongst your uh, podcast, Arati, the Burnside stories are hit or miss for for you guys. I personally love them. Uh, I thought it was just a really nifty modern take. And, and my philosophy on all this stuff is when I'm done with a job, then I get out of the way. It's like the, the way a presidential handoff should be where the president knows is one of those rarefied people who understands the job and knows what the next person in line is going to go through and feels like the best thing they can do is get out of their way and let them find their own voice and find their own way. So it was like that for me in the bat books also. All right. I'm I'm talking endlessly over here. I'll tell you my bat girl story later. Okay. Okay. Do do you think, I mean, you had just come off of, well, I guess it, kind of coincided but with no man's land and and you just had i think a weight behind you and your name carried meaning do you think if it were anyone else that tried to pitch this that it wouldn't have worked but it was sort of a perfect storm of all the people involved and and that's why it came together and worked the way it did uh, by it you mean birds uh, of no prey land? sorry oh, birds, with of birds of prey, prey yeah gosh i i can't really kind of re redo history I, it's just let's put it this way uh i was uh, I had the uh, the youthful ignorance and exuberance that made me think there was nothing that wasn't possible. And I had the great fortune of having executives who supported us and indeed nudged us to come up with those ideas or get those ideas generated from freelancers. Most of these things weren't editorially um, 
uh, created, most of them came from uh, the freelance community. And that's an important distinction because, as, as we touched on a little bit earlier, uh, editors' jobs were shepherd ideas. And to we, we, it, people ask, what's the job of an editor? I'll get back to that in a second, uh, the original topic of your question in a second. But what's an editor in comics? Because it's kind of this nebulous job. The answer is you have to be uh, a jack-of-all-trades. You have to understand everything that needs to be accomplished in the comic book uh, pipeline. So you have to understand how to uh, brainstorm ideas, how to write, uh, you have to, if you can't draw, even if you can't draw, I can, uh, not as well as here. What have I got over here? So I do a weekly cartoon strip. So just to show you old school artwork over here. Yeah. Um, here, this is one of my characters working out at a treadmill, <laughs> which is what I feel. Here, this is, this is me strenuously trying to come up with answers to avoid talking about the comic books that I know nothing about that you're going to ask me about later. Anyway, so the job, so even if you don't know how to draw, at least to understand drawing and to be able to guide uh, everybody who's in on the creative process. And then there's, there's production and then there's post-production and then there's marketing and then there's the, all the licensing stuff and liaisoning with all the various different companies and licensors and uh, movies and TV shows and, and everything. You got to understand how to do it all so that you can guide everything seamlessly and you're juggling because we probably had a hundred freelancers freelancers by the way are mm. per diem uh, talent that do not live and work uh, in your office when people think of the comic book creation process they imagine that they're worker bees in endless uh, mazes who are all creating the stuff all day long right there no all of this is created from wherever they may be around the world and they send the work in. In the old days, it was via FedEx and nowadays it's all digital and, and so forth. So the editorial process is that you have to, the editor, the editor's process, you have to be able to guide and help everybody in what they're doing. And I know that this was going to lead back to something I've totally lost my train of thought. So um, back to your question then, uh, and I guess it does dovetail do I think it could have been done under different circumstances by somebody else? Yeah, because there are lots of ideas out there. Um, there, there somebody said there are only five ideas in the world and it's all about execution. Would it have been executed in the same way? No, because I had a specific thought process that I'm happy to share with you about how all this came together. Mm. But no man is an island or no person is an island. And this was also the product of the zeitgeist, what we were all living through and thinking about in the 90s. And of course, the groupthink of all of the amazingly talented people who uh, would take this germ of an idea that I had and build it into something that I never could have done all by myself. And that continues to flourish because of uh, the, the, the appreciation people have for the track that we laid. I does that two, answer the question? I'm it does. Trying. It does. Yep. <laughs> I have two follow-up questions with the editor when you were saying, because that was actually one of my questions, what is the duty of an editor? Because I've actually been really hard on the current Batgirl editor. Just, I don't want to say, I feel like she's not doing oh, no. her job, but I don't know. Are, would you be responsible for continuity errors? Like, would you be checking to see this does not match okay. up with yes. something? Okay. Okay. And then do you actually yeah, so, read? And I've heard oh. you call out some continuity errors. Yes. No, I was just going to say, I've heard you call them out. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, well, there's no going back to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just wanted to check because I also, thought maybe it's not her job. Also, 
Yeah, no, no, it's definitely an editor's job. Uh, at this point, it's probably the internet's job even more than, <laughs> than the editor's. But, uh, uh, but I ask everybody's forgiveness because uh, an editor is doing 50 things at the same time and trying their best to keep all the plates spinning and to keep everything uh, accurate. And nowadays with all of these shared universes, it's not just one editor who's overseeing things. It's probably many editors, and for that matter, many departments within the corporation who are all sharing the uh, the character. So I, I'm going to touch on something that you guys talked about in the No Man's Land podcast episodes, which I encourage everybody to go back and listen to because they're really terrific, as is the entire enterprise here. Oh, um, you're welcome. Heartfelt. The, um, uh, the thing that you pointed out was that in the Batman of our era, the Denny O'Neill era, artists could interpret Batman to look as they wanted him to look. We didn't adhere to a specific template, for the most part, to a specific template and say the ears have to be just this long and the padding on the shoulder has to be this shape and the bat and the cape must have attached to the bat in this way and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So you had your Kelly Jones Batman that was living side by side with the uh, Graham Nolan Batman to the Jim Ballant one to the on and on and on and on. And forgive me if I'm not calling out other wonderful people that we worked with. Um, And they were all coexisting very well. And that helped us, I think, to, to give a little wink, wink to the reader to say, you can't take this too seriously. I mean, obviously, this is the same character, and we do want to make sure that the stories have a tight through line and, uh, and a solid continuity. But at the same time, we want to give these characters room to breathe and to grow and to let uh, artists and creators have their voice and put their stamp on it. And I think that's, uh, let me tell you something wonderful that Denny O'Neill said uh, about Batman. I'm not sure if he originated this idea, but I give him credit for it. So there you go. Internet, correct me. Or throw tomatoes, virtual tomatoes. <laughs> Virtual Rotten Tomatoes. He said that what makes Batman the best character in comics, and I think in all fiction, you can argue with me, but you're going to have to do it online when I can't talk back to you, is that Batman is the most reinventable character. There is a Batman for every generation, and there is a Batman for every person. And sometimes, and this is my addition to this, many different Batmen uh, and bad people will coexist. So for example, in the aughts in the 2000s, on the one side of the spectrum, you had the very serious Dark Knight trilogy of movies. And on the other side of the spectrum, you had Batman the Brave and the Bold with its jazzy, uh, gosh, golly, gee whiz kind of uh, mentality, right? And one was specifically WB Kids Animation, and one was specifically very serious, uh, highbrow, Uh, a a serious highbrow artistic interpretation of the Dark Knight, really adult-oriented, or at least maturely realized. And nobody blinked an eye. This is the Batman for these, this population. This is the Batman for this population. And it all works. It's hard to do that with Superman. It's hard to do that with Captain America and some of these other characters. But for Batman, it works great. And I think that's why the character will live on and flourish forever because there's a Batman for all generations. That's what I did for the Birds of Prey film, actually. I thought, you know, this is not like the comics. I'm going to go in with an open mind and recognize that this is a completely separate and creative idea. And I liked it. I'm glad I went in that way, because I actually enjoyed that film. A little tidbit here. Uh, Christina Hobson, who uh, wrote the film, I think she's a wonderful writer. 
And one of the assignments that, uh, that I had was I was working with Paramount uh, with a wonderful uh, marketing department, specifically their uh, home release marketing department. And I created um, a, a, a mini comic that got packaged in with the home video release of Bumblebee. Okay. And the assignment was bridge the Michael Bay movies with this interpretation. Mm. And so I got to go to the Paramount lot, Paramount lot and watch the movie ahead of release to familiarize myself and so forth. And I was just struck by what a wonderful writer is. So much, uh, again, here's this word, so much heart, great structure, realistic dialogue, uh, a, a terrific sense of whimsy, knows how to balance reality and genre, so I was very, very pleased and honored that she was the one who wrote the Birds of Prey movie. Um, I, I, I can't speak to the movie itself, but I can certainly wax enthusiastic about the writer. Yeah. That's and, fine, no, I'm not right? saying yeah. that for, as a plus or minus. I haven't seen the movies. That's why oh, I literally okay. can't speak to it. Okay. I gotcha. So my second follow-up question about editor is, would you read the script before it went into art production or would you be given like the, the pre-comic before it was published? What would you be looking at and, and previewing? Uh, what do you mean by previewing? I guess before it went into actual publication, would it just be the script from the writer before art was put in place? Would you be given a fully drawn and realized comic, but it hasn't hit the shelves yet, so you need to check over it before it goes? What part of the process would you come in and, and read through the, the issue? Sure. You know, uh, remind me after we're done, I'll give you a link to something that I created, which shows the, the steps of creating a comic book. Please. And really, this doubles as an answer to your question. Because every one of the steps that you'll see in this fun little PDF is the step, <laughs> is, are the steps, every one of the steps is. <laughs> Editor, got to go with the grammar here. <laughs> uh, so for, for you people watching on Zoom, you get to see the flub. For you, unfortunately, you're going to have to edit this to make me sound <laughs> like I didn't make a mistake. <laughs> oh. Or if you really want to have fun with me, keep it all in and then just add a little overdub going, ha ha. And by the way, <laughs> if you do that, I will laugh so hard. Oh boy, I'll try. I mean, when I'm editing, I'm sure I'll remember. I'll add a little right. Just, so, there. listeners, uh, if if you hear a ha ha, then you know. Or maybe we'll do a Simpsons ha ha. <laughs> you'll know that it was a little inside joke added in in post. Anyway, we first discuss the ideas with the uh, talent, with the, with the writers. And sometimes the artists are in on it also. I mean, they're writer artists, they're artists who will conceive the story, but perhaps not dialogue it themselves. I mean, there are lots of different ways that you can parse the creative process in creating a comic book or graphic novel. And we will approve the idea. Sometimes the idea comes in not in discussion. Sometimes it comes in rather in a treatment form. And a treatment is basically a prose summary with the beginning, middle, and end. And a tip for all of you who are listening to this right now, when you are pitching a story to anybody in any storytelling medium, whether it's a prose novel or uh, editor, or it's a film producer, or it's a comic book editor, don't think that you have to build in the tropes of suspense and comedy and all the different parts that make a story interesting in your pitch. The thing we want to hear is, is it a complete story? Does it have a beginning, a middle, and an end? Just give it to me straight and no nonsense. And I will trust, if I hire you, that you have the ability to execute on the idea. 
Otherwise, I wouldn't be hiring you as a writer because something's led us to be working together. Prior work or maybe create samples. We can talk some other time about what it's like to review samples that come in because people probably think I send in samples and it's like sending it into the great beyond, into the void. Well, I'll just tell you this quickly. Folks, here is Gorf's philosophy <laughs> on breaking into comics. It's very simple. It's not difficult to break into comics. It's difficult to be good enough to mm. break into comics. And the rest is interpretation. So after we get the story approved, then the writer will write a script. And there are uh, plot first scripts, which is also called Marvel style. Or there's a full script, which is DC style, classically. Mm -hmm. And the full script will have the shot description followed by the dialogue and on and on and on. And the whole thing is realized out of the imagination of the writer. And then the artist gets it. The artist interprets based on that uh, that full script. The Marvel style was created, forgive me if I'm telling you anything you already know, the Marvel style was created by the great Stan Lee of Blessed Memory. And Stan at the time was working on a gazillion amounts of comic books all at the same time because the entire Marvel universe was coming out of his head in the 60s. And he had brilliant artists like Jack Kirby and, and uh, uh, later on Neil Adams and earlier on why am I blanking out his name? Steve Ditko, uh, John Buscema, and his wonderful uh, cousin, I think it was, Sal, that I had the pleasure of working with, and on and on and on. So you have this bullpen of wonderful artists who didn't need to be told what to do. They were excellent storytellers in their own right. They understood it were truly reinventing the craft as they were going. So Stan would write a treatment. He would just write in paragraph form. This happens, that happens, this happens, that happens. Okay, go away and draw it in 22 pages or 25 pages, how many were. And then he'd get it back and then he would dialogue it afterwards. Mm. And the, the reason why a lot of the Marvel comics of that era were more fluid than the DC comics of that era is because in DC comics, it was kind of like saying, we're going to uh, make a cake and we're going to have somebody bake it and somebody frost it, but we're going to do it separately and hope that it comes together in a way where it matches. But what happens if somebody bakes a vanilla cake and then comes up with, I don't know, um, strawberry frosting and, well, that does taste good together, but you understand what I'm getting at here. Yeah. Something that wouldn't go, to, go together well. All right, but sardines, somebody comes with, uh, <laughs> with <laughs> I don't know why that popped into my head. You get the idea. Yeah. Whereas with Stan, it started with the writer. It was realized visually by the brilliant artist. And then it would go back to the, I feel bad that your listeners can't see my hand motions over <laughs> here because I'm really doing some sweet hand motions. Uh, and then it would go back to the writer to make sure that the dialogue truly reflected what was in the art and moreover clarified areas in the story where maybe the artist didn't quite do what was needed for the story. And then the writer could pivot. But if it's all done with the writer being uh, his, his or her job being done with the script and then it goes to the artist, then it's the editor's job to try to figure out, okay, does this work? How do I try to make it work? So you're adding in almost another artificial voice. Mm. In an ideal world, getting back to what you were talking about, after you send, after the, the artwork comes back, the editor reviews it, makes sure that there's uh, nothing untoward about it, that it all kind of works, and then sends it off to the letter and the colorist and, and then has the whole package brought together uh, in her or his hands and reviews it uh, before sending it down to production to maybe make some corrections and put it into the template and, and, uh, and make it into the comic books that get published and, uh, and loaded up online. And, and if the editor 
it, uh, has the time and the knowledge and the inclination, they can polish it in a way where they're looking out for continuity and they're looking out for just basic storytelling sense. I mean, basic things like, I wish I had an example right here, basic things like there's a, a rule of thumb that most people, I have a wonderful intern named Daniel, um, and I'm purposely giving him a shout out because he's going to listen to this and go, I can't believe he said my name. <laughs> okay. He's, he's a great guy. He is the first high school intern I've ever had. Mm. Uh, and he is easily as capable and savvy as any of the uh, collegiate interns that I've had, wonderful as they, they all are. And one of the things that we're doing for fun is he is a, uh, an artist and a storyteller. So I'm having him take a script or a portion of the script from a movie and uh, reinterpret it as a comic book. And then we're going through all the stages and I'm kind of his editor. And one of the things that he did to his credit was, gosh, I wish I had an example. You know what, hold on, let me, let me just draw this quickly. Uh, I'm gonna put it on um, my bill for the accountant, okay? Okay. <laughs> so when you were doing a comic book layout, here are two examples for you, and I'm gonna describe it so that your listeners will understand what it is that I've drawn, but I encourage them to come check this out. Okay, can you see this over here? Yep. Okay, great. So what we're looking at is two squares that are divided up into three panels. In the first example, you have two panels stacked on the left and one vertical panel on the right. On the bottom example, you have one panel vertical on the left and two panels stacked on the right. So I ask you, please tell me, in the first panel, what order, excuse me, the first set of panels. Example, what order do we read these panels in? I would say top, bottom, and then right. Top, bottom, and then right. Okay, fair answer. Is there any reason that I wouldn't assume to read top, right, and then bottom? There's no reason, though I do remember there used to be arrows in some in some True. vintage Good old comics. Carmine Infantino arrows. Yeah. Or... or you know, f fancy Latin looking uh, fingers, right? Sure. <laughs> that would, would point like this. Yes. I did it again, point like this. You yeah. can't see anything. Uh, so you're, you're absolutely right. There is no way without arrows of knowing what direction you're supposed to read it in. Whereas on the bottom one, it is eminently clear. The vertical panel gets read first, and then you read the stack panels. Daniel intuited that or learned it. I think he said he actually learned it from a book that he read a long time ago. And this is basic storytelling. Now go back to your comic books that you read and find all the examples. And you, now that I pointed this out, you're going to see it. And anytime somebody does a panel layout where they've got the stacking on the left, you're going to go, no, 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 no. You're not supposed to do that because <laughs> it's not clear story. Mm. Stacking on the left drives, especially Scott Peterson, crazy. Ooh. And that is a small example of what uh, a good editor will do. Okay. That an editor will realize where the storytelling is unclear and use their expertise to clarify it. And that ultimately is the most important job. Wow. This is good stuff, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, my, I'm sorry if I'm getting too professorial. We can talk about other things like... No, hey. I appreciate it. I've wondered actually for a while, just because I've been giving ed current editors a hard time, I'm like, what is their job? And okay, so wait, this wait. Is that was my question back to you then. Okay. How do you decide that... Uh, uh, decide, that's a bad word to use. Um, how, uh, how did you come to the opinion yeah. that an editor, this editor or any others, sure. are not doing uh, their job? Okay. <laughs> Properly. How, how, yeah. How, 
how do you as 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 a, as a as reader a, as yeah. a storyteller yourself as a reader a consumer a teacher mm -hmm. uh, what are you seeing and what uh, what do you think the editor could be doing better yeah so i think and i'll focus just on this this current run of backroll which is now ended which is good for my heart Part of it is just seeing the same thing over and over again and actions happening that have happened in like a previous arc. So something happened where James Jr. fell off, he died, and J Jim Gordon accused Batgirl of killing him. And that happened in Batgirl 19 with Gail Simone. So something like that, like not catching that something exactly like this happened before. And then just weird writing from the writer that doesn't seem like people would actually talk in the manner that they do or things don't connect or maybe thought bubbles should be placed somewhere else. I don't know. Uh, and it just, I wondered, you know, because novel editors, I assume read the whole work. And so I wondered, is, is this person not catching that this is really weird dialogue and it doesn't really match up with what's happening or it's a bad characterization. So I just wondered, am I putting too much on the, cause I, I was holding the writer accountable for sure, but I also felt like part of this might actually come down to the editor too and what's going on in her in her corner as well uh, i think it is the responsibility of both the writer and the editor to know these things i also don't know honestly because i haven't been paying attention i i've been reading the latest backroll on and off because i'm a fan boy and i like backroll sure. uh and uh uh and for me it's it, it, I, I should stay on top of what's going on. I don't read everything. Uh, and a lot of the stuff uh, I, I'm not excited about anymore because people evolve and their yeah. tastes grow. But mm -hmm. there's still nothing better than a great superhero, a superhero story told well. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe this editor, uh, there have been a lot of shakeups, uh, mm -hmm. as you know, a lot of uh, revolving door in terms of positions. Um, and unfortunately, Editors are not trained in the old style the way I was. I now sound like a geezer right now. <laughs> this is the way it was done in my day. There's an onion on your belt. Yeah, yeah, and my belt is up to here. Fortunately, <laughs> it's cropped, so you can't see it. But uh, mm. yeah, and I'm wearing a sweatshirt over it also because I'm old and I'm cold. That's that's what cold is. It's old with a C on the front of it. Just in case you didn't know, I just made that up, folks. Anyway, so. For all I know, uh, the editor was thrust into a position without having the time or the resources mm -hmm. to be able to come up to speed or to do their job well, or perhaps wasn't trained fully in the job that they are expected to do. I can tell you that back in the day when we had the system of group editors uh, overseeing editors, so you had uh, the triumvirate of um, uh, Mike Carlin, the executive editor, and Denny O'Neill, and uh, of course, the late, great Archie Goodwin. Oh my gosh, the stories we can tell about Archie. The, uh, I could still see his sweater sitting on the back of his chair. Archie taught me how to balloon. That's a whole nother thing. Back in, in, in those times, it was a mentoring system. Whether it was proactive or de facto, we would learn by the masters who were around us and had been doing it for 10, 20 years or so. And we picked up all of their tools over a period of time, and they also backstopped us. They were watching out for us. I think nowadays, for reasons that I don't completely understand or have insight into, the, the editorial system is far more top-down, mm. where you have executives who are creating by fiat or editing by fiat, and it's the job of the editors to do what they're told to do. And there may be things going on that we're just not aware of within the, uh, the hierarchy that are affecting 
the, the output, the, the content uh, in ways that we couldn't possibly suspect. So it's a really complex ecosystem and or ecosystem, uh, although now it is an ecosystem, ECH, right? Because yeah. it's top down. Yeah. And who knows? So I, I, would, I always try to give the benefit of the doubt to everybody and uh, politely point out to them that I'm a fan and here are some things to be thinking about and let's try to do better in the future. Yeah, for sure. I don't think that Julie Chen is listening to my podcast, <laughs> though I have called her out. But uh, yeah, only for she, love of the character. I'm going on email. She is now. Oh, no. <laughs> Twitter. At, yeah. No, I'm not do that. Oh boy. But I, I expect because just getting to know you a little bit, Stella, from uh, the little bit that we've been talking here, I'm sure whatever you've done was with a smile and from a place of deep appreciation. I, and I can tell you me as a, as a uh, professional on the good days, I always appreciate somebody telling me how to do something constructively, constructively sure, yes, and how to yes. do something better because I'd rather know now than find out later from the internet. That's always much worse. Yeah. And uh, no, and I realized you, you're, but even so, if, even if I find it out from the internet and I realized that was kind of insensitive to me because you are the internet, but even if I find it out from there, like uh, we'll, we'll go back to the example of your podcasts on no man's land. You guys were, you guys and gal were calling out stuff that I should have caught. I should have thought about. We could have done better. And I think we did a really good job, but you can always do better. And I, I take that uh, seriously, and, and we do listen. It, when, when people talk to professionals reasonably and constructively and, and just don't go ape crazy over us in an unreasonable way, we're, we want to listen. We want to be better. We want to do our jobs better. Most of all, we just want to be great storytellers and leave a great legacy. So on behalf of editors everywhere, thank you for watching our backs. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think the only thing I had a problem with was the whole Huntress thing. And I was the only one in her corner and my friends were like, no, that's how it should have been. Batman shouldn't trust her. So that would probably- Yeah, but you also called out, I think all of you called out some inconsistencies there where Huntress would do something in one story that seemed to fly in the face of something she had just done in another story. And that's basic continuity, and that's something that has to be caught. I don't remember if I was still on staff at the time because I retired amicably from DC Comics uh, about halfway through No Man's Land. Okay. Um, and I wasn't there for the execution of the latter half of the story. But uh, it, despite the fact that it all originated with uh, an outline that I created and was greenlit and, mm. and, and all that sort of stuff. But again, it, it, it's a team effort. So it may have been gun here oh yeah you yeah you have to remember to talk you want to ask your question i will <laughs> we can do it now yeah just do so it now because the, the what are you wearing segment so what are you wearing gorf can you see that it says i it's a, he's wearing a hat for listeners i survived no man's land with a little batman cloisonne pin yeah <laughs> i just wanted to say cloisonne did i say it right or is it cloisonne i'm not sure yeah it's a pin yeah with, with a with a sharp thing on the back i like it that is poking into my head right now. Ouch. Oh, <laughs> we'll be okay. Uh, credit to where uh, it's deserved. Devin Grayson gave this to me as a gift. Oh. And I wear it to conventions. I just save it for conventions. That's why it looks so pristine after all this time. And yeah. uh, I love it. Thank you, Devin. Uh, wonderful, wonderful writer and a great human being. Uh, who is a female, for those who yes, are clear? Yep. Uh, two of my friends, Don and Josh, who you would have heard on separate episodes, they yeah. actually interviewed her for the BatmanUniverse.net, and I know they enjoyed speaking to her about her run on Nightwing and Batman and everything. So. Oh, wow. Okay, I'll have to check that 
Shout out. And um, you listening folks and viewing folks should too. Yes, absolutely. So before we get I'm into plugging this, things for you, come on. I, uh, thank you. So checks in the mail. Uh, <laughs> before we get into this main it, event, is it I be equal to my birds of prey check. It might be a bit more. What? I don't know. Main event. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I like to ask my guests, uh, because we've been going through this weird time with COVID and depending on your political stance, also the election and things like that, I ask what you have been uh, finding your joy with. What sorts of things have been giving you joy? I call this shags, mac and cheese of comfort and joy. Yes, you know, are you watching right. anything? Are you uh, reading anything? What, what are you doing to, to keep your spirits up in these weird times? Oh, gosh. Well, there's enough. There are a number of things. I'll try to pick out my top three. Uh, on my creative side, one of my biggest joys is I wrote a screenplay with mm -hmm. my wonderful writing partner, Lisa Klink. And uh, you may recognize her as being one of the writers from, uh, from uh, No Man's Land. And I think uh, whoever was your guest on that particular issue was that standalone issue with a guy defending his house for the entire issue. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I know you had to hit the internet to look her up, but she was a... Uh, a, uh, a writer and story editor on Star Trek Voyager and a bunch of other genre shows. She continues to write television. She's a novelist right now. In fact, she's doing the one month novel challenge oh. right now as we speak, where you have to write an entire novel, first draft in one month. Oh boy! So she's a little busy. So okay. uh, we've been collaborating for years and we wrote um, a really nifty screenplay that is now in the process of being ripped apart by people who know better than us so that we can then rewrite it and get it over to my agent. Uh, and I can't tell you about it except to say it's really nifty. And if there's anybody who's listening to the podcast who would like to know more, you can find me at, uh, uh, at Jewish cartoon, which we'll talk about later, but find me at, at Jewish cartoon and ping me in some social media mystical way. And we'll talk about it. So that's one of the great joys. Uh, it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And, uh, and it was really, tr uh, it continues to be a terrific experience, even the, the being shredded part. Can you say uh, what so genre what. it is? Yeah. Rom-com. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. And for me, I know, it's like after Batman, yeah, for you. <laughs> anything is lighter. That, that just, that goes together, right? Batman, Absolutely. Batman like I said before, there could be a Batman rom-com. Batman works. I mean, the Lego every... Batman, there's kind of some rom-com in there. Yeah, that's true. Actually. <laughs> that's right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Right. And, is, and is it Lego or Lego? I say Lego, but also people make fun of the way I say leg and oh, okay. egg. So we are together on that. Because oh. I said Lego my entire life. Yes. Just like I say roof instead of roof. And people uh. go, oh, roof, 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 roof. <laughs> yeah. It's both a bark and the thing on top of your house. Yes. It's both of those things. Okay. So I'm going back to Lego just because of you. Okay. I appreciate that. See, I'm not I'm done with one. this Lego thing. Lego my ego. No worries. Okay, where uh, were we? No, I was just going to say that what I just got the new Spider-Man Miles Morales video game, so I, that's what's been giving me joy. Uh, and my birthday's on Saturday, so it's been fun to have a little hey. leading up to it. And this has been amazing. When you wrote in, you're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it Wednesday. I'm like, oh, boy, let's do it. So this has been so fun so far. I'm, I'm so appreciative that you're on. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. And uh, to all of your listeners, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think that's what their reaction is going to be when I uh, post on Twitter after this that I got you on. So, Well, it depends. Warned. If they're listening, they're going to go, eh, not bad. <laughs> if they're watching, they're going, oh, man. Oh, boy. Well, we'll see. I think people can surprise you. 
and by the way, comedy comes in threes. There's another lesson for you folks. And I just uh, made, came full circle with the gag about how you're not supposed to reference a visual sight gag when it's a listening medium. And I'm not going to tell you what I just did because yeah. it wasn't that funny it's anyway. It's fine. It's fine. But I have to always, I always have to uh, see it through. Got to pay off those gags. Yep. Uh, but by the way, that, that's another reason why rom-com is natural for me. At the same time that I was working on Batman in the evening, I moonlighted as a weekly cartoonist. Okay. And over the course of many, many years, um, I've really gotten deep into the discipline of writing a four-panel cartoon. And it mm. really takes a lot of discipline that we're talking about right now. But a shout-out to my uh, friend and mentor, dear person, Lynn Johnston, of For Better or For Worse fame, for those of you who remember that great comic strip. Um, she really taught me so much that was important about how you distill an idea into four panels when you're literally limited to those four panels with clarity and with humor and also with a lot of heart. And that experience combined with my Batman experience led me to be interested in doing a mm-hmm. screenplay that's a rom-com. So everything in some way is connected or follows from one to another. Very cool. Okay, so you asked me for three things, or at least I offered three things that are giving me pleasure. Another thing that's giving me pleasure is that my four children were under the same roof playing Legos together. Okay, that, so that's two. Okay. Comedy comes in threes. There will be a, uh, a payoff at some point. Okay. We'll find so it. When Maybe I'm I'll hand it off to you. Okay. Yeah, you're least expecting it. Expecting, yes. Okay. Uh, and it's, it was really a surprise and uh, a great joy to have all of us together again because, believe it or not, I've got a couple of uh, daughters who are in college, mm. and it's just the boys who are with me right now. It's Ashira, Eliana, Noam, and Ori. Uh, And having us all together at the same time was really quite unexpected because when people uh, who were in your household as children now come back as full-fledged adults, on the one hand, yes, they have their own opinions, and I must respect those opinions, he says, (laughs) biting his bottom lip. And on the other hand, uh, they come with just a, a world of new experiences that just enrich you. And it's just been fantastic and terrific. And Ashira is uh, working in uh, music and television. Mm. And she's also a great writer and she's producing, writing and producing her own songs. And Eliana is uh, a student right now, uh, uh, still in her first year in COVID. So it's kind mm. of interesting. Yeah. Uh, and the two boys are doing distance learning right now because unfortunately somebody in their class contracted the pandemic. Uh. And, uh, and so now everybody's on a two-week uh, uh, lockdown or, or uh, what do you call it? Um, isolation uh, or quarantine? Yeah, iso- quarantine. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes, yeah. quarantine. So that's joy number two. Okay, your turn. Joy number two for you. Oh, gosh. I didn't know that we were going to have. Uh, I'm, ma- well, I'm mainly buying time to come up with the third one. So go oh, ahead. Oh, I see. Uh, well, just, just that this week leading up to my birthday, I've been doing different adventures and just getting to hang out with friends and spending time with them. So that's joy number two for me. Okay, that's great. I was hoping to buy more time, but I'll go with it. <laughs> joy number three, but that's COVID specific. You know what it is? It, it's, this one is a little more psychological. I have been traveling. After I parted amicably from DC Comics, I formed Avalanche Comics Entertainment. And I continued, in addition to doing my weekly comic strip, I was also in music. And I continued to do music. And I travel constantly. So uh, I, I will be in Los Angeles or New York 
working on mainstream entertainment projects and graphic novels and film and television, what have you. And, and a lot of corporate work too. It's, it's, it's been a real joy to work with corporations like Microsoft and, um, uh, and uh, Seagate and Alibaba.com mm. and uh, <laughs> museums and just all kinds of different verticals, as we call it, different uh, business segments uh, on their storytelling. And, uh, and that was an incredible joy while I was traveling. And then on weekends, I would do music. So I was constantly running around the country. People used to ask me, where do you live? And I would say, seat 7A on the United Airlines flight, <laughs> you know, 30,000 feet in the air. Yeah. And uh, you know, we can talk later. I have a, something called the Super Storytelling Seminar, where I teach or I not teach, but I instruct people in business how to use the superhero principles of storytelling to improve their own branding and communications in a creative way. Mm. And comics is a wonderful, I mean, you know this as a teacher, is a wonderful tool for uh, incubating ideas in the most direct way. Because what do you need from comics? Excuse me, what do you need for to, to, to share an idea in comics? All you need is a means to draw, the ability to write words on a page, and then your own hand and creativity. One person can do the whole thing and then hand off the idea and the idea is communicated. I mean, it goes all the way back to hieroglyphics and the modern version of it is the, uh, the comics or the, the cartoons or manga or whatever, but it's all the same thing. It's all the same kind of communication. And to be able to get executives from Fortune 500 companies or for that matter, students, because I do this in schools also, students, from grades uh, one all the way through 12 and indeed in, in college to take their complex ideas and think about them the way that ideas need to be portrayed in today's society where we don't have the patience to be able to sit through any kind of complex delivery. Instead, you have to be quick, concise, and creative. So how do you do that? Well, if you put a, oh, you know, it's what, like what I showed you before. Sorry, listeners. But uh, this, this board, comic book board here, is exactly what I use. So if you can see, and uh, folks, I'll describe it for you. We have a regular 8.5 by 11 Bristol board page, the same page that the professionals use. And in fact, until I moved it a second ago in order to not be blocked, where is that thing over here? I'll show you my non-repro blue pencils. Oh, here they are. Look at this. I have my supplies. Supplies right here. Uh, nine repro blue pencils combined with this board and the board has on top of that lettering guides so that you can do your nice neat capital letters and then a space to draw underneath and to be able to learn how to take any complex idea and deliver it in four panels with a minimum of words restricted by the space that you're given on this board is an incredibly invaluable tool in today's day and age. It, so that's a long way around saying that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. I've been applying uh, my superhero, my, my superpower, which is storytelling, towards all kinds of amazing global projects. But we don't travel now, or mm -hmm. at least travel is very limited. And even if I do travel, there's nowhere to stay. There's nowhere to go. Nobody's meeting. So what do I do? So I would say that my third, not necessarily joy, but benefit from this period, it has been introspection, learning to stop running around and find a stillness and an inner, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a new 
realization of, of what it is that I want to do and who I am. And it, 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 it's very Zen. I'm not describing it very well, but I'm sure there are listeners and perhaps even you who have found the same experience where slow down and smell the roses. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm doing. I mean, I, I take long walks now. I, I enjoy the, and appreciate the little things like never before. So I would say that's the third thing. Yeah. See, I, I just like to, to talk about it because I feel like there are some positive aspects to COVID. You just have to work through to, to get it out there, but, but absolutely slowing down and taking care, even if it's with other people too, I think reforming relationships or making a point of seeking people out, especially when we were in quarantine and you had to come up with inventive ideas in order to talk to other people. I think that that was great. I think it strengthened friendships for me. Absolutely. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I reached out to somebody from a, a contact from 2011. Oh. Yeah. That uh, uh, I, I hadn't even thought about for many years, but why not? That's yeah. what people are doing in this day and age. And this has given us license to do that, to, to make those connections mm-hmm. or to reconnect. Absolutely. You said you're in oncology now. Yeah. So I'm, well, I'm just working at a cancer clinic. I'm, I call myself the COVID bouncer. So basically I, ask questions to gauge whether or not they have any of those symptoms. I prevent visitors from going in, which is actually really hard since it's a cancer clinic and and people going through treatment want their visitors there, but just it's small. So we don't want that. Um, And then, yeah, I'm just connecting with the doctors and things like that. And because of the building and where I am, I'm also like an info desk and I help with wheelchairs. I do it way more than my job description, but it's been, I've enjoyed it because I'm serving in a different capacity than I did as a teacher. And that's really all I want to do with any of my professions is to serve some sort of community. So, so three questions, see if I can remember them all because sure. I'm cold, old with the sea. <laughs> Number one, uh, do the wheelchairs have handles on them? They do. Cause I've got to push them. Ah, there you go. Okay. Number two, uh, are you working remote or are you still going in? And before I forget, number three is what skills do you bring from being a teacher to this position? Yes, I, I am not remote. So it's in person. So I see all of the, the patients that come through, which is only true of me, actually. And the what did I learn? I taught mostly middle schoolers. And but I also ran up to to seniors as well. And so some of the hostile patients that come in or visitors, I treat them as if I were treating my little middle schoolers who are complaining about dress code or something like that. Just very calm, no affect. I'm not being affected. You know, I'm not being affected by their harsh words. I'm not raising my voice. And I just calmly tell them, you know, the reason why they I can't allow a visitor. And so that has actually helped me a great deal. (laughs) Uh, Do you have your uh, uh, grappling gun? to uh, take care of them in the Man, event that I wish. you need to wrap them up and <laughs> hustle them out? Oh, I wish for some of them, for sure. Uh, and I have to ask you another question, which is a bit of a change of the subject, but I'm curious, what got you into comics and what got you into Barbara Gordon specifically yeah. whenever that was? Yeah, so comics, right before nap time, I guess I was a toddler or something like that, my mother used to read me these like Fleer baseball cards mm-hmm. that had superheroes on them. So a superhero image on the front and then on the back stats, or it could be, I know, I know in particular there was one of like the thing versus um, Hulk or yeah, that's what it was, the thing versus Hulk. And so it would talk about what issue that appeared in and what happened. So she would read me those and I'm really close with my brother and he was big into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I think it all kind of came together 
And then with Barbara Gordon, I had surgery on one of my feet, like 2005 or something like that. And I have known of her from Batman, the anime series. But during that, I was just trying to find different reading materials and things to watch. And I got Batgirl Year One. And I fell in love with that character. And um, I just had a, a deep appreciation for her and just wanted to explore more. So ever since then, I've just been trying to find uh, new stories to read. And then I'm a big dick and bad shipper. So at one point I was trying to find all these issues that I could with the two of them in there. So I have like some really random issues in my long box, but that that's really where it started. I think was back row year one, which I feel like is apropos. Uh, and by the way, a little bit of show and tell again, apologies for people who are listening and not watching, but I have a little <laughs> treat for you over here. A little oh. original art. Wow. Now, can you read the inscription? Does that show up? Huntress, not Batgirl for, <laughs> for Jordan. And Man. I don't know, right? Everybody calls me Gorf, which is like frog backwards, so now you won't forget it. But <laughs> I, guess, I guess when I was a wee tot, I was a little more formal and wanted my real name on here. And I don't remember why Joe Staten, it's Staten, not Staten, it's not, mm -hmm. he's not, not named after the island, who created or co-created Huntress with Paul Levitz, the great Paul Levitz. Uh, I don't know why he wrote that, Huntress, not Batgirl. But, and I don't even know why I asked for Huntress specifically. You know what? I bet I know why, because he was the co-creator. And I thought, well, I got to ask for a character that he created. Well, it's um, ironic but because... But you were talking of, about... Yeah. Oh, you, I assume you got that before No Man's Land, right? Oh, gosh, yes. There's no okay. year on it, but this must have been from... This must have been from the late 70s or early 80s. Okay. It's just ironic I'm because guessing. she does become I mean, Batgirl. Was created in JSA. Oh, okay. By the way, you're right. Oh, by the way, you're absolutely right. I think I need to <laughs> so the inscription's ironic, yeah. Amend that. Uh-oh. Wow. Thank you for pointing that out. That's really something. Only because, yeah. boy, you're, you're was right. that Maybe a... that's where I got the idea. I Maybe. I all these years. <laughs> Subliminal idea, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're in the main event. Yeah, that, right. So, oh. Oh. Did you okay, have something else? Okay, so I've invited Gorf on no, no, to, go ahead. <laughs> to talk three random issues, 36, 37, and 38 from Bridget Four Ray. hours later, because Gorf won't oh, be quiet. Is it? No, we're good. We're good. So I'm going to do the recap. And... and by the way, I apologize. I keep talking over you, which I just did right now, uh, because there seems to be a little bit of a delay. So I'll apologize to everybody. I, I don't mean to step over you. Go ahead. Recap. That's fine. I'll, I'll have good, good space and things in between. So I'll do the recap and then we'll talk about things. Of course, we'll talk about the, the cover and the art. And I do have digital copies so I can do the, the fancy screen share and we can talk about some things. But, uh, you know, as a, uh, a preface of this, I feel like these aren't super deep issues. So I don't know how much time we'll spend on them, but just to, to chat about them, I think will be good and then bringing in your expertise just on uh, like uh, tie-ins and events and things like that. So we will start with 36, which hey, Just was to be clear, I, I didn't work on these issues, folks. So I'm coming to it as a fan who, believe it or not, read these issues for the first time when <laughs> Stella asked me to look at them. I never, because I, I, like I said before, when I left, I left and I just wanted to uh, leave the runway clear for the next plane to land. So go ahead. Yep. So Birds of Prey number 36, Canary Caged, and this was a tie-in to Joker's Last Laugh, and it takes place after Joker's Last Laugh number two, just FYI. Cover date 2001 of December, writer Chuck Dixon, penciler James Fry, inker Andrew Pipoy, colors Gloria Vasquez, Pipoy. and Pipoy, Pipoy, thank you. Okay, 
Peepoy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is why it's helpful to have a professional on but, to correct how I pronounce names. Right. And I didn't realize that saying Peepoy would bring the house down and, you know, create complete silence. But there you have it. No, I appreciate it. And then I don't normally, but because of our guests, I'm going to have the associate editor is Michael Wright and the editor is Matt Idelson. Okay, Black Canary is trapped inside Slabside Penitentiary, along with a host of villains infected by the Joker, making them even more crazed than ever. Her sonic cry is able to give most of them pause, but Joker sends Copperhead and Hellgramite, or Hellgramite after her, as neither have ears. After dealing with them, she is briefly confronted by the Shadow Thief before meeting, to her great relief, Batman, Superman, and Mary Marvel, of all people. However, she soon spots that Marvel's lightning bolt is backwards, and the heroes are revealed to be an illusion created by Spellbinder, the first of the female villains affected by the Joker. Much later, Canary is comforted by Blue Beetle and Oracle, even though she was sucker punched by Spellbinder. She did later warn Nightwing and Batman of the Joker's wider reaching plans, effectively saving their lives. And then there's a bonus feature called The Minuscule Adventures of Mini Multi Man. <laughs> and Mini Multi Man is thrown in Joker's pocket, but he cuts his way out only to potentially be lunch for Mr. Mind. So that is issue 36. Okay, so I do like, and I'm glad that you are also an artist, so we can talk about that. So I like to talk about the covers and then, of course, the internal art. And this cover was by Ed McGinnis and Jason Martin, because we, we took a break from and we'll get back to Phil Noto. Any thoughts on this particular cover? For we, We've got Dinah with a shocked face, and we have some creepy crawlies around her. <laughs> kind of a standard cover. Uh, my only thought is rather phallic. Rather phallic. Oh, interesting. Yeah, sorry. No, don't <laughs> apologize uh, with her or with the, oh, with the uh, the creepy crawlies because they're wrapping around her. Yeah, I would not have approved a cover like this for that reason. Oh, wow. This is exciting. I really like this. And then there's a little catchphrase at the bottom. I don't know. The early worm gets the bird. The, yeah. Right. Ouch. Interesting. Yeah. yeah and little, I mean, little, there's little that. Little punny there. <laughs> There is that, I mean, now that you say it, of course, it's opened up something, but like the tentacle porn or whatever, and I think we've seen it with like Wonder Woman and things being wrapped around her legs, and you're like, what's going on right now? So yeah, now that you've opened that up, uh, I can totally see what you're talking about. Yeah, and I have a feeling, I, I don't know, but I remember the way these things were done back then, uh, that for a crossover, a lot of the covers were planned as a group. Okay. Uh, the, the editor didn't necessarily have complete control over what the co cover image would be. Okay. That there was a, uh, there was a it, an imprint style that would be imprinted on all those covers. I imagine uh, that this had something to do with that. So I don't know if it was completely in Matt Idelson's control or not. Gotcha. Uh, but again, I, that that I'm operating as a fan right now. Although I I made a professional constructive criticism as well. But I'll, I'll tell you why. I think that the phallic issue is uh, a problem in general, which is, and I don't want to get on a high horse here, if this is just one man's opinion, so take it with a grain of kosher salt. Comics are still unfairly maligned as a children's medium in uh, North America. And when comics are featuring mainstream characters, particularly Batman characters, my strong feeling is that parents, by and large, 
are not savvy enough to be able to judge when something is a for mature readers or not. They assume, mm. oh, Batman. My kids like Batman. This is a Batman comic. I'll give it to my kids. Uh, so for something like this, I think that there would be some some parents who would object to this kind of imagery. And I'm not saying that we should uh, support any kind of... Um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, what do you, uh, censorship. I don't know why I couldn't think of that word. That we sh- uh, but I do think that we have to be sensitive to the audiences that get their hands on this material. And it's not our job to be a parent, but I think it is our job to be sensitive to the brand and the identity that comes across. And I'm sure the corporations are sensitive to that. It's bat nipples, anybody? And I would always try to, to, to and, and not always succeed, because if you look at uh, some of the stuff that came out under my watch, you'll see that I'm a total hypocrite, and I own that. Uh, but I would try, especially with Birds of Prey, which I did have more or less total control over, or at least the buck stopped with me, or the bird stopped with me. I would try very hard to be respectful of um, female imagery. And that's why, for example... Uh, when uh, we were redesigning the Black Canary costume, there were two things that I specifically wanted. One was I wanted her butt covered because I didn't see why, I don't see why a female superhero is running around in shorts in the first place. Why would you leave your legs exposed? I mean, you could get injured. Putting that aside, this is fantasy and we take, uh, um, we take uh, interesting uh, creative liberties here. Like, for example, I love Gail Simone's um, justification for the fishnets returning. She figured uh, the fishnets were uh, some kind of armored fishnets mm. and were giving her legs extra protection. Yeah. I, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> um, so that was one thing. I, I wanted the clothes to be reasonably modest. And again, not trying to censor, not trying to be a Puritan. I just felt that that was appropriate to the brand and the potential audience. And the second thing was I wanted her to have a change of clothes because I love, I think you enjoy Batman family the same way that I do those old Batman family titles. And one of my favorite stories was uh, Robin at Hudson University, who's uh, on a lookout and he's still wearing his Robin costume with the shorty shorts and the elf boots and all that. And he's in the snow and he's trying to wrap his cape around him for warmth. And I'm thinking, dude, just put on a jacket, put on a pair of pants. I mean, really? So when, when Black Canary goes into cold weather, she should have a jacket to wear. She should have pants to keep her legs warm. A, it's logical. And B, people like style. People change clothes. Why does it all have to be this monolithic, you know, she always wears this thing? No, she should wear what's appropriate to the situation. So anyway, there's a little bit of insight into uh, why the costume was designed in, in, in multiple iterations. Yeah. I'm also noticing now that uh, that I'm at a distance from this comic that there's a silhouette of Joker behind her, which I didn't notice when I was reading oh, yeah. in my uh, digital. But I kind of, you know, it would have been better That's to have cool, Spellbinder creative. on there because at least you could have a couple women. But I guess that was the big feint that Dixon did that you didn't know it was Spellbinder was. Right. Uh, going to trick her out. So I guess you couldn't really do that. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. And, I, and credit to the editor for realizing that and the cover editor, I, um, Curtis King, by the way, was the cover editor for a very long time. And I think somebody before was struggling to remember his name, might've even been Chuck. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to Curtis who did a magnificent job over so many years 
creating a, a, a seamless collection of covers that were uh, both independently original and collectively mm. all of a piece. So uh, one of the unsung heroes of a long period in DC Comics history. And uh, another person who deserves a serious shout out is Mark Chiarello, who is the, uh, was the uh, uh, vice president of design, if I don't remember his exact title, but one of the most intuitive, brilliant uh, designers in comics history. Uh, he had a hand in taking things to the next level when he came on board. He's also a great person, and he looks just like Mark Hamill. So oh. <laughs> he's got a lot of stuff going for him. Man, lucky guy. Uh, well, okay, also, we, we're, we're... Yeah, well, I was just going to continue ahead. with the art. Uh, with Dinah, I noticed that her, uh, her tatas, as they call them, are a, a bit larger and more pronounced in this particular issue. And I was going to ask also the ending with the terry cloth robe and being <laughs> just... I don't know. Oh my gosh. But I, I, I wondered that, I if you had it. any say with the artists. Like, did you ever ask them to scale back cup sizes at all with any of the characters when you were on this particular book? Or did Chuck? Not as much as I wish I did. Let's okay. just put it that way. And it's not because there aren't a large breasted women or small breasted women and sure. so on and so forth. You know, like yeah, Power Girl. They, they took what was a, 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 a terribly misogynistic um, a portrayal and turn it into a, uh, a story asset, and, uh, or at least tried to. And uh, over here, I think that in the pose of Black Canary with her very loosely opened uh, terry cloth robe, yeah. uh, I actually think that the artist wasn't trying to do something uh, titillating. I think that instead <laughs> the artist was drawing from classic art, you know, I see like Da Vinci, a Da Vinci type pose mm -hmm. in this. I thought, well, here's a great opportunity to draw something artistic and illustrative and take it and also drawing folds um, in, in material is one of the hardest things to pull off and do well. Mm -hmm. Staz Johnson, the best folds guy in the industry. That Ooh. guy can draw folds in in drapery like nobody else. Uh, I, uh, and I haven't been in touch with Staz regrettably in a long time, but uh, I, I used to call him the, the trousers guy, both because he would call them trousers being from uh, across the pond and because, boy, did he make a realistic looking set of pants. Uh, so over here, I think it was the artist really kind of doing something beautiful and artistic in a classical way. And although it's really out of place storytelling wise, it's quite a lovely drawing. Yeah. Anyway, regarding uh, the, the uh, you know, the breast sizes and, and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's an example right there where you've got, uh, I, I don't want to go into specifics. I mean, it's, it's easy to joke about this stuff, but sure. um, the, 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 um, uh, the artists are, uh, let me, let me switch topics to give you an example. In your uh, No Man's Land podcast, you were talking about Cassandra Batgirl mm. and how she was drawn as a realistically proportioned teenager in some issues. And then this bombastic sex goddess in other issues. Yeah. Why was that? You'd go from one to the other and you get whiplash. Mm. Uh, and the answer was because Mike Diodato was an artist who drew in a very uh, exaggerated superhero-y way. And every character he drew was like that. And he was very popular for that kind of art style. And we let Mike Diodato be who Mike Diodato was. And people loved that stuff. And within the context of his own artwork, it made sense. 
in the context of the whole, it may have been a little bit jarring, but nevertheless, we gave them a little bit of freedom. And then you had other artists uh, who would draw her more age, um, I don't want to say appropriate, but more like the age that she was and more alive and, uh, and slender and smaller in cup size, the way, I don't remember how old she is, 16, 17 years old, the way somebody like that really would be. Um, so there is a, a wide variety and there's uh, a place to let artists have their artistic freedom. Where I would draw the line is just simply the absurd. And when you have one breast going in the left to the left and one flying mm -hmm. to the right, yeah. uh, you know, or they're, they're, uh, they're jutting up in the air like, to poke your eyes out, you know, for me, that's just like, come on, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm only uh, objecting to things that I think are absurd okay. rather than things that are fair artistic interpretations. Okay. How's that? Yeah. And this, this picture that you're showing, by the way, uh, we've got proportion issues going on in this, in this drawing of Black Canary. Her mm -hmm. head is too big. Um, the right arm is uh, huge compared to the left arm. The, uh, the torso is tiny uh, compared to the legs. Now, I realize we have superhero proportions. And in superhero proportions, they're not realistic proportions. I forget what it is, but it's, it's seven, eight, sometimes nine heads to every body. I forget oh. what it is. Whereas a realistic proportion is four or five heads to a body uh, using the head as a measurement. And over here, I mean, despite the fact that the head is too big, you still have a, a crazy out of whack, out of proportion figure. If, and it's not very... Uh, uh, it's not very pleasant looking either. I don't know what happened. Maybe uh, likely the artist was in a rush. You mm. know, there was a deadline. You're in a huge crossover. Uh, and the, the, uh, the, uh, the penciler is flying through it. I mean, there are no backgrounds here, which probably gives me another hint yeah. that things were running really behind, which happens on a crossover. So again, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to the artist who was trying his best under tough deadline circumstances. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's another missile, missile silo uh, <laughs> anatomy over there. I was like, what's happening there? <clears throat> right, and then you've got... waste. <clears throat> right, and then you've got the, uh, the behind shot with you know two oh, full sure. moons so you just can't yeah. win yeah yeah james fry anyway <clears throat> he's not my favorite on this one on birds of prey i mean uh, i think james fry did a run on star trek oh interesting like the, the 80s star trek comic and my recollection is his storytelling was terrific his likenesses were wonderful i remember him doing a really great job so it just may be that you know he, he let his uh his fanboy fly a little bit on this one mm, gotcha uh, so this issue, I, I will have done uh, Joker's Last Laugh with another guest. So uh, we see some of this happen in that main story, but we really get her point of view. It fills in the gaps of some scenes in that story. We get more time with her. I feel like she's given more agency, just that she's able to fight. She's kind of knocked out quickly in the other one. And I was wondering for you as an editor of events or crossovers, do you try to make it so that there aren't repeat scenes in tie-ins? Do you like to have things connect, but not, you know, replay the same scenes over again? Or how much overlap is there given to the readers? Uh, since some readers might not pick up the event, but just like if I were buying Birds of Prey at this time, maybe I'm just getting Birds of Prey, but I'm not getting Joker's laughs, last laugh. What, how do you balance that? Right. And by the way, if, um, I was on the phone right now with Scott and Darren, the bad guys. We would have said, Jim balanced that. Oh. Because <laughs> we, we do a lot of artist puns. Okay. Right? Yeah. But, but that's another James fish to fry. 
Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, well, Paul Levitz at that. That was a bad one. <laughs> um, we, we, we go on forever, and I will spare you that right now. You ask an excellent question, and it's a much larger, all-encompassing question than you think. Because if you consider that a crossover series is being edited by a whole cadre, a whole staff of editors, and being created by a global confederation of artists, writers and artists, you realize the monumental task of trying to make it all fit together. And especially when you combine it into trades, things that may not have been obvious at the time become super obvious. Mm. You know, oh, we, we hit this beat too many times or we didn't hit this beat enough or we were clear about this or we weren't clear about that. It's, it's really tough. But if, as Denny would say, we do our jobs right, then you have all the information you need within the issue that you're reading in order to understand what's going on. And even though these stunts, as we used to call it, I don't know if they call it that anymore, these stunts were definitely created to motivate readers to buy comics that they otherwise wouldn't buy because they want to be completists. Mm -hmm. and, and we're not doing that because we want to take their money. I mean, obviously we want to feed our families and, and be profitable. Uh, we're doing it because we want to expose them to other reading experiences, other characters and worlds and so forth that they otherwise might not uh, pick up. And hopefully by doing that, a few things happen. One is they enjoy the story more fully. Two is they uh, begin to follow that series. And three is a series that may not have been doing well will get uh, a little extra gas in the tank from its association with the more popular, well-selling series. So from a context, continuity standpoint, everything you need to know needs to be in that one issue. Okay. Marvel used to do uh, recaps at the top of each uh, 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 splash page. Mm -hmm. You know, who the X-Men are, how many times did I read, and Wolverine with his unbreakable ad adamantian claws, <laughs> right? Over yeah. and over and over again for hundreds of issues. And, and more recently, they would put it on the inside front cover, and that would be the summary. And now they're getting even more creative. But Marvel was always great about it. With DC, the philosophy was less about having that descriptive prose at the beginning that would give you the setup, would give you the context. It was more about working in the details that you need to know within the context of the story, which relates mm -hmm. to what you ask about, which is what, what about repeating scenes? I can tell you as an editor if I felt that a scene needed to re be repeated, either because it came from, from the, by executive fiat, they said, uh, my bosses would say, these things must be shown for whatever reason, uh, or it's because we felt internally that storytelling wise, it's better to repeat a scene. Hopefully you show it from a different perspective. So instead of it being shot for shot, exactly the same thing, you're showing it from a different angle. Uh, I'm gonna jump over to Marvel for a second, but one of the most wonderful examples of that is, for those of you who uh, have watched the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, and I'm sure most of us, not all of us have, in Civil War, you introduce Spider-Man and you see it from the Avengers perspective. And then you go to the first Spider-Man movie, uh, uh, what's it called, Far Homecoming. From Home? Homecoming? Homecoming, Homecoming, thank you. That was the second one. Homecoming, and you have this Marvel engaging and creative recreation of the scene because it was important for the for the the audience to understand what had happened but they didn't want to repeat it verbatim so instead they did it from a very teenager point of view i'm not going to spoil it here if you haven't seen it go and 
watch it, a very teenager point of view, which gave you all the information, but not by repeating it, by reinventing it, by elevating it, by showing you a different angle. And, uh, and I, as an editor, I, I think that's what I would try to do. Gotcha. That, thank you, because I wasn't sure. Uh, and I chose Spider-Man because I know you're a big Spidey fan. So there you go. I do. I do like the Spider-Man. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't have too much to say about this particular story. Do you have anything else you want to do with, uh, with this issue? Anything else you would say? The, the only thing I would say is good going creative team. It's tough <laughs> to do these tie-ins. And yeah. uh, uh, I'm sure you gave it your all. And whatever constructive criticism we're giving you is uh, out of love. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this works, obviously, since Chuck is writing Joker's Last Laugh and this, because you see the scene where Dinah's not using her now fully healed canary cry in Joker's Last Laugh and Babs is wondering, why aren't you? And then here it's answered that she's actually saving it for something big and she's a bit nervous about it. So it Which works. Which is a cool little Chuck's touch. New. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think if it oh, were yeah. anyone else, it might have slipped through the cracks, but because yeah, well, Chuck look, is doing everything, yeah. We're not talking uh, about Chuck, and I can't give him enough accolades. Um, uh, as a writer, he brings uh, a unique blend of, and he makes it look so easy, <laughs> but it comes from, uh, from so much hard work and experience. A unique blend of, of plot arcs and what I like to call the emotional arc. Mm. And I don't know if I... I coined that phrase or if I got it from somewhere else, I was already using it in the 90s. And that to me was what was at the core of Birds of Prey. Every story had to have both. You had to have your action, you know, your plot. This happens, that happens, we beat people up and all that. But also you had to have the emotional arc. The characters had to go on a journey inside their heads as well as physically. And it's the emotional connection that we make with the characters that keeps us coming back. Yes, you buy in for the action, but you come back for the emotional arc. And one of the things that I think has been lost in all the iterations of Birds of Prey and other media, uh, the television show and, uh, well, I can't speak to the movie, so let let me just talk about the television show. Uh, and, And by the way... Jeanette Kahn, the former president of DC, she hired me at the time to write the Bible that pitched the show to become mm. the, picked up the television show. And the thing that they missed was the heart was the was that okay. So I have to go into this. I think I touched on this in the panel you were at the San Diego on Birds of Prey panel, but it's an important thing over here. The genesis for Birds of Prey for me was that I wanted to see women, female superhero characters, treated like. I thought women in my own, you know, limited male way, but good writers could write anybody or anything. So um, uh, unlike what many people on the internet will tell you, and I'm sure to get lots of rotten tomatoes thrown at me, but you know, uh, if I could write a green skinned alien completely out of my imagination that doesn't exist, then surely, don't call me surely, I can write a character based on 50% of the population that's around me all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay putting aside my not stand soapbox. Uh, my point here is that Bert, I, when I created Birds of Prey, I wanted it to be very relatable and have that verisimilitude of the relationships that women that I had observed have, which is they share their thoughts, they share their feelings, you know, they'll gossip and, you know, have fun and all of that, like all of us do. But there is an emotional depth to a close relationship 
uh, that women have where they will, um, uh, that I don't think many men have or feel comfortable having, at least in the classic sense. I think mm. we've come a long way as a society, and I'm not going to get into all that. You got to remember, we're in the 1990s right now. Uh, hopefully, I've evolved since then. Uh, I'm trying very hard not to get myself into trouble with the things that I'm saying, and I'm doing a very poor job of it. The relationship that I based it on, funny enough, was the relationship from the first Die Hard movie. And for those of you who don't remember, you had a cop, John McClane, who's uh, thrown into a crazy situation where he's inside of a skyscraper and cut off from everybody. And the only help that he has is the advice being given by the African-American cop who's on the outside and speaking to him through the walkie-talkie. And they would, and, and they never met. Throughout the entire story, they never met. And they formed this wonderful relationship where one is the brains and one is the brawn. And I thought, well, here we have two characters. One is emotionally scarred uh, from a rape and the, and the Mike Grell issues, which is the reason she lost the canary cry. And one is physically disabled in a wheelchair shot by the Joker. How interesting would it be to pair these people up, but to never have them meet? And add that tension, uh, or, or even that ten tension release. It's much easier to talk to somebody that you you're you're not tangibly in touch with. Because <laughs> then, uh, it's much easier to talk to somebody freely. Uh, Thank you. Uh, you know, like uh, like Charlie from Charlie's Angels. Maybe it's it's a neat trope of of the genre. You know, yeah. the, the mysterious boss and. They one would be uh, helping the other to over together. They would be helping each other to overcome their individual problems. And I knew after a period of time they would eventually meet, come face to face. But uh, we kept it going as long as we could, which I thought was <laughs> a lot of fun. Just likewise, you know, we knew eventually that the uh, eventually it happened with the second uh, the second series uh, that there would we'd have to expand the team to encompass more than just two females. And Gail Simone on steroids, you know, brought it to uh, an unbelievable nader. Um, and uh, and this brings me back to Chuck Dixon. He could do the emotion and feather light but with such depth and such feeling, and again, very similitude, where you just loved these characters, that, that there is no bad Chuck Dixon comic. There's only good and great. And even in an issue like this, where it's a crossover <laughs> and there are all kinds of other competing uh, priorities in a crossover comic, it's still great Chuck. It's got all the action. It's got all the heart. It's got the emotional arc. It's got the character arc. It's got the plot arc. It's got suspense, the twist, the, you know, it's got all of it. And that's just, I, I can't give Chuck enough credit for that. That's why his Robin was just so wonderful. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So yay, Chuck. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I'm going to give this a rating, but I don't expect you to just because it might, you might feel awkward to do that. Thank, yeah, thank you. I do feel awkward. So yes, I'm, okay. I'm going to take an out on that. Go That's ahead. Fine. But wait, don't, don't you have to decide uh, what uh, kind of rating it is? Yes, like, it's out of 10 pink terry cloth robes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Op open or closed? Oh, well, I would prefer it closed. But, okay. um, you know, closed yeah. terry cloth robes. Yes. I think I'm going to give it a six. So, probably the lowest I've given um, Chuck. But I didn't like Joker's Last Laugh as much as I've liked other Dixon things. So, I'll, I'll just say that. But that's fair. He's a man. Yeah. He can take it. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, so we'll and a move six on. Is great. I mean, I've only heard, I, I haven't heard all of your podcasts, but I've only heard somebody ever rate something below a five 
once. So you guys are, uh, yeah, you guys are very uh, generous graders. We try to be optimistic and positive. I want you to be my teacher because then I know I'll always get an A. (laughs) Not always, but I am. Not always. No, work with me here. Okay, Uh, go ahead. Okay, so moving on to Birds of Prey 37. So now we'll be out of it, though. There are some repercussions that we'll we'll talk about with the the Babs and the Dick scenes. So this is Red, Black, and Blue. January 2002 is the cover date. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Marcos Martin. So the Dream Team is back. Inker Alvaro, Alvaro Lopez, colorist Wildstorm, associate editor Michael Wright, and editor Matt Idelson. Blue Beetle, Black Canary, and Robin pursue Jokerized escapee Genome, taking him slash it out more quickly than expected. They then set out in pursuit of the Condiment King, a little-known villain last seen when defeated many years ago by the original Robin and Batgirl, as seen in Batgirl Year One. When they catch up with him, however, they find that he's become somewhat more dangerous than uh, his previous incarnation his condiments are now able to cause serious injury for those unlucky enough to come into contact with them including deadly anaphylactic shock and he plans to set off a huge mustard bomb which will cause much devastation blue beetle comes to the rescue with a convenient barrel of milk because they're at an ice cream shop, which is able to neutralize spicy foods quickly. He also uses his bug to get the mustard bomb to safety before it explodes. Meanwhile, Oracle tries to get through to Dick, but he continues to act in a hostile manner, thinking no one else can understand what he's going through. So that is Birds of Okay, well, that was an excellent, that was an excellent catch-up. It's certainly, I hope so. Okay, let us... That, that was the, my condiment king pun. Oh, oh, I didn't catch oh. it. I let you down. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. I because I I saw Chuck wrote wrote the old relish joke in there. Oh, and uh, figured figured I would. Uh, I, I'm trying to find a pun quickly, you know, with mustard, but I don't I don't got it. I was really impressed by the creativity Chuck showed in. Um, evolving the Condiment King character into a really scary and genuinely frightening uh, villain. I know. Absolutely. Yeah. So he did his research too. You know, the spicy foods and the milk. Clearly. Yeah. And the, uh, what's that rating called? Um, Or the scale, the, of the, the spicy foods. I can't. Well, Oh yeah. Yeah. Where he's talking about that. Cause I thought maybe there'll be a ghost pepper. Well, I'll find it. Uh, But let's first talk about, so now we've got, the amazing Phil Noto. He is back. And of course, we'll I talk about Marcos Martin as well. I can't believe he didn't do a villain called Ghost Pepper. Oh, that would have been good. Yeah. Although that might be better for Iron Man. Oh, Ghost Pepper. Interesting. Yeah, because of Pepper Potts. Uh, exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just want to be sure I was tracking with right. you. Uh, what do you think right. about... Well, we're talking about this issue. I'm just milking it for all it's worth. Yeah. No, <laughs> no worries. Uh, what do you think about this particular cover here? United Against the Deadliest of Foes. We've got Robin, Black Canary, and in the foreground, we have Blue Beetle. Uh, Phil Noto can do no wrong. I would agree. I, I, he's just... His coloring... Oh, I, I'm a big coloring guy. Uh, I think coloring is so important. And way back when, we had limitations on how we did our coloring, which is a whole episode uh, in and of itself but uh gloria vasquez is somebody that i cherry picked and and i begged them to give us digital chameleon to do our separations you guys probably even know what separations mean but uh i'm glad to see that that team 
carried through and Albie de Guzman on lettering. I, I don't know if he's on this issue, but he was on. Yeah, definitely. That's Albie's lettering. As an editor, you get to the point where you can see lettering and know who did it. This is before oh, okay. computer lettering, when it was all wow. hand done. Uh, Albie, great guy. Uh, and and uh, Gloria and uh, whatever. So great coloring on the interior, utilizing uh, great atmospherics and, uh, and color choices and blending to the degree that technology back then would let you. It's ironic that we're talking about this on a comic story that's called Red, Black, and Blue. Yeah. Uh, but getting back to Phil Noto for a second, it's just his, he, he's just a marvelous artist. Mm. I, I don't think this cover is terribly dynamic from the perspective of, of uh, you know, action or anything like that. But his execution of anything, even just, you know, a still figure is just so wonderful to look at that who cares? It's, it's, it's Phil. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, if I had to give one constructive criticism, it would be, and I'm looking at this very small on a, a phone screen. You know what? I bet this isn't the case with, uh, I'm, I'm going to get into the weeds here. Hang on. Let me pull up this cover on my own computer screen so I can see. Okay. Yeah. It's not an issue. With the thing that I was going to point out as much as I thought it was, but uh, see how uh, Black Canary's glove is of that. <laughs> it's of that. Oh gosh. What was it? It was Y30 B70 M60K10 tone, roughly. Okay. Yeah. And I just called up the CMYK mm -hmm. um, components because yep. back in the day when you were an editor and you looked at color, you had to be able to identify, usually we use a chart, but I did a lot of coloring back then and I memorized the color chart. And now I have this wonderful little parlor trick where I can look at any color around me and tell you what its CMYK composition is and be pretty close to right. And let me tell you folks, I was so popular with the ladies at parties <laughs> with that part, with that parlor sure. trick. The, right. People would go, there's the, what was the villain, the color King, the, what, what was the, the, the quilt master? Quilt, oh yeah. Yeah. Yep, uh, yep. Right. I was like that guy, that villain, but at parties. Oh, anyway, this bit isn't working. I'm going to move on. So my point here is you've got that uh, bluish gray glove right in front of the bluish gray portion of the costume. Mm -hmm. And I would have suggested uh, altering the color just slightly or perhaps putting a little more shadow on the edge of that to separate it more. Now, he does have a shadow falling from the hand onto the thigh, and mm -hmm. that definitely helps to pop it forward. But Phil does modeling. And I feel like there should be just a little bit of modeling on that so it's not as flat as it is. Such a minor nitpick, but, you know, if you want to get into the details here, there you go. Sure. Um, I'm not sure what's going on with that hand in the background. Yeah, I know. looks like that. there's like a, an arm with a squiggly on that. That's a little weird. And now I'm going to teach you about what we call the bad tangent. Oh. Folks, here we go. This is Comics uh, 401, Advanced Comics for you. And I believe I have to give credit to Mike Carlin for teaching me this. Do you see how, I don't know if you could zoom in on your screen, but can you zoom, zoom in on Black Canary's right arm, which is over uh, Robin's left leg, yeah. his left uh, thigh, Tim Drake. Yeah. see if I can. Can you get in there on that? Da, 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 da. Let's see if I can zoom in. I'm not sure if I can. Okay, well, folks, you can zoom in on yeah. your own screen also. Yeah. Take a look at... I'm going to ask you to follow the line of Robin's left thigh as it intersects with Black Canary's glove. And that's what it's doing. It's intersecting with it. 
That's called a bad tangent when mm. one straight line rubs up against another straight line. In comics, you never want to do that. You want to have overlap because what happens is if you just stare at that, it looks like she's got a pair of scissors on her hands that's wrapped around his thigh. Mm. But in fact, that hand is supposed to be popping forward from that thigh. And the way to do that is you want to overlap those lines. You don't want them to be contiguous. And this is very important for ballooning also. Folks, when you are placing your balloons, don't put two balloons uh, rubbing one right up against the other. Overlap them a little bit. And likewise, don't put the balloons so that they are uh, rubbing right against artwork, like a balloon that's rubbing right against the edge of a rooftop where a kid is playing with his Legos. Yes! It came back. It came back. You don't want to do that either because then it looks like the balloon is literally sitting on top of the object instead of being a completely separate uh, element that does not serve as an artistic. Well, it it doesn't serve a purpose in the storytelling and the art and the illustrations. It It is artistic in its own way and does serve a purpose. So... Remember that, folks. No bad tangents. And if I see you with a bad tangent, I would take out my ruler and whack you on the wrist. Yikes. What it, what's your opinion on the cover should, I don't know, telegraph maybe or speak more about what the story is inside? Like, for instance, for the most part, I mean, it's really about this right. team up, but we are missing condiment game. Yeah. Would that have been something that you would have wanted on there potentially? That's a good question. You know, the... Uh, well, you don't know. That's why you're asking me the question. The There was a little eye roll, self-eye roll for myself there for being silly. The purpose of a cover is to market the book. So if there is something going on on the inside that you think is going to be uh, a powerful sales tool, then use it. But if for whatever reason you have an image that you think is going to be more powerful without it, then don't use it. So it's really up to the uh, the editors to decide what they think is best. And probably in a case like this, uh, they told Phil, all right, these three characters are in it and here's the script. Now just be brilliant. And he decided this is what he wanted to draw. And it's beautiful. So we like it. Absolutely. Yeah. What's your opinion? What's my opinion on it? Yeah. I mean, Phil Noto, uh, I can, uh, I I agree with you. He can do no wrong. I do to a certain extent. I just remember, you know, Silver Age, they would literally take almost a page or a panel out of the story and put it on the cover. And so you can tell like, oh, this is about, you know, this is what's going to happen. And so I like it. It's, you know, dynamic, at least that they're moving and it's an interesting team up for sure. But just because on the inside, when you get to Condiment King and, and it's just like nostalgia, I would have loved to have seen him. But again, just going back to the argument for 36, that could have been showing uh, Dixon's hand and, and perhaps he didn't want to show that he was going to have Condiment King pop up. Yeah, by the way, Chuck, you missed an opportunity here because what I would have done was I would have had two pages side to side with Condiment King uh, rubbing mayonnaise on a sandwich so that we <laughs> called it, could have called it a two-page sandwich spread. Oh, my. Oh, my. You missed an opportunity, buddy. Sorry I wasn't there for you. Oh, dear. Okay, so I have two follow-up questions for you. Sure. Uh, number one is the same follow-up question that you had, which was, what is your opinion? Should the cover reflect? Is it better for the cover to reflect what's actually going on inside or not? I like for it to do that. Yes. Uh, that's one of the grievances is a bit heavy with the current 
as of 2001, Batgirl title with Cassandra Cain, just that they're sort of stock. They're just like, she's doing interesting things, but it has nothing to do with the story. And I kind of like a hint of what's going on in the story, even if it's uh, maybe to make things more dramatic and, and this is going to happen, but it's not as bad as it seems, that sort of thing. So I do like to have a hint of what's going on or going to happen. I'll ask my second question in a second, but uh, it, something just occurred to me. Have, did you get the, I don't know if DC still does it, but they do what they call coloring books, but basically they take the covers for a character and reproduce them in black and white, and they have a whole book collection of these things. Have, have you seen those? Yeah, I have the one for Batgirl, actually. So it's just stunning. I mean, I, I so geek out over looking at just the black and white line artwork. And I'd be curious at another time to go through with you those covers mm. and analyze them from the perspective of, does it tell the story of, the, can we tell what story it's going to tell mm. inside the book? Or is it just a standalone image that we find compelling and we would buy it anyway? Yeah. So divorced of the uh, interior pages, how well do these covers work? Yeah. And by the way, you don't have to do it with me. I, I recommend that as another episode with uh, your fellow co conspirators in the batman network okay so here's my second question i'm going to put you on the spot here sure but you've just taken gorf's uh, comic book 401 class at least the first class sure i want you to find for me the other bad tangent on this cover interesting is it blue beetle's armpit and dinah's leg there (laughs) that's a right that's a good thought but that's overlapping and that's a good thing so you have to find something that is meant to look like it's in front of another object, but, but it's, okay. because it's literally rubbing up against it, mm-hmm. instead it looks unintentionally like it, it's sitting or touching that object. Hmm. I'll give you a hint. Look above the word united. Oh. Is it Robin's gauntlet in the background? Ding, ding, ding. Okay. <laughs> yep. yep, you got it. So Robin's fingers are touching the doorway or the parchment or whatever that thing is supposed to be Mm -hmm. and i don't think that's intentional and i would have instructed the artist either keep the hand completely over the background or overlap the foreground a little bit now here's something interesting and again uh, for those of you who are just listening and not watching this uh i apologize but you can probably go online and find the cover of birds of prey number 37 which is what we're referencing Mm -hmm. look at the eye of the cover text united whoever laid out this text knew what they were doing because there's no bad tangent with this eye Mm -hmm. look how easily it could have been shifted just a couple of pixels to the right and the eye would have formed a terrible bad tangent with the background. But whoever laid this out knew better than that and fixed it. So these are the subtleties. I mean, we're really getting in the weeds here. These are the subtleties of what comic book professionals look for. And, uh, oh, and there's one other thing I would have done. Can you find the error, the costume error on Robin? Oh. This always, I always drove me nuts. And I realized it, it became an interpretive thing at a certain point where artists would feel free to design the costume or interpret the costume the way they wanted. But uh, is what it is the R? I, that's is a good the question. R the R may not be completely correct. Uh, I, I would have to go back and look. I don't remember well enough. But I do remember that the zipper is supposed to have four zippers, not three. Oh, okay. Interesting. You want continuity? There you go. Now, I'm not <laughs> going to get into on his belt how many you know wedges yeah. there are. Oh, my God. I'm not going there. 
Okay, we're too into the weeds here. Let's get back out of the weeds and yeah, have sure. some fun talking about the story. Yeah, so transitioning from of the cover to the actual story, uh, we've got these two male characters that are just sort of guest starring on the Birds team. Do you have any personal opinions on whether men belong on the Birds of Prey team, rather, either temporary or as full-fledged members? Temporary, fine. Full-fledged members, no. Okay. No, no men. Sorry, this is a ladies' club. Yeah, I mean that's what I, uh, I I agree with you. Yeah, and Ted's been in a couple times, so I feel like it's really easy to to write him in. And Tim has a great relationship with Barbara, so I feel like these two work. But to see him as full fledged, I, I couldn't see that. Yeah, no, bring him in, bring him out. That's fine. But uh, ultimately, I mean, I'll, I'll be, and I know there are people who will disagree with me on this, and that's fine. Ultimately, there are plenty of places to have team ups with men and women. This is the rare oasis to this day in comics where it's all women. And the and just from a storytelling perspective, this affords us the ability to tell stories that we otherwise might not have. Uh, you're, the school that you taught at um, was uh, separate genders or mixed? Mixed. Okay, because Latin, I figure, you know, you never know. It might have been a girls' school. So anybody who's had experiences... At, and I'm not telling you anything that the research hasn't really shown, but when you take men out of the equation uh, in a girls' school, uh, girls tend to, what, what am I trying to say here? They, they, they flower. They feel less intimidated to, to act or be a certain thing because there are boys around to impress. Uh, and Stella, before I put my foot any further in my mouth, am I speaking uh, accurately here or am I off base? No, I, I think that's true. Yeah, because they don't feel the need to impress somebody else. I, I think there is still a complex relationship with other females and there's that competition and, and trying to fit in and everything. But yeah, removing that male factor, I think, does change. You know, there's less pressure potentially. When you... Um, interacted with your students. And for that matter, you know, when you interact with your friends or your colleagues or anything else like that, do you see situations where de facto or on purpose, it's all women and you feel a change? Or um, is it, it depends on the group of people, not the gender? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, this job, actually, I'm basically only surrounded by females. The only males are the doctors. And it's almost like a breath of fresh air because at my school, there were less women than there were men. And uh, it's just, an, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic getting mansplained, you know, and you don't really feel like being mansplained and uh, things like that. So yeah, a absolutely. There's a change, even as an adult uh, with men involved versus all women. Yeah, by the way, as uh, that's exactly what I'm feeling right now, that I'm risking mansplaining <laughs> with what I'm talking about. And I can already hear Scott Peterson listening to this podcast and going, Gorf, 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 stop <laughs> it! So, sorry, Scott. I wish you were here. Maybe you'll have the three of us on at the same time, and then, you know, Scott will be there to protect me. <laughs> anyway, uh, so story-wise, you picked an interesting page. Yeah. Well, just, yeah, the nostalgia and, and getting to Condiment King and uh, seeing this with, uh, you got Dixon and Martine back together again, flashing back to back row year one. And of course you had those mm -hmm. emotional conversations with, everything seems to be coming together. Um, there's that cleanup, of course, with the, the Jokerized villain. So it makes sense, but it's also connecting. I feel like the big moment of this issue is the, are, are the 
the big moment is. The big moments are the conversations the yeah, between uh, Dick and Babs. And so everything is sort of wrapped around there because she's remembering this guy and then that flashes to Dick and, and trying to yeah. help her out. But yeah, it was fun to see him again and yeah, not be this C-lister. I guess he's a C-lister, but he's just more dangerous now. Yeah, like I said before, I thought the reinvention of the character was really creative on Chuck's part. And over here, it's nice to see Robin with the shorty shorts again. Yep. And since it's not snowing, I'll allow it. Yeah. What did you think the tone was of this? Because, I mean, it seems serious. We'll, we'll get to, I do want to talk about that. But then there are moments where, is it this one? Oh, Poison Ivy popping it. Where, you know, Ted leaps over and guzzles it down. So it's like a light tone as well. Do you think there is this mixed tonal feeling or should we be thinking it's more serious what do you think well that's the wonderful thing about the hat trick that chuck pulls off he can balance different tones within his writing and i think the artwork does a nice job also and particularly the coloring does a nice job of cueing us as to what emotional state we should be in in this particular part of the story so if you go back a page or two when you have the babs stuff i think it's a little further back than that yeah that so take a look at what the colorist is doing and and actually it's it's the artist as well but the colorist is really teeing off from it all of the blacks uh, all the negative spaces this is really artwork that is speaking in the negative space not the positive space uh, do you know what that means by the way what negative space refers to artistically yes so for those of you who don't know Negative space is the spaces between the uh, the objects. So when you have, oh, the best example of negative space was the thing that, Stella, you pointed out on the previous cover, that um, the shape of the tentacles was forming a joker's head in the negative space. So go back to issue number 36 and look at that, and you will see a prime example, a very clever example of negative space. And over here, that the use of negative space is cueing us that we're in a more serious space. Yeah. Whew. And it's, it's a heavy conversation uh, just to catch people up. If you've not seen that part, but Dick kills the Joker at one point, but then the Joker comes back to life, but he's still really held up on, on the killing. Spoiler alert. I know. Well, hopefully they would have already seen that unless they're just coming on to see you. Uh, but right. yeah, there's Barbara's... no spoiler alerts for 20 year old comics. <laughs> That's true. Folks, also. Sorry. Yeah. Statute of limitations is up. Yeah. But I, I feel like these are just two really beautiful scenes with her really trying to talk to him and, and they're hard scenes too. I mean, this one's just her conversing to an answering machine. And then the other one, which I'll flip to, is uh, hard just to see his reaction to it. But I am—I call Batman Bat Jerk a lot, depending on what his actions are. Yeah. And uh, it was great to to see that at, she says, uh, "I'm not casting any stones, Dick. No one is, not even Bruce, because of all the people that I would think would say no. That's a bad thing. There, Dick would have been Bruce. And so the fact that he's on his side, I won't call him Bat Jerk this issue. But yeah. Oh. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think Chuck has a, a good sensitivity towards um, riding the razor's edge with Bruce's personality in that way. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to write a dark rooting character who doesn't come off as a jerk. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole part of No Man's Land to discuss about that, which we won't get into right now. Yeah. But um, if you want <laughs> to see, I think, one of the best uh, examples of this razor's edge of this balancing act between the Dark Knight and his more human side, 
uh, go read, I think it was Detective Comics 471 through 477. It's the Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers run. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's the one that introduced the, the laughing fish. Oh, um, okay. To my mind, outside of the comics I worked on, the best Batman story ever told. Okay. So wonderful. And one of my favorite scenes, oh, I can't pull it out for you right now, but I'm looking at a Marshall Rogers original that he drew for me. Uh, to my mind, one of the best scenes and a scene that you'll love and I won't spoil is the interaction between Robin the Teen Wonder and Batman in the Batcave. And oh. uh, after you read it, come back and tell me that that wasn't wonderful. Okay. Because it's, really, it's so brief and it's so wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll come back. Uh, and yeah, this is the final scene between them where physically she's there talking to him. As far as I know, there aren't any handles, but there are in the next issue, sir. I did point them out. But she's, yeah, reaching out to him uh, empathetically because she's been there. She hated the Joker. She wanted him dead. Sure. Um, and then he says that he disgraced himself in both uniforms. And then the big thing is no more surprise visits, Babs. Don't make me sorry. I put this in an elevator in this building. I thought, yikes, this is rough. So this is a hard little bump that they've yeah. got in their relationship. Probably for the first time, the, the hardest one they've had. Yeah, that, I think that was kind of low of Dick, but yeah. he's in a very bad place. And mm -hmm. it signifies that. Absolutely. And one other thing about the wheelchair, the wheels are not on the right angle. Oh, interesting. They're, they're horizontal. Excuse me, they're vertical. They're vertical. Okay. Horizontal, that'd be interesting. Woo! Yeah. Wouldn't get far with that kind of wheelchair. Yeah. Too soon. <laughs> I guess it'd be like a, I don't know, one of those things they used to go on. It'd be a hovercraft. You. Yeah, there you go, hovercraft. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then I, I just said that uh, that whole scene was ironic given recent events in Batgirl where he asks for forgiveness and her to relate to him or reach out to him and she's basically no, which is not the Barbara Gordon I know. So this was interesting yeah. to read. But. And I'm just wondering in that penultimate panel, why is the ground checkerboard? Oh, the hallway? Yeah. I don't know. Not that we've ever done a map. At least I don't think we have of the clock tower mm -hmm. so, so what that's the other thing in no man's land i specifically created maps because that the story needed it lent itself to it and i thought wouldn't it be nifty to finally know where things went you know and and to have an actual geography it added to there's the word again verisimilitude of gotham city for that particular storyline but mm -hmm. it was never meant to be uh, the last word on the geography. And I'm pleased that over time, people have taken liberties and redesigned it and added other neighborhoods and changed things around. Although I do have a laugh that the very opening scene, here's, here's a deep dive for you, the very opening scene of uh, the Birds of Prey TV show uh, from, what was it, Fox, the WB, whatever it was on back the then. The WB, yep. Right, was my map done 3D. Oh, interesting. So they started with my map and then went into the story from there. Okay. The special effects don't hold up, but there you go. And by the way, when I say my, okay, <laughs> I, I came up with the idea perhaps, but a whole team realized it. Mm. Uh, there's a great Greg Rucka story around that map that we'll tell it another time. So many stories, a little time. Okay. I'm sure. Okay, yeah. let's go on. Yeah. Uh, I think this is all I had for this particular issue. Is there anything else you would want to talk about this? Uh, yeah, just a couple things. One is Marcos Martin. So here's a funny little story, and it shows how, once again, um, I am often wrong. The story is that Paul Levitz, who I think was the vice president at the time, came around with samples of an artist and said, you ought to use this guy. I think he's promising. And I looked at the samples and thought, 
this guy is six months away. By the way, that's what, our, that's what we used to always say. When somebody, we could see they had potential, mm-hmm. but there was still some amateurishness to their artwork. Okay. Um, it hadn't quite reached the level of professional, uh, a professional level yet. We used to always say they're six months away. In other words, go back, work for another six months, and then come back to me again. So we thought this guy, and that was Marcos Martin. Mm. And then the guy goes on to, by force of will or talent or God, or the combination of the three, to become a really marvelous artist. To the point where, I don't think you can see it behind me, but uh, here, I'll shine the light so you can see the background. Uh, on my shelf back there is the Batgirl, A Celebration of 50 Years hardcover. Oh, yep. Yep, yep. With a Marcos Martin cover. Mm-hmm. So Marcos... Uh, I tip the no man's land hat to you because you really figured it out and you've given us such wonderful stories and may you continue to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of my favorite artists, to be honest. So when I saw his name, I got so excited and it just fits, it fits the story. So I, I love it. Well, go back to that previous page with the explosion. Oh, the explosion. Yeah. (laughs) It's fun. Yeah. I just, it feels like. Look, look at the sound effect. Look at the sound. Boom. <laughs> right. It's it's not baboom. It's like baboom. Yeah. It's like it's like, you know, a, a, a Brooklyn baboom. It's like, hey, baboom. Oh, that just cracks me up. Yeah. No, I'm glad I'm glad you told that story and yeah, you brought him up because it was yeah, I love it. I, I, I really enjoyed this issue. I thought that it was fun and also heartbreaking too with those Dick and Babs conversations. Okay, uh, I agree. Uh, quick thing on this page over here. Sure. Back to Gorf's uh, 401. Please. Look at panel three One, two, and three. Yep. Uh, look at the first balloon. Albie, love you. <sighs> and I bet this wasn't Albie's fault. I bet I know what happened here. Look at that first balloon. You see how there's too much white space, too much negative top. space at the yeah. top? Uh-huh. You know what, what? What page are you on here? Let me look at it on my laptop. 19. No, 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 19. Okay, so it's not page 19 as in the PDF. 18. Uh, Eight, yeah, yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. I bet there was originally something there, another word, mm. and the editor said, you have, to, uh, you have to delete this. Okay. And that's why that white space is there. It just does not make sense that Albie would have done it this way. And as an editor, what I probably would have done is I would have asked I would have asked the production department to adjust the balloon around it. And they would have hated me because they would have said, it's pointless. Nobody's going to notice it. But what can I tell you? I'm just that way. Okay. And then uh, last panel, where's the bad tangent? And I'll give you a hint. Uh, It's uh, a balloon with an object. Oh, no. Is it the one by uh, Tim's head? Yes, it is. I think Tim's head overlaps it on the right, so I'll let that one go. Although I would agree with you that the hair is is forming a bad tangent, so mm-hmm. it's not completely successful. Um, I'd say the fist on the left side, it looks like she's punching the word balloon into oh, Tim's head. Interesting, yeah. And you're close to a bad tangent with that last balloon and uh, the condiment king's face. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but um, yeah. We'll, we'll let that one go. Yeah. All right. So, so there's there's my Gore uh, for 401 deep dives. For Thank this you issue. for that, Professor. My pleasure. And my... I think it's a Scoville. S- that is such a chilling it? image. Yeah. The one, uh, so, this one? Yeah. Yeah. Good gosh. Look at that. Yeah. Ooh, nice job. Yeah. He used to be such a fun guy. Oh, yeah, well, although I, I will say proportion, <laughs> proportion problems here. Uh, what do you think I'm going to criticize? 
probably the the top versus the bottom. Yeah, that's exactly right. We got some issues here. Uh, and and here's folks. Here's how you can tell. Take your hand and cover from the belt down and look at the top. Now take your hand and cover the top, but not the bottom. Yeah. Now look at it together and you can see how off it is. The yeah. top is way too big for the bottom. It's proportionally off. And I would argue that you, and I'm not looking closely enough at it, but I'd argue that you have a bad tangent between the bottom of the foot and the bottom of the panel border. Oh, okay. You know, it, it's little things, but the artists who get it, mm-hmm. you, you, there's just something subtle. There's something um, uh, uh, undefinable, but you, you get it when you look at it and you just know that this is good art. Mm-hmm. Uh, or this is somebody who's really proficient. Now, Marcos was still at the beginning of his career by this point. So we're going to cut him a lot of slack. There's a lot that's <laughs> wonderful about it. And, uh, and the guy's learning and improving. And, uh, uh, you know, he's, he, you're wonderful. Keep, keep up the good work. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm going to rate this out of 10 ghost peppers. Hey, that's right. Yeah. Uh, there weren't any of those. Let me think about this. I did really like it. I think an 8.5 out of 10 ghost peppers for this one. Wow. Love the art and the poignant conversations. And then especially the condiment king and, and having this team up was fun. Okay, so 8.5. So it's a hot issue. It is. A- <laughs> On the Scoville scale, yes. Yes. Okay, our final one. Getting did, back did to the. Did you look that up, by the way, or did you remember? I that? didn't, but I remembered it. I mean, oh, I could wow. I, I give you. I give you credit. I was just nice like, I job. think it's Scoby, but wait, no, that's in the that stuff that people drink all the time. Uh, <laughs> well kombucha, played. The Scoby. Uh, yes. Okay, so this is our last one. Getting back to the status quo of Babs and Dinah. So this is number 38, the next Yeah, that thing. dynamic has been absent the last two weeks, right? Completely. It sure has, yeah. It's not like birds of prey. It's like bird of prey and bird of prey. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so February 2002 is the cover date. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler James Fry again, anchor Andrew Peepoy, colors Gloria Vasquez, associate editor Michael Wright, and editor Matt Idelson. Black and Canary. letters by Albie de Guzman. There you go. Thank you. And notice, by the way, the color separations here are done by Wildstorm FX. Okay. What year did this comic come out in? It's 2002. 2002 but yeah. Right. Here, here's an interesting thing to look into because mm-hmm. you can tell a lot by who does what, um, what era this is. So this means that Wildstorm was probably purchased by DC Comics at this point, And they started using Wildstorm for the separations because now it's all in-house. They don't have to pay an outside vendor for this. It's all a line item budget on the internal budget. So uh, they still have Gloria doing it, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the near future you will see a credit box in which Wildstorm is doing everything and there's no longer an individual colorist credited Mm. for it. Because gotcha. again, you know, this is this is taking looking at the business side of things. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to amortize your costs. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that's just my conjecture. I could be completely wrong. Okay. Uh, so yeah, our synopsis here: Black Canary is climbing up the outside of General Robotics, a la Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, while Oracle is cozying the clock tower. Which Domo Origato, General Robot. Okay, <laughs> As absolutely like that. Uh, she is giving info and directions, which is her normal shtick. It seems 
that uh, General Robotics is about to roll out some new tech, and there are whispers of espionage effort from Relasian Electronics Giant, uh, which we all love Relasia. During a delivery, the saboteur kills a security officer and infiltrates the building. Meanwhile, Black Canary is stuck in an air duct while two nerds discuss sweets and Star Trek. An explosion occurs and Black Canary is not in time to prevent the saboteur being taken over by a colony of nanites, which use him as their environment. Black Canary... Ah, oh, the 90s. <laughs> Black Canary fights him while actively trying to avoid him because she's afraid that they'll take over her. It looks like she's going to share his fate until Oracle accesses the building's electricity and kills the lights, shutting him down as the nanites need that power source. The nanites then start to meld with the saboteur's body, feeding on him. He is later taken to the slab where a cure can possibly be worked out. And when asked what his name is, he says, we are Venom. I mean, we are Entity. Yep. So that well, well, is... Well done. I mean, uh, <laughs> it was basically that. Yeah. But by the way, one, one thing, one little bit I'll put in here as I was reading through it. Bab says, don't come in contact with him. And then Dinah kicks him. Isn't that coming in contact with him? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. okay. Phil Noto. Here we go. Little, yeah, our last oh, one. A little uh, yeah. Art Deco uh, steampunk kind of cover. It does, yeah, and it's got Oracle. So I have a friend, uh, Professor Carolyn Coca, and she had looked at all these covers throughout the ages. She she wrote a book um, called Superwoman Gender, and I can't now I can't remember what. But anyways, it's, that's okay. It's, I'll I'll have to look it up. Yeah, and she won an Eisner for it, so it is recommended. But she talks about the floating head of Barbara because often covers will have just her head. And then Dinah will be full-bodied. But here we actually see Dinah full-bodied, Babs full-bodied, and then, of course, the head representation of Oracle, which is great. And I love how the wheelchair itself blends into that machinery. So I feel like this is a really – I love this cover, actually. Yeah, this cover is really super. And I also really like the extremely muted palette of the the rest of the cover that helps the two figures pop uh, and the use of color – it, because it, it, you look at the color, you take away uh, Black Canary and uh, you just look at Barbara Gordon on this cover over here and she kind of matches. She's kind of within that palette. Black Canary is not at all within this palette. Yeah. She's, she's a thing of her own and, and he's, be, he's, he's not changing it up. He's not shifting the tones. I bet if you put this side by side with his other color, uh, covers, her coloring on her costume is consistent with what he always does and he totally makes it work. And, uh, and I think what helps it is you have the blue in the eyes and the blue in the window mm. and the blue in the little TV screen where it, mm-hmm. said, it says birds and prey, even uh, clever. The, uh, and I'm sure Phil designed it this way and then and said to the, the, uh, the cover editor, please put in the logo in, this, in such and such way. So the of goes over there. And it fits. And it's just, it's brilliant. One of my favorite, I, I'm going to, for those of you who are fans of wonderful coloring, I'm going to steer you to the Hanukkah brothers, uh, uh, Tomer and Asaf. And I always get them confused, which is which, but both, both of them are wonderful. Look up their work. They are uh, graphic novel uh, illustrators, and they have a philosophy of coloring that I think Phil Noto probably subscribes to, which is they will use as the foundation for their coloring two colors that are tones from the same color and one complementary color. 
So for mm. example, they'll use two shades of something that's red and then, or orange, and then they'll have green. And it's so lively and beautiful and sensible. And I think that's kind of what's going on over here. You have shades of uh, earth tones and then blue. And it's orange and blue. It's orange and green. These are complementary colors. Mm -hmm. And that's why it works so well. Absolutely. And just like I like some hints as to what's going on, I feel like with the steampunk version, you at least get a sense, you know, maybe with the electronics or what the building has going yep. on inside and everything. So a, a little bit of a hint. But yeah, I I think, yeah, absolutely. The contrasting and, and how Baz's chair blends in and everything, I think it works really well. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So when you analyze a cover, you always go back to what kind of relationship does it have with the story in, on the, in the yeah. interior pages? Good for you. That's, yeah. that's a very fair criteria to judge a cover by. Yeah. Well, because sometimes we've been or faked out. by and which then... to judge a cover. Yeah. There yes, have been times. You get faked out. Yeah. But I feel like in an error. So someone might be put on the cover and he was nowhere to be found in the, in the issue. And those are the ones I'm like, why, why, what happened here? So I can give you a couple of reasons why things like that happen. Oh, please. So I can give you a reason why sometimes the cover will be so completely unrelated to the interior. And usually it has to do with deadlines. Oh, okay. If a cover is running late or it had to be rejected or whatever, then you generally have some artwork that is being held in the drawer and you just pull it out, you slot it in. And if it doesn't quite match up, well, the train's got to run on time. So that's okay. just the way it goes. Makes sense. Or sometimes somebody just wanted to draw a Batman with <laughs> the condiment king. And, you know, yeah, there you, and there there, you go. And since it's, you know, somebody awesome, you let it go. Yep. Yeah. But by the way, I, uh, a thing I forgot to point out before, I think it was last issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so Pamela Isley was in. Blackgate for many years and taught him over many years. Yeah. Uh, for con if you wanted to knit on the continuity, then you would say that just doesn't make sense because clearly she's out and about in Gotham City. That's true. In Robinson Park, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, ah, whatever. No. <laughs> if it's good I, for the yeah. story, just let it go. It's true. I did wonder what her motives would be. Like, what exactly would she be getting out of it? I know. I wonder that also. I'd love to see the story, that story. That yeah. Bit. Chuck, write us that story. <laughs> Condiment King shipping with, yeah, Poison Ivy for sure. Yeah, um, seriously. <laughs> so and, I did and, remember the full title of that book because I feel like Carolyn Coca is really angry with me and going to yell at me. It's yeah. Superwomen, Gender, Power, and... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I had it. Oh, no. Representation. Okay, Gender, Power, and Representation. So I'm so sorry, Carolyn. But anyways, highly recommend it. Uh, so I flipped to this because I noticed, it's a no-no, I noticed some handles that uh, James yep. Fry uh, decided to, to draw. <laughs> yeah, yep, somebody would, I mean, the whole thing, the, the armrests, the, the, it's, it's a hospital wheelchair. It's the stereotypical hospital yeah. wheelchair. So uh, what can I tell you? That's just the way it happens sometimes. Yeah. Did this feel like for you a classics, a classic Birds of Prey adventure? Yeah, it did. And honestly, James Fry's artwork is really of a piece with what came before it. Uh, Butch Geis, who was on it, and Greg Land, who obviously kicked, kicked it off. And uh, it, 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 from that perspective, it really does help it to feel like a classic Bird of Prey adventure. 
Birds of Prey adventure. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and of course, look, Chuck's writing it. So of course it's going to feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Getting back to them, going back and forth and having fun with each other. And now of course it's more intimate because of course they've met each other and yeah. they know each other's names, which is great. Relasia. I love when that little country pops up. Oh and yeah. I meant to ask a, you about that before. Um, sorry, finish your thought. I'll remember. Oh, I was just going to say, and more of a grounded mission. It, it's not like huge or in another right. nation, you know, it's, trying to prevent some sabotage. And then of course, yeah, some kind of extreme with nanites and things like that. But for the most part, I felt like, hey, we're getting back to Birds of Prey and our two girls just having a regular old mission. Okay, so two things here. Um, One is, do you feel, this is going to be my question from before, do you feel that a universe is more interesting when you come up with uh, fictionalized names for uh for locations or when it's more grounded in reality you know Mar- the marvel universe has new york and chicago whatever yeah. and the dc universe has metropolis and gotham and yeah. uh famously Met- metropolis is new york city above 42nd street and gotham city is below 42nd street yeah i i like some of these made you know real asia i enjoy that popping up from time to time so i like the made up locations i think it's more of um maybe the social or cultural or political things that i like to see sometimes bring some realism in that and reflect the the day-to-day of what i'm living not all the time because this is escapism as well but just to reflect oh yeah these things are happening you know there is police violence happening that kind of thing but i I like my made-up countries and my second question for you is what define what is a classic person prey story oh interesting adventure that's what you call sure. it. Sure. Yeah. What are the what are the ingredients? Yes, for me, uh, it is Barbara leading the way, being the the guiding force uh, at the the clock tower, giving some good old directions, maybe stealing some funds from Blockbuster, as is her way. Uh-huh. And Dinah's out in the field. Wait, uh, wait. Lots of Blockbuster, the video store store, or Blockbuster, the Batman villain. The Batman villain, because she was stealing okay. his funds. Am I? Am I mistaken? No, 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 no you're absolutely right. Oh, you're okay. absolutely right. But it I'm like, was oh the no, 90s. is it not Blockbuster? No, no, I'm sorry. I don't mean to put you on the spot there. Uh, but in the 90s, we used to get videotapes out oh. of Blockbuster. We had to rent them for Blockbuster. Of course, so I was in that era, yeah. I, I think it's too late now, and I don't know if Chuck ever did this, but having Blockbuster's uh, secret hideout in a Blockbuster oh. store, oh, now that would have been sweet. That would have been great, yeah. That would have been some sweet relish from the Condiment King. Absolutely. Yeah, when Captain Marvel, uh, the film, when she crashes, I guess, in a blockbuster, yeah. I thought, oh, look, there it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so so the ingredients of a yeah. classic Birds of Prey adventure, what are they? Yeah, so uh, field agent is, is Dinah for me, but I, I'm looking forward to, to adding to that roster. I can't wait for that to happen. And Babs, the the brains behind all of it and for i love when dixon does a cold opening this one didn't really have it but maybe it's the tail end of a mission and then you go into the main part of the mission i love when he does that or he has a a faint and it seems like something really bad is happening i remember it was probably when you were still during your tenor tenure when uh, babs gave dinah a computer and yeah. You only see Dinah's horrified face, like not that, not that. So you think something horrible has happened, but then you you pan out and it's a computer. So things like that that he does, uh, just the 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 action as well as the humor, and then the camaraderie between the women, uh, kind of is my 
my classic. Well, I don't think we can do better than that. I think you're absolutely right. So I, for the most part, I think this fits the bill with the exception of the cold opening that we didn't have, but yeah. yeah. And sometimes Chuck will do the uh, framing sequence where he'll start the story in the middle and then flash back to where it all began and then catch up to, that was not meant as a condiment king pun, um, (laughs) to where you began. And that's another example of your question from earlier, which is uh, how much do you repeat Mm. information or scenes that you already had before? And even within a story, you can have that question. You don't necessarily need it to be this huge crossover in order Mm -hmm. to confront that issue. Yeah. Uh, and then we have this guy, which I can't remember. I've not read the whole Birds of Prey run before, but I've read a sizable portion. So this is almost like the first time, but I don't know if Entity comes back. Uh, but next Bruce Wayne murderer, which my friend Donovan keeps telling me is the event that all of this stuff is leading up to and is the big event of of this I don't know, 2001 and everything, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? You and I will be reading it together at the same time. I don't think I read it either. Okay. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this particular issue, 38? No, I think you've covered it very adequately. Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, measurement by which you're going to be rating this no, issue. I actually didn't write one down this time. Let me see if I can do a quick scan. Oh, it, it's obvious. Nanites. Nanites? nanites okay, so out of this? 10 million nanites. There you go. Good. Well, because there are so many. Uh, yes, that's I th- right. I think I would give this in eight. I liked it a little bit less than the other one, but still classic. So an 8 million out of 10 million nanites. Okay, very good. Uh, My final question, uh, because I scanned through and I saw those letter pages, did you have fun doing the letters when you were writing in that column and everything? I actually hadn't thought about letter pages for a long time until very recently. And the answer is yes, that was the... Look, that was the the social media of the time. Mm, yep. And uh, we had relationships with uh, through through their letters with with the readers, and that was really one of the few ways besides conventions that we were able to have that connection. My very first job. Uh, we'll save this for another time. But I I, I <laughs> have fond feelings for uh, letter columns because of where I started in comics. But um, I will admit that letter comms became a chore Mm. for a period of time because I was doing four or six of them a month. And I had to retype all of those letters uh, Uh. when the internet finally started becoming a thing and we would get the letters and all we would have to do is copy and paste for that, for that very short period of time, it was blessedly so much better. But of Mm. course, very shortly after it became obvious that you don't need to print letters anymore. We now have the internet where you can just read them in their original source. Mm. So that kind of did away the letter column, which gotcha. is a shame because the give and take was always a lot of fun. And I think as a, a fan, the idea that you could write in and maybe you could be included in mm-hmm. the publication, you could be a little part of history. Uh, that was just so saucy, uh, the, as the condiment king would say. And you just loved having that opportunity if you would be so blessed yeah, or so dressed as the Cotterman King said to Pamela Isley as she made a salad. Oh my, or so dressed, yeah. I I remember recently someone wrote in angry because there was a scrawl, I think it's a scrawl, at the top of one of the issues that says, in this issue, Batman dies. And this person bought it and he did not normally read Birds of Prey. And so he read it because of that. And he wrote in and said, how dare you do this? Um, And I guess the person at the time, whoever it was, the editor uh, was saying, 
you know, sorry, you didn't like our joke. So yikes. Yeah, right. <laughs> there, there's a joke that we used to have with Denny and the joke was we got it right the third time. <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll save the explanation of that joke along with the Batgirl San Diego story and the, uh, the map, uh, Greg Rucka story oh, yeah. and all the other stuff for another time. Who's going to remember all of this? No one. No one cares. <laughs> I'm going to have to jot this down for, you know, when you come on and, and just talk about, uh, yeah, your time and everything. I think, I think that's it. I will say for my, what are you wearing? I did get a, a bad girl shirt. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Who I'm drew a night that person. shirt? I'm sorry. Who drew that shirt? Uh-oh. Who was the artist? I don't know. That's my favorite costume. I, uh, I don't know. I bet he was Jose Garcia Lopez. Oh. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Okay. He did a lot of um, stock drawings back then. I'm blanking on what the technical term was. A lot of the uh, Darren Vincenzo helped me. A lot of the uh, Darren's yelling at the podcast right now. Think of the word. (laughs) He did a lot of the style guide. Oh, okay. Darren started in the production department. So nobody knows style guide like Darren. Gotcha. Um, and in fact, if you go into the bathrooms in DC Comics, it says, uh, you know, Darren knows style guide. Okay. Anyway, it's a very, very old, bad joke. Oh, I've really got to stop before I make it any worse. Uh, anyway, so um, he, he was a wonderful artist who did a lot of that stuff and also drew a lot of wonderful stories and had the best accent. Oh. Jose, he used to come in and he would speak like this. And we would just listen to Jose. It, he was like the very first ASMR Batman artist. Oh, calmed everyone down during really yes okay enough <laughs> no worries yeah but uh thanks to dustin my editor who got this for me he saw it and he's like i'll get this for you but anyway <laughs> way to go um, dustin yeah so we are at the end so i'd love for you to just talk about what you're doing now where people can find you and support you and all of that oh gosh if you're not totally sick of me and you've been over gorfed at this point you can There's find no me thing? Uh, <laughs> ask my kids <clears throat> um Ask Darren and Scott. You can find me at Jewish Cartoon and at Jewish Cartoon on Instagram is what I'm trying to build up right now where I you will see my weekly Jewish cartoon, obviously, hence the title. Uh, but I also do a series of videos in which I will get into the nuts and bolts of comics creation and storytelling mm-hmm. that applies across all media. And I also feature all kinds of uh, just fun uh, flashbacks from my archives of all kinds of Batman stuff. Uh, for example, in the very first video of this series that I did, I flipped through the original script from Azrael, sort of Azrael number one by Denny O'Neill. Mm, okay. So you, you can tune in and see fun stuff like that. But mostly I'm just looking for a like-minded community who wants to hang out and give me feedback. Sure. Uh, and on Twitter, where I admit I mostly post articles of interest, I do very little tweeting per se, but I, I see it as kind of uh, the voice of what I'm interested in right now on Facebook uh, and so on and so forth. And you can, if you want more details, you can go to gorfy.com, G-R-F-Y.com, and there's a profile and links to all kinds of fun stuff. And what am I up to? Gosh, I'm building a new um, storytelling incubator using graphic novels as a foundation. And um, I'm in the middle of that process right now, uh, looking like it's going to be a nonprofit effort to uh, be focused on education. And uh, we'll see how that progresses. And it's building off of my last 
last project, which was the Passover Haggadah graphic novel. Mm. On Passover, we celebrate by having a, kind of a dinner theater uh, around our family table. And there's a guidebook, and the guidebook is called the Haggadah. In Hebrew, the word Haggadah, the root of it is lehagid, which means to tell. And we're telling a story. And that ties everything together because as a Jewish person celebrating the holidays, we're telling a story. And now I'm using all of my uh, superhero, my superpower of storytelling to, uh, uh, to do that for, uh, for education. There you go. It's full circle. I'm losing my ability to string two sentences together. Mm-hmm. So if you want to learn more, go on the internet and find me and yeah. I will be glad to have you. That's great. I mean, I... <laughs> I would love to take some sort of class from you because I, I learned such a great deal from this episode, just these couple hours that we talked just about the process and everything. So I'm so appreciative that you came on to talk to me. Well, thank you. So I'm so glad you reached out. And uh, again, a pleasure, a lot of fun. And I, you actually surprised me because I didn't think that I'd be able to talk about uh, comics that I didn't work on. And it turns out I can't shut up about them. So there you go. Go figure. And yeah. please send my regards to uh, your fellow uh, podcast, Roddy. And uh, they're, they're all doing a wonderful job. I look forward to catching up on all their stuff also and continue to do the wonderful analysis uh, that you folks do and bring Thank out more, more women. Oh, yes. I do have, I think I've only had a couple on, which I, I don't know if that's the friend pool that I'm in with podcasting or it's just, again, you know, women are still a small percentage of comic fans but well you know it's what? growing so i don't know I, i'm gonna put her on the spot right now but <laughs> i'm gonna recommend a guest just to chat um sure. she is my former assistant and she's working at boom studios right now and Ooh. she is one of the smartest brightest most capable women working in comics and you two will totally hit it off um so i'm gonna recommend her as a guest for you okay it's not someone who worked on lumberjanes was it i don't know what she works on could be okay who knows? I'm a big fan of that. That'd be a fun. Yeah, please. I would I would love to talk to another woman about, yeah, some of these comics. That'd be fun. So you know what? I'm going to make her watch this podcast. She's oh, no. Two, <laughs> she, oh, by the way, I've always wanted to do this. For those of you who are listening on two times speed, I want to know if you can understand what I'm saying if I'm speaking this fast because it's always interesting to me what happens with my voice if I'm listening to it on two times speed. I don't know. You can increase the speed on YouTube videos too so they can Yes, try. you can. Yeah, and I do. But I'm really curious. Can you understand a word I just said if you're listening to it on two times or three times? Okay. I, I didn't eat, This is non-alcoholic, and this is what I'm like. Well, there you go. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to take a break. Obviously, uh, Gorf is not coming back with me. But when I come back, I'll be with Brian Q. Miller, and we're going to be reviewing Batgirl 15, 16, and 18. I know. It all makes sense, though, from 2001. But first, Zias is Radio Hour featuring Joan of Arc on the dance floor by Allie and AJ. See you guys And soon. please send my regards to Brian Q. Miller because I love his writing. I've never met him. I've never had anything to do with him. I love, love, love his writing. His, I will. His, his Stephanie Batgirl oh. was just, oh, I just ate it up. Yes. So um, you go, Brian. Yeah, one of my favorite runs. Every night we walk the line Every time we step out of the shadows People pass by
we're doing it. We're recording. All right, rock on. Yes, this is episode 200 and the 11th anniversary. I have no idea when this will be in order, but I always try to just go big on these huge numbers. 100, I had him on, and I thought I'm going to try again. And he was so generous to come back on. It oh. is my hero, Mr. Brian Q. Miller. Welcome back. Hey, Stella. How's it going? <laughs> it's going great. Actually, in preparation for this, I listened back to, it may have been like episode 10 that I had you on, and I forgot that you were my first celebrity guest that I had on. And then I remember we met in person at San Diego Comic-Con and talked. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just- On, it's the, big, been... on the big stairs. We were on the big staircase. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And it's just been, you're one of my favorite people to talk to. And I'm just so happy that we formed this like fan writer relationship, but also just podcasting relationship. And yeah, No, for sure. It's great to have you on. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. I get, I get to road test the, uh, the new microphone that we have here at the- uh, I guess the office where I'll be working for who knows how long. So yes. it's all good. And of course, I just want to screen share that nice little image that I found. Uh, I found it on DeviantArt by Austin Toya, but I thought waffles, you know, we always have to bring back those waffles. And of course we are going to be talking about some cast cane, but we can never fully forget Stephanie Brown. I've actually got some Stephanie Brown all around me. I got my, uh, I, saw. I pulled my figure out signed by both you and Lee Garbett, which was a huge, Lee's get. so great. Lee's yes. so great. I haven't seen and, him in like a hundred years, but Lee's oh, great. man. And then of course my poster, which cuts off her head and people complain that I'm just showing like a boob shot. Of <laughs> Stephanie Brown. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm doing the best that I can. So well, and, and, and like all things considered too, just like with what that makes me think of is from that run, there was the cover for, oh God, issue 10, mm. I think, when she's getting buried in the zombies and she's reaching yes. out. Um, that was one of the, and and I love, I love art germ stuff. That was one of the rare instances when through my editor, I had to be like, can we reduce her a little bit? Like, cause it was just whatever, yeah. like with the pose, like mm-hmm. it was just, it was just a little too much. Yeah. And it was like they were more secure and safe than she was going to be in mm-hmm. the horde of zombies. So, um, so it was. I think it was a, a Photoshop reduction at the end of the day, just to get it, just to get it down. But so that's it's certainly, I think, not as egregious as as that. Yeah. Might have been the first time, so. I'm glad to hear you say that though, because I talk about you know breasts. I think more often than I would ever expect to, but I just feel like with particular characters. Yes, we can understand, you know, Power Girl, of course. But then you've got teenagers like Steph or Cassandra Kane, and that's yeah. we don't really view them as sexualized creatures. So then when that happens, they're like, oh. So that was great that you well, advocated for them. It was just because you didn't even like at least with that one, with that poster, you get to see mm-hmm. the, the uh, not the rest of her entire body, but I mean you get like a full shot. So yeah. it's not all about the one thing, but that one cover was kind of just like zombies and, and boobs. So <laughs> we, we, we did what we could to fix that one. So it worked oh, out. Oh man. Well, shout out to Carolyn Cook. I'm sure she'll enjoy that for sure. Uh, well, a segment that I do with everyone is the find your joy segment, which is also known as shags, mac and cheese of comfort and joy. And it's basically because we've been going through these really strange times now with the election, of course. Oh, actually, by the time this comes out, the election will be over. So what happened? What I'm, happened? Who knows? And then, you know, with COVID and everything. So what are you doing to uh, just find your joy and find happiness in, in some of these troubling times? Uh, uh, ben and Jerry's half-baked ice cream. Oh. Uh, it is the is the 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 weapon of choice right now. I think 
I'm trying to scale back on that because I'm approaching the COVID-19. So I want to back off. Uh, So just, I mean, like I've got two kids now. So it's like, I've got my oldest and I've got the baby. So honestly, like outside of them and the work stuff, like there's not a whole lot of time Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of different things. So I I opened, this will date it. I opened my, uh, my, uh, my Star Wars uh, flying game. That, uh, that came in the mail today. So, oh, Rogue Squadron? Squadrons, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try that out tonight. So that'll Very be a little cool. something. Yeah. yeah. And then in, in this whole thing, I forgot to, you know, properly introduce you and just say that, of course, you have written on many television shows, such as Smallville and Shadowhunters, and you're also a producer. And currently you're working on He-Man for Netflix or finishing mm-hmm. it up. And you just came off executive producing Motherland Fort Salem on Freeform. So for season two, yeah. Yep. Still doing some stuff. Still doing yep, some stuff. Absolutely. And of course, we will always remember you fondly for your back roll run from 2009 to 2011. It's never far from my thoughts. So I will gladly remember it fondly along with you. <laughs> I actually have a friend that his joy has been rereading your whole series. And then he posts oh, nice. on maybe, I can't remember, one of the comic book sites, Ian Miller, he like, so he's been, he's like, come and read along with me and you'll say what issue he's on. So that always nice. is like, oh, that's so great. And then I get yeah. to just kind of live with him and see those covers and like, oh, that was a great time, wasn't it? With Stephanie Brown as Batgirl. So, yeah. Yeah, I've got, you can't, you can't see it in here, but I've got uh, the original art for the final cover for uh, 24 from Dustin on that wall. And then uh, the original art from 18 with Clary and the Witch Boy over on that wall too. So I have have a few little mementos around. (laughs) As you should. Well, we're unfortunately not going to talk about Stephanie Brown, but we're going to talk about Cassandra Cain, but still tangentially related because she sort of passed off the cow to Stephanie. And I never asked you in, in my first interview with you what your Cassandra Cain history was because we are going to be covering some of that so where did yeah where did Cass end and you begin or Steph begin and Cass end for you I mean it, she, she was very like as far as Cass goes like I've said in some some other interviews a long time ago coming to comics was a pretty late endeavor for me so it was kind of right around the same time as this uh this Cassandra run. And so there was a lot of catch up I had to do because we didn't have a shop growing up. And so I really honestly didn't get a lot of exposure until we moved out here to LA and I was working at a bookstore. And so then at lunch, there's just time to, to, to waste and time to spend. And so there was an aisle of just graphic novels and there was a spinner rack that we had at the time because there was a big magazine section. Um, so I caught up on a lot of stuff that way. Um, and so kind of hit some of the Cassandra stuff, but not a lot. I remember uh, vividly reading like Batgirl Year One, I think at the time. It was right around the time, what was it? It was uh, Infinite Crisis, I think. It was like Infinite Crisis and House of M, I think was probably right around when, like when the Ultimate Fantastic Four, maybe. Like they might've been like that, that little era of comics mm-hmm. when I kind of came into it. So there was a lot of reading what was readily available that was new and older stuff. But if it wasn't on the spinner rack, and I don't think Cassandra was, so it wasn't really something that, aside for some prep, when I started with the Stephanie run, just doing the research on, on Cassandra, there, there wasn't a lot that I had. So, and now being 10 years removed from all of that at this point too, it's, it's interesting going through the issues we did because it's almost like Cassandra's reset to blank slate in my head. So it's like, okay, let's go see how she worked as Batgirl again. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of what, how I approach the issues. 
Yeah, your history of getting back into it is similar to mine where I, I used to just see like what covers looked cool and, and I really tended towards Spider-Man. And then, yeah, with Infinite Crisis and Civil War, I just dove in. It was like, I'm going in, I'm going to get these monthly books. And I say it was the best time and the worst time just because there were so many characters to get yeah. to know and, and learn about, but it was, I well, was what was in. great, like right after that was, um, and that was right around when I started having enough, cause I was working retail. So it was, there wasn't a lot of uh, liquid income. So it was right around when I started finally getting past some like credit card debt, some student loan stuff that I actually had some disposable income again, 52, I think had just started. Oh, okay. And so love 52. Yeah. And so it was 52 was then. And then I think like my favorite ever, which was, Maybe came out as an omnibus while I was there. Uh, New Frontier, which is which is also my favorite. Yes, it's on my it's on my shelf in the other room right now. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, how about it? Should we get into this? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, guys. So listeners, viewers, we're doing 15, 16, and 18. And I know that's really weird, but I already did 17. And it's just, it connected to a storyline. I didn't want to throw Mr. Miller off by having this dangling issue. Would you, I I can call you Q. I remember you. That's fine. That's that's fine. We're doing Q. Just the Mr. respect, you know. You're just doing my to... taxes? No, no, Mr. Miller. No, thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'm going to do the synopsis as I usually do. And then, of course, I've got some discussion questions for us. So okay. here we go. This is Batgirl 15. No subtitle, which after the first three of these or these three that we're doing, I am going to ask you a question about being a writer in subtitles. Okay. The cover date was 2001 in June. Writer Kelly oh Puckett, Pencil Damian yeah. Scott, Inker, Robert Campanella, and colors Jason Wright. A woman who looks suspiciously like a blonde Barbara is writing a novel when she hears BAMs getting louder. She opens up her door to see murder victims and a priest with a smoking gun, literally, before she herself is killed. The priest goes to the next apartment and is about to kill the family residing there when Batgirl disarms him, knocks him out, and gives him to the police. He wakes up not knowing what had happened. Seven blocks away, a military veteran is shooting up the street with an automatic weapon and is about to throw a grenade when Batgirl stops him and knocks him around in the time it takes for the grenade to explode so very quickly. In the calm afterwards, she tries to figure out the connection when she sees a flash on a nearby rooftop, goes over and sees an older scientist before being blasted with some freaky light slash sound waves. She wakes up with Batman telling her what happened and that these normal citizens were driven insane by the Joker. She thought it was a machine, but hey, she trusts Batman. Batgirl follows him to a deserted circus where Batman is shot and killed by the Joker. Finally, we're done with him. Joker <laughs> Joker runs off singing Britney Spears, of all things. And Batgirl catches him, ready to deliver the killing blow when she removes her mask. She delivers the blow, which ends up destroying the machine and demands an explanation from the scientist. He says that the frequency of the waves emitted makes the receiver kill or decide to kill, but the brain forms its own scenarios to justify the killing. The priest used religion, the veteran war. The brain is in a catatonic state, constructing a scenario, then preps the person for the killing. The veteran was in it for 10 minutes, the priest an hour, but Batgirl was in it for a heartbeat. Yikes. Batgirl is 
surprised, but we don't see a resolution to this. Just a later scene where Batman says he'll be out of town for a few days due to a prison riot and asks what happened. And Batgirl is not sure, but asks Batman to be careful. And that's how we end that particular issue. Okay. So we'll do some share screen. I do like to show some covers and talk about the art and things like that. I feel like we don't talk about art as much. Do, do, do. Okay, here he is. There it is. Yes, very. It's actually really colorful for Batgirl at this particular time. So yeah, thoughts mm-hmm. on this? We've got, of course, the Joker. Kind of looks like a keyhole, but you've got the smoking gun. And you have both Batgirl and Batman down, and of course the the bullet wound. So thoughts on it's this Batman. particular cover, number fifteen. Um, it's certainly a lot brighter than what's inside. <laughs> for, for sure. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. Like as soon as it showed Batman dead, like in May, I, like since I know how the sausage is made, I was like, "Oh, Batman's not going to die in this issue." <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that Batman's going to die in issue fifteen of the Batgirl comic. Yeah. But it's at it's at least uh, uh, unlike you know many other comics at the time and even today, it's still kind of something that does happen in the issue. So it's it's at least something. Uh, foreshadowing of what you're going to get when you open it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes we are led astray. A couple months ago, I covered something and that the, well, it was Birds of Prey, but on the top of the issue was this issue, Batman Dies. And it was apparently a gimmick that DC did. But in the next issue or so, someone had wrote in, they wrote in, yeah, they wrote in and they said they were really upset because they were led astray by this tagline at the top. And they're like, I don't even buy Birds of Prey, but I bought it because Batman dies. So anyways, yeah, there you go. But yeah, it's it's really out of the ordinary for Batgirl just with how colorful it is. I guess it's because the Joker brings the color, but. Even though it's not, it's not really even a Joker story. There's just like a Joker moment, but. It's true. It's okay. It's true. It's okay. Yep. These things happen. <laughs> it is These true. Yeah. And then the inside art, uh, I did wonder, I, I've asked this before, sometimes the, the colorist, I suppose we could say, does some washes. So like right here, mm-hmm. we have this wash of red. Uh, later on, this yellow, I guess, coming off of the, the gun flash. And then when we get to the, the tower, lots of purples. Lots of purple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is which is kind of I think the it's the clue that we're not in we're not in reality anymore, but because yeah. it's so not it's a very Steph color, but it's very mm-hmm. much not a Cassandra color. Let me ask you got on your pages because the 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 splash page right you've got of the priest holding the gun, mm-hmm. which is like the second page of the issue I guess. Does yours have like a redacted bar on it? Can you scroll down? Oh, okay. So that's that's so interesting. Uh, yeah. Because on the iPad version, there's uh there's nothing there. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's just all blocked out. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why those wouldn't be there. I was just curious, like, what was there that didn't make it to uh, DC Unlimited Infinity Plus yeah. HD? But, yeah, we've been uh, censored. Anywho, sorry. Yeah. yeah, and she does She does look a lot like Barbara. I was a little thrown, actually, when the issue started. I was as well. I was, I was like, like, oh, what what's is, Barbara doing there? What is she doing? And then she had, <laughs> such, she had such prominence, too. I'm like, okay, well, is that someone, like, at the time, is it, like, supposed to be Vicky Vale? Like, who's, who's it supposed to be? Yeah. It's just this lady. She's going to get shot. Yeah. She gets shot like right away. Yeah. So as a writer, when you were giving art directions or I guess panel directions, how much did you give with coloring? Like, would you have said something like, you know, this top panel, I would like to have this red wash because we're, we're seeing the reflection off of the, 
the cop cars would you do something like that or, or what it up to um, or leave it up to the artist it kind of depends i think the only time i remember because I, I call out a lot of stuff in my scripts but i don't as far as color i think the only time i might have called that out we, we had an issue of um and we did this a little bit in the smallville comics too but issue 20 through 22 20 oh god i don't remember anymore uh when uh steph goes to london and mm. she meets up with Squire and they run around and time freezes around them because they have like the special widget. Just because Flash at the time had, had been doing something uh, under Manipal in the comics where uh, Flash was in color and everything else was in gray, in grayscale, just to show that it was frozen and he was still moving. Um, so I think like that was probably the only time I've done call outs specifically for color like that. But um, it's, I, I, think it's, I think it's really cool. It's certainly effective. Yeah, absolutely. So the priest here, I've, this was really interesting to me. And so I'm, I'll put you on the spot a bit, but I'll at least preface like what this is about. So I did, I reviewed this book, which is called Politics in Gotham, um, which is a series of essays with my friend, Sam Heath. And one of the chapters was actually called Fake News in Gotham. Quote from that again, just because this is all relevant here. Other forces that social scientists have traditionally recognized as having influence over mass public, such as political parties, churches, unions, service organizations, have comparatively little sway over Gotham citizens. And so the idea is that they're just wholly, everything is about the news and they just really believe it. And they go into religion a bit. And uh, my co-host was asking me, like, how is it used? And I said, well, it's not really used very much. There could be a villainous person like Deacon Blackfire, or it could just be like a setting. And so here we have not, I guess, not really a villainous priest, but it's just one of those examples. And I said, I wonder if people are nervous in the comics writing biz to write you know, religion, because they're just not sure how it's taken. And it's just hard to, to find that middle ground. I don't remember, embarrassingly, I don't remember if you ha- tackled any of that or if you use it as a setting, but no. would you, what would you say about like the use of religion or a religious figure in, in comics? Is it hard to do that? I mean, I think it depends on what you're trying to say. Like and in this particular instance, you know, it it's certainly, it's the jarring image at first of, you know, the priest or the vicar, you know, holding the gun and yeah. killing people. And then you're like, oh, is this a, is this a priest themed villain? <laughs> what, what, what early aughts priest themed villain do I not know about from Gotham? Um, and then it turns out to just be a dude. It's just a priest. Yeah. Um, so none of what he's doing is about his religion. So I think mm-hmm. that's probably why it, it, it avoids kind of any of the boogaboos, um, you know, on the same subject, I'd be curious if any of the, um, uh, the St. Dumas, any of the Azrael stuff, um, which I think wears it a little more like literally on its sleeve with, the, true, with yeah. the Christian iconography and stuff. If that stirred the pot a little bit more, mm. um, then, then this kind of one-off guy might have probably if it was a bigger character over multiple issues, it probably would yeah. earn more attention both ways. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it, and if you're going to say something about it too, I think say something about it, but say something about it. Like yeah. if you want, if you know, if you want to be about belief or, or faith, whether you're for or against, because people are either for or against, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, uh, 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 God, why can't I think of the word? Um, agnostic, but there's always like an opinion somewhere in there. So yeah. it's, I think it's perfectly natural. I think just if you're going to spend the time on it and here it's perfectly effective because it's a one-off, but say something about it if you're going to do that. Like, yeah, like for sure. Dare, Daredevil, for instance, with 
You are uh, right. you know, with with Matt's religion and how that factors into his being and his mm-hmm. his raison d'être and all that stuff. So I'd say um, use it use it well and wisely. Yeah, I did mention Huntress a bit, but she's yeah. she's a bit of a, an interesting and complicated character. But yeah, that was something that's actually not brought up in that essay, and that was a good point you made about Saint Dumas. That would be a good point to use. And I can see what what uh, Puckett is doing here because he's trying to have these really different and distinct characters uh, for the scientists to experiment on. So a military yeah. man, obviously, yeah, 10 seconds, that's going to be because they're living in that probably, and, and he's really used to that. And so, oh, what's the polar opposite? Well, priest who's, you know, for peace for the most part in love. Absolutely. And he gives them that hour. I almost would have pushed it a little bit longer. And I'm trying to think, you know, what sort of scenario did this guy come up with that it would lead to this? But well, I totally I get what Puckett's doing like wound up too with, I don't know if this is jumping ahead, but with specifically the reveal of, yeah. of scientist man on the roof mm-hmm. and his little, his little, you know, box that he puts the sparkles into Cassandra and she goes yeah. a little loopy for a bit, but like who he was and what his deal is and like why he was doing, cause it's kind of yeah. like, it's this, it's this interesting, why did he choose the people he chose? What if scientists do experiments? Like what was his, his reason for doing it. And I don't mm-hmm. really think it gets unpacked yeah. much. Um, and so like, there's certain things like that where I think there are opportunities, even in one-offs, especially in one-offs mm-hmm. like this one, um, where if you can find the time to tie it into what the main character is going through, then it thematically kind of helps it stand out and sing a little bit. And yeah. it, that feels like a missed opportunity in this one, which Absolutely. is no... I wasn't doing comics at the time, so it's not like I'm knocking. I'm not knocking anyone involved or Kelly or anybody, but no, um, yeah. it just it's he explains the science behind mm-hmm. it. But like, what's it might be a little too Batman the animated series of me, but like, okay, who's his Nora? Like, mm-hmm. why is he? Why is he doing what he's doing? Yeah. Um, aside from science. Yeah, I totally agree. And and then he drops that whole bomb that it, it just took a heartbeat for her, and then the next page is like. Well, where's the resolution of that? Did she fight yeah. with that? Was there, I mean, what happened to the scientists? And so I was like, am I missing a page? So that was definitely one of the things that I was, I was trying to work with. Cause that's huge. It's a huge story point for her, even though this is a one shot, I think to, to be told that it took her a split instant to go to, to agree or decide to kill. I mean, that's huge. Well, and there's like, there, there's a bit in there too. And I'm, I'm curious just chronologically, like at the time, right? Because you said 13 and 14 led into issue 17. Mm-hmm. And so then 15 and 16 are kind of one-offs. And then 18, if I remember right, is a one-off as well. Yeah, with Robin. With Robin. So kind of with those, it makes me wonder like why more time wasn't spent. Like, especially like, okay, she's got... Uh, her projection, like we go into her, into her uh, delusion, into mm-hmm. her hallucination. And it's Joker who kind of owns Babs's mind in yeah. a way yeah. and haunts, but like she, she's, he's the ghost in her closet. Mm. And whereas there is mention made, I don't know if it's in this one or in, oh, it's in the Robin issue of uh, her dad, of uh, David. Um, so it seems like that should be more of a boogeyman for her than yeah. Joker showing up in that, but mm-hmm. it's, it's it's just interesting sometimes how these things kind of end up you know getting getting put together. It just yeah. seems uh, in retrospect. And then I'm I didn't know uh, Cassandra was that familiar with Britney Spears to have that in her hallucination. <laughs> it's catchy. Everybody was at the time. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah, I don't know. You know, who knows what Barbara has been teaching her besides yeah. how to read? You know, she's just giving her all this culture. Just music in the gym, just when you're training. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. 13 and 14 deals with uh, a gentleman that she helps out and then he ends up getting killed um, kind of from okay. his own negligence because he made a call and it was being traced. But she, it's about the third time that she's helped somebody out and that person has gotten killed. And so that's another thing that I could see happening here that, oh, you know, a victim, she saves somebody, they get killed. And then yeah. she, that killing instinct just goes in and she, she kills the killer. Uh, so I, I totally agree with you that Joker is like, oh, that's interesting that you would pick that particular uh, villain. Which, which you can do, but then it, it feels like if you are going to do that, then there's an opportunity there to kind of in that, those last yeah. few pages, dig into like, well, why? Mm-hmm. Why is that what you saw? Why did that matter? Why is that in that heartbeat what your brain manifested in that second? Yeah. Um, and what does that say about her or what she thinks about herself? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it just, it, and we don't go there. Yeah, absolutely. So in that moment when she's about to lay the killing blow on Joker, she removes her mask. What do you make of this? I guess because it's the, what would Batman think he's dead? I honestly didn't know what to make of the mask coming off part. Um, I was glad it did because I was happy to see Cassandra not in the mask for a moment in the issue, especially because design-wise at the time too, the mask is cool, but it's a really hard read mm. in a lot of in a lot of scenes. Yeah. Um, so it was nice to get to actually see her, you know, as as herself, albeit fleetingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it goes back to another episode I did when um, she had been running around without a mask, and it's sort of this. Batman was applauding her like, yeah, use, use this. And it strikes fear. And we're trying to work through what does that mean? Is this bad imagery that, you know, this Asian American is her face is more feel, fearful than the mask, which I feel like that mask is, is terrifying in, in, in my opinion. And then it's I also, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also think to current run of Batgirl when, I don't know when uh, this was maybe issue 34 or something like that, where Barbara was pounding on James Jr. And James said, if you're going to kill me, do it as Barbara and not as Batgirl. And she does like, she's about to remove her mask or she already does. So I don't know if it's also maybe a personal thing. Like you did this to me, look into my eyes while I do this to you. I, I don't know if, Maybe that's the the sense there too, what, what Puckett is getting at. But because that's like the weird thing too, then with that is it just because they don't seem to have that much of a history between the two of them, she doesn't owe Joker that mm, in any kind of way. Like there's, there's no prompt in there. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a nice moment. My favorite moment from the whole thing actually um, is the grenade bit. Ah, uh, yes. How that, how that came together just with the whap, 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 like the Edgar Wright of it, like with all the steps, I thought that was, that was, um, uh, yeah. A big fun moment for me in the issue. Um, and I always love like, because we did a couple of these with Steph too, like uh, uh, the, the zombies and then we have the blackout. But like when stuff's happening all over the city or at least within a certain area, it's like as soon as you put one fire out, there's another fire. Yeah. And so I, lo- I always love those kinds of issues yep. too. It's very, it's got a very Spider-Man feel to it. Okay. So let's talk about this. I, I called it a diagnosis, but this big thing that it it took a heartbeat And she seems really surprised. So I've got like several questions about this. Do you think she should be surprised? Should the audience, the reader be surprised about this? Um, I mean, she was trained to kill, right? Yes. So, so I would think it would happen fairly quickly for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is it? The the vet was 10 minutes. The priest was an hour Mm -hmm. and she was a heartbeat. So yeah, yeah, I think that totally tracks. If if you're, if you're, if you're grading people in uh, trained to kill versus not trained to kill, then an hour for the priest and 10 minutes for a soldier and you know an instant for an assassin mm-hmm. it seems to make sense but um, i thought it was super effective too because i mean you think you think a bunch of time is passing 
And then when you come out, it's just a heartbeat. But that, again, it feels like another one of those, that's a cool thing that it all happened, that she went that fast, like straight to the kill. But then she didn't actually kill in the real world. Yeah. She just broke the machine. Yep. So was she breaking through the haze and breaking the machine on purpose? Mm-hmm. Or was it just a lucky yeah death blow that hit the machine like i I wish there had been like five more pages on here just just to see kind of what was under the hood a little bit more Mm -hmm. yeah i was just because it's just one i'm looking right now it's it's a one-page coda that's it yeah i i will say you know how i read her reaction was surprised that it was a heartbeat which i thought was interesting and i guess she would be surprised because she's been really training herself to not be a killer you know that one assassination she had it was enough for her and she she's been trying so maybe she thought she had been farther along but but this was a real she wouldn't be that fast to kill yeah 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 uh, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, it is shocking to the readers, if only because we've become attached to her and we've seen how she's been growing and, and learning and everything. So to learn that, oh, it's still innately in her might be a bit of a, a reaction or a, a wake up call for readers, too. Yeah, it just doesn't. I wish there'd been one more page to go into that. I, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Because it's just like, what happened? Where'd that guy go? Yeah. And, and she doesn't talk to Batman about it. And. I assume that be careful is because she doesn't want him to die. And maybe she's worried like she if he does dream? die. Yeah. With- Am I going to jump to, yeah. Will I avenge yeah. him that quickly? Yeah. Selfish Cassandra. <laughs> oh man. Worried about yourself and yeah. not Bruce Wayne. <laughs> uh, but that's the moment that I would love Barbara to be there because I feel like that would be mm-hmm. a great interaction to have between the, you know, in between those pages, maybe of talking like this is what happened. And then Barbara yeah. having just some really great, wisdom to share with her mm-hmm. that's all i have for 15 any other thoughts or anything you would like to talk about i'm gonna pull up my 16 right now. okay i think last time you were on here i did i told you you didn't have to rate it because i i think it might be like weird for a writer to rate another writer it's up to you <laughs> I'm, that's a little strange <laughs> yeah see so i'll just say uh out of 10 dead batmen um oh. i i think maybe uh maybe a, a Seven and a half, I think. Seven and is half. is our ten dead Batman our our platonic ideal of great or zero <laughs> Batman our platonic ideal of great zero? Oh wait, no, ten. Well, ten. We we want ten Batman dead. Yes, I okay, should. So, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, I can say bad jerk. No, no. In, in, a, in a world, bad jerks. no, 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 no. In in a world where we want <laughs> with ten Batman dead. Um, um my goodness. Um. Yeah. You did what? Seven and a half? Is that what you did? Seven and a half? Yeah. Or are you rating it? You don't have to if you don't want to. Hmm. I feel like I could rate all three issues in order that we did Mm. against each other. But I would say, having come back into Cassandra from a very long time away, uh, I'd be in, in in the six and a half, seven range. Okay. On that one. Okay. But it left me wanting for more. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, so bonus, bonus dead Batman for that. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. Okay, so moving on to Batgirl number 16, July, again, no subtitle. July 2001, cover date, writer Kelly Puckett, penciler Damian Scott, inker Robert Campanella, and colorist Jason Wright. As Batgirl stops a group of kids who are killing rats just for fun, most of the kids run away scared, while one boy named Tim, and not Tim Drake, who lives in squalor, Confusing, um, by the way. Suddenly to come back in and see Tim, whose dad's a criminal, and be like, oh, is this, am I seeing some kind of piece of Tim Drake's origin over it? No. no. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. No. 
Uh, so Tim stays behind and he actually asks Batgirl for help because his father might be robbing the Gotham Federal Bank. And he's not a bad man. He just thinks about money too much. As he And he's saying all of this while he's in his squalid apartment. Inside the bank, some of the robbers discuss what they will do with the money. And one of them says he will pay some bills, then is made fun of for his clothes and old gun. Could Jake be Tim's father? I don't know. A security guard happens by and Jake accidentally kills him. Perhaps he was startled. I don't know. But in any case, he's guilt ridden almost immediately. Inside the bank vault, a man called Chaco or Chaco shoots a member of the group who tried to smuggle out some jewelry, although all agreed to only rob the money, which is less traceable. At that point, Jake already has fled the scene, but Chaco sends two of his partners after him right into a dead end. Batgirl arrives and stops the two thugs from killing Jake, and as Jake tells Batgirl that he wants to turn himself in for the murder of that security guard, Batgirl asks about his son. Jake replies he does not have a son and that she is, uh-oh, probably talking about Chaco's kid. That girl immediately goes to the bank and stops the remaining robbers. She gives Chaco a serious beating, enough to send him on out onto a stretcher. And afterwards, she tells Tim that his father's a bad person, but Tim is not. Okay, so let's uh, get into here. Let me guess she takes Tim back to his empty house. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if she knows about <laughs> she um, says, Let's CPA, go home. you know, child pr- protective yeah. services. But again, you know, a situation where Oracle could really help out. Uh, so here's our cover for 16, uh, where you've got little Tim there saying, Daddy. <laughs> Cass has a mournful look on w- with the mask. And then, of course, the, the father there, which actually I can't tell if that's Jake or, or Chaco. I can't tell. Um, but I think uh, I think uh, Chaco Chaco he's he has yeah. earrings though right didn't he oh, have some, yeah um, I think that's so true. he's got a little uh, he's got like a multiple studs on the ear he's got a nose ring yeah there you go yeah yeah so, so it looks closer potentially to Jake maybe because there's Jake at the bottom yeah. there yeah thoughts on this particular cover and he's holding the rat um you know, <laughs> no. caressing the rat whereas he can was we, destroying them earlier so boy can we, can that's we talk for a minute about how awful a place gotham really is that sure. that, that that at night this this is seemingly a typical <laughs> night in gotham city and there are from my estimate on this page at least 28 year olds mm-hmm. gathered around in an alley doing this fight club thing where they <laughs> They throw rats as high as they possibly can. Oh my, they're really, yeah. And then, and then when, when they hit the ground, like they, they explode. So, <laughs> so the force with which these rats are being hurled is, yeah. is impressive. Um, I just don't know what the game is. Otherwise, like they just all came to see this one kid who had a rat in a cage that he decided to throw. Yeah, I guess it's, he, I guess the point of the game is to throw it up and land it in the circle. And oh, then because he's standing okay. on one and then above that it says wait only half of it's out so i feel like maybe uh, the splatter grad is all supposed count. to be in the circle to get a point i don't as far as i can tell it's pretty rough stuff in gotham city yeah for so, sure anyway it's another reason to just never go into an alley in gotham yeah. city you yeah. didn't already have enough reasons but there might be kids throwing rats <laughs> It would have been the perfect Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle crossover where all of a sudden Rat King oh, comes out. Um, that would have been yeah. great. Uh, but anyway, no. So like with, with the cover, um, I like this cover. I, 
I'm never really a big fan of kind of the old comic style, uh, the word bubbles, the word balloon okay. on the cover, but I yeah. um, didn't really mind it this much in it. Um, you know, going back and looking at it after having finished the issue, I'm like, oh, wow, what, was that rat really that important? Um, but he's, you know, he's the kid with the rat. Yeah. So you remember the kid with the rat. Then when you see him later, you're like, oh, yeah, that's the kid with the rat. Now, did you and your Steph run, did you want your cover to sort of telegraph what was going inside or did you give Dustin Nguyen and Archer sort of free reign of design whatever you want? Um, we, we always kind of talked about it. I think the only time, just because we, we came in so hot at the beginning, just time-wise, um, I want to say the, the Phil Noto covers at the beginning, um, I didn't really have much say in. And then um, I think the last, it wasn't the last Phil cover, it was the cover for four, like with the mutants, that was mm. like the Dark Knight Returns nod. Um, I remember just as a, I know we're not supposed to say baby writer, but as like a little baby comic writer being like, I didn't put mutants in this. Why are there mutants on this cover? I'm not talking about the Dark Knight Returns. Uh. Um, but um, I, I got over it. But, but after that, I want to say we, 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 we would talk a bit um, just back and forth about, you know, what could it be? What should it be? Because mm. um, uh, we, we ended up being pretty, I got out ahead of art for a while um, until right around, I want to say issues 1920-ish is where mm. like there was some editorial stuff. And so there was some backslide. And so it was a little more hand to mouth at that point. But, um, but there was definitely a lot of back and forth on those covers in the middle run. Gotcha. I, I will have to say, I think my favorite one is by Dustin Nguyen where Steph is in front of that stained glass. I, I just gray ghost. Like, oh man. Yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful. It's probably my favorite one. So there we go. So we've two in a row that almost, you know, what is inside is, is being telegraphed on the outside, which is for me is old school. And I like it because the Silver yeah. Age used to pull directly from the comic and put it yep. on there. And now it's like, I can't trust what's on the cover because it's probably <laughs> not going to happen. So I, I like this. I like when they do that. Okay. So I do have a question about illiteracy. Uh, Cass isn't here to defend herself, but no, she's not. Do you, <laughs> do you think she's at all ashamed about her illiteracy? I mean, she's getting better, but clearly, you know, she couldn't do anything with this information. She had to get Tim to do it. Should she be, is she, what do you think about Cass at this point in her life? You know, what I wound up, and I don't know if it was an editorial mandate or a, or a choice, like in these issues, like, especially when it's moments like that, like with the illiteracy moment, um, you know, read it, you can't read, right? And then she yeah. doesn't say anything. And mm -hmm. then the kid just reads it. Not having internal monologue, like not having those narrative captions, yeah. like, like, and which clearly is a choice, like in this run, like, mm -hmm. I don't, and, and I'm not familiar enough with the whole run to know if it came and went or if there was some and then there wasn't some, but it certainly feels like the perfect place to address stuff yeah. like that. Cause if I were someone who knew nothing about Cassandra and just happened into the one-offs, especially right of, of what these issues were, I'm thrown suddenly. I'm like, Oh, that girl can't read. Mm. How am I supposed to feel about that? Yeah. And I, since I don't know how she feels about it in that moment, then I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about it. Mm -hmm. So, and like stuff like that too, you can easily like that, read it. You can't read. Mm -hmm. And then just one panel, which would be like, like, uh, like in any Batman, anything, just commissioner Gordon says something. And then like on Batman, just quiet. And then everything continues. Like if there were just one panel of her not answering that then prompts the kid to go ahead and read it. Yeah. Cause it's also a weird thing for a kid too, to suddenly be faced with a superhero mm -hmm. and you know, an adult, he doesn't know how old she is under the cowl. 
Um, but to be faced with that and then find out that an adult can't read, which is not a judgment call in any yeah. way, but just from a kid's POV to be like, oh, mm-hmm. you, you're a bigger human being than me and you don't know how to do something I can do. Yeah. Well, that gives me pause as a child. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it seems like there could have been some unpacking of that a little bit. But. Yeah, I agree. And, and I don't know if you can read into that, that dark shadow, the, the middle panel there, where it looks eerily like Batman and I don't know, body length. Could we read anything into that? Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to know, you know, what does Cass think about this? Is she just like, there are more important things right now than my inability to read? Is there any shame uh, festering there? I just did a, a podcast on The Reader by Bernard Schlink, which if you're not aware of that, it was made into a movie with Kate Winslet, but she was an SS officer, but it's like she got deeper and deeper into all of this stuff because she couldn't read. So it was like, so it, it plays with your empathy because you're like, oh, should I empathize with this person? Because she didn't know what she was doing because of the reading, but it's all, yeah. she was doing all this stuff because of the shame of she didn't want to admit to anyone that she couldn't read or write. And so I just wonder like, oh, is that here? Should it be there? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it feels like you could have played into something just a little bit, yeah. but I mean, it is, it is though, it is a nice, like her giving the order also though is a nice little Batman mm-hmm. moment of just like yes. reading. Read <laughs> yep. And she doesn't need to answer him because he asked that question, but she just kind of, yeah. She just waits. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Read to me. <laughs> oh, boy. So here we have, you know, Tim, she, she comes back to his house. What is it about this kid that, that makes her follow? I mean, his dad's a bad guy, right? She's got the David, she's got the David Kane in her head, kind of chip on her shoulder, right? So I, I guess that would be, would be what it is. Um, so she can look for clues as to where mm. dad went. So she doesn't want another kid to kind of wind up going through what she went through. Yeah. Is about as close as I can, I can stitch yeah. what, what the reasoning is behind that one. Yeah. Cause you know, on the outside watching someone toss rats up for sick enjoyment, <laughs> uh, you would think that she would be like, no, I, I don't want to help you. And, and initially she's saying no. And then she listens to him more and perhaps maybe she is observing him and understanding. Cause just looking at, Tim, you can tell that probably he's not in the best situation. Then, of course, yeah. following him home and looking at that. So maybe she's observing and getting the benefit. Well, and he's the only one that stays when the rest of the kids scatter. That's true. Earlier on, too. So that's clearly this kid who should be running from from one of the bats, mm-hmm. just as the rest of his friends did. Stakes must be dire for 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 him to stay behind and risk the wrath of the bat girl. Mm-hmm. I yeah. guess. I agree. So we get to the climax, of course, and we have Cass or Batgirl giving two extreme reactions to both of these. Uh, One of them she thinks is the father, the other one she then finds out. So some clemency, I would say, towards Jake. It's pretty gentle. I mean, she beats off the other guys, so she could be reading that situation. But boy, she shows no clemency to to Chaco. Uh, why the difference between the two? What does she see with with Chaco that that she doesn't see with Jake, or or vice versa? I mean, I guess once it's confirmed that he's the ring leader, that he's the the man pulling all the strings with this heist. Um, I don't know. Did he have? Because we know Jake admits to a kill. Did did Chaco have confirmed kills? Did he shoot somebody? Right? Doesn't he? He did shoot one of his. Yeah. He shoots the guy like at the bottom of page 11, mm-hmm. right? And then does he shoot somebody? Oh, no, that, the guy he shot had the jewels, had all the, the jewelry right. inside. Mm-hmm. So she could, she could know about that. 
from from her approach she mm-hmm. could know about that and that's why she's meeting out justice a little bit or she's just kind of pissed off because she got <laughs> fooled yeah a little bit and she believed that you know this guy who was the least offensive of the criminals um because he repents a little bit she granted him clemency and then may feel foolish for that because mm-hmm. she was wrong but then does she's then send him to jail after that because he's not tim's dad like does she does he get arrested in the end do you mean jake yeah, Jake. I, see I assume Ch- so. If, yeah. if she doesn't send, then, I mean, he was fully willing to. I mean, he. But she was going to let him go, could. right? Like she says, run. And then where does she do? She's there. She chop, chop, chop. Yep. Sees the kid, sees the dead. She says, go. Right. So she's going to let mm-hmm. him go at that point. She says, yeah. go. So she's going to give him clemency. And then when she finds out he doesn't have a son, then, yeah, you're thinking of Chaco's kid. And then she goes and kicks the crap out of Chaco. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think with both of them, yeah, with both of them, there's this image of Tim with this little circle behind. So it's like this, these two different reactions of seeing this uh, with Jake and holding his hands outstretched for mercy. You know what it is? I, bet, I, bet, I bet it's this. I bet it's this. If we're going to go through and, and play and play art critique on this, I sure. think <laughs> what these, when she sees Jake, right? Mm. Just like when Tim did not run, when all the other rat throwing children in the uh, alley turned and ran yep. um, because there was a greater like sense of, I need help mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that Jake stayed and said, yeah. no, I need, I need to be dealt with no matter what. And then that same innocent picture of Tim fuels her anger when she catches up with the uh, nefarious Chaco. Yeah. Man. And that hits him a lot. She hits him a lot. Sure does. Yeah. He loses his gold tooth and his not gold tooth. Yeah. I mean, she's really scary when she's, I don't want to say out of control, but just like really leaning into that and, and mm-hmm. Batman let her do that a couple issues ago. So it's, it's frightening to behold. <laughs> oh boy. Well, what do you, what do you think we can expect from Tim? What would you say if you were to write a story with Tim, what do you think his future would be? Should we be worried about him given what, how he grew up and the fact that we did first see him murdering rats? Or do you think uh, we can believe Cass that he's, well, we don't he's know that he guy. was. We don't know that he was actively murdering rats, <laughs> okay. right? Sure. So, because if you go back, he was just one of the looky loos, right? There's this other kid who, in my head, I've just decided to call Chucky, who who was who was hurling the rats up. Where is he? Where's Chucky? Chucky's got the red hat. He's got the vest. Okay, yeah. Like a little Marty McFly in the future. Sure. Um, and cool. so Chucky's doing all of that. And then, uh, and then uh, Timmy stays. Oh, I see. Okay. So maybe it was peer pressure, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he would have thrown a rat, you know, yeah. if he had stayed longer, but then thank goodness Batgirl showed up and he didn't You're have right. to live with splatting yeah. a rat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but certainly I think there's some CPS in his future. Yeah. I think for sure. Yeah. Yep. If Cassandra knows what that is. If she knows what that is. <laughs> uh, those were all the questions I had on this particular one. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in this issue? No, I mean, I, I, I really liked the, the coming in on just getting to see her, you know, kind of uncoiling a little bit. Mm. Um, and I kind of really liked the, the clemency versus the not clemency mm-hmm. using the kid in both states. Yep. I thought it was really interesting. And do you like that Cass, I guess to a certain extent, both of these issues that we've covered so far, and I guess in the next one as well, street level, we're dealing with Cass, mm-hmm. Batgirl and street level. Do you feel like that is the type of bad guy that she should be against and that you, that fits Cass best? I mean, at this point in her run, I'm trying to think, 
what else has preceded this. Like, I, I mean, I, I certainly have no qualms with her doing street level stuff. It's, there's the Joker appearance, but it's just in a hallucination. You know, it feels like she could have, like in, in all three of these use, I guess what uh, the next issue spoilers is uh, Dead dead Eye, right? In yes. the next one. So so it's someone who's at least a little more on, on her level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but yeah, it, it feels like there could have been a little more on her level to it. Yeah. But the street level, I mean, it is nice to see how everyone is, how she's reacting to kind of the, 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 the kids in need, the people in need, and kind of that aspect to it, um, I thought was, was super interesting. Okay, so out of 10 splattered rats. Oh, splattered rats. Uh, I think I would give, ooh, that one, hmm. I feel like I would go with the same as, as the other one. So seven and a half out of 10 splattered rats. I think I'll do seven and a half. I'll, I'll, I'll line up with you on that one with seven and okay. a half splattered rats. Okay, so our final one. Ready. Yes. Batgirl 18, September 2001 cover date. And again, writer Kelly Puckett, penciler Damian Scott, and inker Robert Campanella, and colorist Jason Wright. A tiny, teeny, tiny Cassandra climbs atop the supercomputer to grab some bat cookies when she is suddenly surrounded by the bat family, all calling her a killer, and David Kane asking if she really thought she could fool them together uh, when an alarm actually wakes her up. She goes off and follows an assassin with one black eye and one white eye who is about to get paid right before he is then about to get stiffed the money. Before he gets killed, Batgirl throws some batterings and starts beating everyone up when she encounters Robin mid-fight doing the exact same thing and ends up running after the assassin. The assassin pulls a dead shot and shoots a gas tank without even looking, which blows up. Robin is impressed. When he returns, he sees Batgirl dodging bullets and gives her a controller to track the assassin before he races off without really talking to her. He's going after the leader of the operation and the one who hired the assassin named Vink. Batgirl and Robin both arrive at the same locale because the assassin wants his money. They bust into the house, discover Vink tied up, saying the assassin took his daughter, and Batgirl goes after him but is shot. Robin is surprised that she couldn't dodge the bullet, but it is later explained that the assassin Deadeye has cybernetics and can basically shoot anything he thinks about. While Batgirl is doing whatever she is doing to her wound, is a very weird scene. <laughs> I don't understand it at all. Robin notices all the past bullet wounds from <gasps> Kane. They intercept communication from Vink to Deadeye about a drop point, but as Robin plans, Batgirl says it's no good because Deadeye will kill the girl anyway. She knows men like that. They go to where Deadeye is, and Batgirl goes in even though she is injured. She confronts Deadeye in the bathroom, who is holding the daughter hostage, uh, and the daughter looks suspiciously like Goldie from Sin City, I thought. <laughs> he shoots at Batgirl and either misses or hits her. Uh, we don't know. We don't see it. But she connects her fist to his face, then punches and destroys the implants in his hand. As the cops arrive and take Deadeye away, Robin explains that he was rude because of her assassin background and how intimidating it was to him who has such a normal upbringing. He apologizes and asks if they can be friends. She agrees and they shake on it. So I'm glad that we've kind of got an uplifting issue yeah. to uh, temper the the downer ones that we just had. So our final share here. So completely different 
art style, I would say, for yeah. this cover with uh, compared to the other two, where you've got Tim Drake Robin and Cass on a gargoyle. And yeah, I it's kind of, I don't know if it's symbolic or not, the fact that he's right side up and she's upside down, upside kind down. of how they were, you know, two different angles, two different backgrounds. Come, yeah. I don't know. I could be reading into it, but yeah. what oh, do you think oh, about been, this had... particular cover? <laughs> no, I, I, what I really, what I really like with this one too, is it's got a, um, it's got like a, like a Kelly Jones kind of feel to mm, it. Like yes. there's like, there's, yeah. there's a little more, even though the issue itself doesn't go to like, that more gothic-y place mm-hmm. that this one, this, the, at least the cover, it's a nice juxtaposition of like with the Robin colors and the Batgirl thing and the gargoyle. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's, it, I like it. I like it too. Yeah. And doesn't tell you too much about what's going on, no. but yeah, I just think like the body language and that those two are together, I think would obviously. That's all you need. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Batgirl yeah. and Robin. Yep. There you go. Okay. So this is what I said. I'm going to ask you about this question. So I I think Puckett just doesn't use subtitles a lot. Uh, it's been few and far between that he's had subtitles for his story. And so I wondered for you, is this something that you always, I know that I feel like all of your stories had subtitles. Is it something we've just gotten used to? And so now it's weird if we don't see it. Is it something that's like thrust upon you? Like you should have a subtitle for this. What are your thoughts on as a writer <laughs> no. and subtitles for issues no, and stories? No. No, my goodness. Uh, from from the person who did Batgirl Volume 3, Batgirl Rising, the lesson <laughs> number one, number 14. Um, uh, oh, my God. No, it's, I, I think it's, especially now, it's it's helpful in, because because there, the com- there's so much comics-wise that if you're just like, you can, you know, call out, you know, a six-issue arc by its subtitle name. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. Batgirl, The Reckoning, or, um, you know, um, Death and the Family. Like, you can call it out by that and remember it that way mm-hmm. versus like, especially with, with this run where it's just back girl 18, where it's kind of in the beginning, it's a lot of one-offs. Uh, I don't know that you would, you would need more than, oh, it's the back girl and Robin issue. It's the one where they became friends Yeah, at the end of that one. I just, for me, just in a writerly way, like feel like it gives an issue a little more of its uh, identity mm. in that one story, just to give it something. Um, and kind of helps me get my head inside of what, what that is most most of the issues i think probably the title came first i don't know that okay. i didn't have a title until the end but that's just how i do it i'm sure it's, it, it's a season to taste issue yeah do you think if you hadn't had a title that someone from editorial would be like can you please have a subtitle for this issue of all the things that wound up coming back and forth and down from editorial the, t- the title stuff was never one okay. so there were there was it, it, and it's interesting and it's for another conversation for another time but if you sure. look at like the 25, because I count the, the road home, um, the 25 issues of the Steph run, you can see when the rules started to change mm. as we went through. And then finally the rules went away at the very end because it was ending. Um, but there were, there were some edicts and some mandates that came in probably right around 16, like somewhere, somewhere right in there is where we had to start making some hard right turns, which is okay. when we started to, the works got gummed up a little bit. And so I ended up sliding behind to make accommodations, but um, it happens, but I I would have to look at the rest of the DC titles at the time to see if they also were not doing subtitles and they were just doing numbers. Yeah, it's it certainly has been interesting. I, I always it happened in a previous episode that I was like, I don't have a subtitle for this. Did I mess up? And then I was saying, <laughs> No, there's no subtitle. No, no. So I guess if I ever interview uh, Kelly Puckett, I'll just be like, Hey, 
what went in, into that, but um, yeah. So now I'm well, and then, and then what would you have called it? Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah 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 yeah. Another way to do it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, oh yes. Okay. So this nightmare we start off with, <laughs> which was very interesting. Uh, do you think this is something that is always in her subconscious, or do you think it's something that might be connected with our issue sixteen? That something was just brought forward that hey, she's a killer know. through and through. I was I was a little confused okay. when I came into this one. I'm not I'm not gonna lie. I didn't I didn't quite know what 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 was up. And then like got it when she finally woke up. And again, yeah. you know, dream stuff can be disorienting. But just mm-hmm. like with the with the computer stuff and the bat cookies and the cookie jar. But then she was a baby. It was it was a little uh, uh, a little disorienting for me. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's, uh, hey, I'm happy to see Huntress there in the Bat Family. She doesn't get a lot of respect, so it's nice that she was in the dreamscape. Um, and it looks like is that is that Azriel or is that Steph? It looks like right? yeah, on the right, yeah. Because there's a Maybe thing there. Azriel, so I'm yeah. Not sure. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not sure if it's. I feel like maybe it's connected to 16, kind of a rude awakening. A but little bit. I could, I could also see it as being something that she deals with all the time, and what she's alone miss- now. In seventeen, what what did we miss in the seventeen that came in between? Um, these? in seventeen, it was the resolution to this uh, CIA agent who was killed by the CIA, and so she ends up getting to track down the actual guy who ordered the hit. And then Barbara was trying to. Oh yeah, so uh, it's been a little while since I read it. Barbara found the the location where they had all the tape and the information on her and so she was telling her infiltrate this i'm pretty sure it was langley and then you can erase it and then you can come back with me because right now batman has he she is isolated in, in her own little cave he took her away from oracle so oracle saying i can erase all this you can get your identity back you can come back with me so she is able to erase all of that and then she goes after the cia agent and that's that's kind of gotcha. resolved but as far as i know she's still in the cave by herself unfortunately so i feel like that's another thing just like isolation i mean even though cassandra yeah. is a different you know beast altogether compared to the other bat members i just feel like why would you do that to a teenage a 17 year old just put her in a cave by herself clearly we're going to have some weird lucid dreams here yeah but as though she were a bat herself yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, do you think we need any more details about Deadeye and what the job was and how he got on Batgirl's list? Or is what is shown enough? Because the alarm goes off, she goes to work, and we're just in the middle in Medias Race. Um, I just like the, the one thing I just didn't get with that was that he was special until Robin said he was special. Same. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, did like I totally just like even the, the element of uh, which, which I know like the reading the body language and that being a part of how she mm-hmm. can be predictive. It just didn't factor into the previous two issues at all. And so suddenly it was just like, Oh, she, and like, I know she has that ability, but just in, in coming at this with, you know, time removed, fresh eyes. I'm like, yeah. Oh, is that new? Did that happen in issue 17? She got that superpower just because it doesn't come up at all yeah. in the, in the other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I, I love that that just the 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 interplay between the nice the good boy the good boy robin yeah and and she and kind of how that kind of screeches everything to a halt a little bit 
Yeah. Um, I thought was really nice, given especially how dark the last couple of issues have been for her. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I guess I, I would have liked maybe a little backstory on like what the job was, but otherwise I guess we know everything we need to know about. Yeah. Them. I mean, it kind of doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's, 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 cause it's more about the two of them, yeah. you know, coming together and getting over their stuff. Mm-hmm. So then with, with Robin and Cass, that'll probably be the bulk of our discussion here. Do you think the fact that she got shot is the reason why Robin rethinks his perception of it. Uh, do you think it would have taken him longer to rethink what he felt about her if, if that hadn't happened? Uh-huh. It's almost as if like, Oh wow, she is human that that happened. Yeah. But then he's never like, Oh, sorry that like, <laughs> sorry you got shot because I came in and I was screwing around at the same time. Mm. Yeah. I guess it's just cause she's, she's seemingly human. It's interesting because again, not having come back to this, I mean, having come back to this after such a long time, I have no idea what I'm supposed to think about the two of them, just as far as like what their status quo is yeah. coming into coming into this issue. And so, um, so he certainly, it does seem to make a difference to him that she's been shot, but mm-hmm. it really doesn't, it doesn't seem to land land for him until he sees the other scars. Yeah. And, and I will say like, you're, oh, you're not, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, you're not behind anything because this is actually their first official team up. Okay. While they were around each other with no man's land, this is like, yeah, it, yeah. this is their first okay. little, yeah, buddy cop. Okay. Um, yeah, and then she, she does whatever she does yeah. after she gets shot. What she's is, can blood you explain what she's doing there? She's like squeezing the wound. I mean, <laughs> she's cauterizing it with her fingers. I mean, I don't yeah. even know. She pulling out the bullet? No, because he talks about exit wounds. So it's not, I'm not sure what she's doing there. And is Tim like chewing on something? In that one, like, is he, he's doing a, he's got a thing, or I don't know. There's bamboo. Is she, she doing like a plant? Is she, maybe she's doing one of those things where you take the, uh, the magic, the magic leaf that's wet, oh. you know, and you're like, oh my, that's got aloe vera. Yeah. And so the aloe vera is going to, going to help with that bullet wound. Maybe it's one of those things. It could be. Yeah. You'd think she'd have something in the belt in one of her very many pouches that yeah. she could like do a thing and, yep. and, and clean it up. So maybe it's that. Let's assume it's that. We can. It's either a, it's a magic yes. swamp leaf or, <laughs> or it's something from her pouch. Yeah. But then I do, of course, wonder why. I mean, is she just wearing fabric then? There's no I think there's no whatsoever. armor. I think there's no armor at all. Because wow. look at it. It's all, yeah, it's all stretchy. Yeah. So I, I guess that's just was... a test to her abilities that, hey, I don't need it. It's not going to touch me. I think this was widely, this was before Kevlar was just Kevlar mesh, mm. which is widely used in everything <laughs> that related. Oh boy. Oh man. Well, I do, I do like that moment that, uh, because if we go back to the beginning when he first sees that and just how shocked, like, oh yeah, dodging bullets. Okay. And then sees that moment. I feel like it is kind of the catalyst for him rethinking everything. Yeah. And then, yeah, just like you said, seeing all those other bullet wounds and be like, oh, wow. You know, there's, there's some trauma here. He's been through some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think still, you know, they're not similar, but I think he's able to maybe show empathy and be like, I misjudge this person. And, and there's way more than just her being this trained assassin. So I think everything helped align, but if all this stuff didn't happen, I feel like he still would have been freaked out by her yeah. and maybe not wanted to, to bond as much. Well, and he's a nice enough boy to, to also vocalize that too. He's like, you know what? I was wrong. Yeah. I was wrong about these thoughts I had about you that you didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. So not to bog you down in your night, Cassandra, but I was afraid of you, but now I'm not. Yeah. So then still that scene in the swamp with the bamboo, the bamboo, mm-hmm. the bamboo. The bamboo. <laughs> 
Uh, do you feel like Batgirl teaches something to Robin about the world? Uh, is Tim naive or optimistic here? Because he's seen some pretty crappy stuff in his time too, but he feels like Deadeye is going to pay the money and, and let go of the girl. And she's like, no, that's not going to happen. So it's almost it like feels, worldviews colliding. It, yeah, it feels a little naive for a Robin just because aforementioned Gotham is such a terrible place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had in the middle of the night, a brainwashed priest walking around murdering people in a yeah. tenement. But yeah, I don't know. Cause, cause he, how long had he been Robin? I'm trying to, I'm trying to think how long had Tim been on the team preceding this? Cause he would have been exposed to some pretty gnarly stuff. I mean, no man's land, right? He would have been through all of that yep. before yep. this. So yeah, I don't, it just, yeah, it's interesting how she's like the dark and as if he, this is his, you know, this would almost be like, I could read Stephanie Brown at this, you know, as him, like she's like a new, something. a new person on the, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. A, like a new um, person on the scene being, yeah. like, but you would think with Batman, he would have picked up some of that stuff too. Yeah. Not to discredit Tim at all. It's just, it's, it's interesting because it is a very, mm-hmm. a very Batman in that sense, a very Batman and, new Robin on the job kind mm-hmm. of dynamic between the two of them, which I mean, personally, it's been so long since there's been a new Robin that wasn't a murderer. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a little, a little uh, Wolverine sure. um, that it, it's kind of refreshing to see. Yeah, absolutely. He's not jaded yet. That's the difference with Tim. <sighs> He's not broken yet. Yeah. yeah. Does he ever really? I don't think so. Yeah. I think Tim stays a good boy. That's good. That's good. So like I said, this is their first official team up, uh, even though they were technically working together with No Man's Land, but they become a frequent pair because I have read this series before. It's just been a while. But what is it about the two of them that would make it or makes it enticing and, and fun for the writer? And even for you, I mean, some of my favorite parts of the Stephanie Brown run was her and Damien. So what is it about the Batgirl and Robin team up? that writers just love. I mean, I think with any, with any kind of team up like that, it's the lethal weapon. It's the good cop, bad cop. And it's, you know, in the case of, of Steph and Damien, you know, Steph of course was the good cop and Damien was the bad cop. And we had the inverted dynamic of the good cop kind of being in the right to get results. And so it's the, it's the good cop doing what the good cop does and saying it's okay to be the good cop. Mm-hmm. And we can get things done the good cop way. Um, whereas with in this version, she clearly, especially having read the other issues, is more of a badass than Tim is. She's a bit more of the bad cop, and she is kind of in the right. She is mm-hmm. seen as you know the mentor in this pairing. So there's they're they're they give and take a little bit from each other. And Tim has some of the niceness, and she has some of the edge. And we have the inverse kind of with Steph and with Damien. Um, and I think if you can get any pairing together where they're not the same two people next to each other, then, then I think that there's in, in either, either configuration, you, there's, there's fun to be had with the two, yeah. um, which I assume uh, I saw some pictures on the internet of uh, Cass and Steph in costumes running around. So I would assume there's something to be had with that, but we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Boy, am I hoping. <laughs> Backgirls, that's all we've ever wanted, you know, ever since your final issue, we're like, this is what needs to happen. This is like this team of Batgirls, Oracle's heading it up. Please, my God. There's yeah. enough of them. Why shouldn't they all I be know, doing something for together? sure. Yes. Yeah. Bring back Wendy. I don't even know what she's doing in this current yeah. The Robins. Weren't the Robins a street gang? Wasn't there something? Oh, a yes. There, there sure was. All thing and- oh, man. Well, any other uh, thoughts or topics you want to talk about on 18? 
I just wish I knew a little more about the dead eye guy, but uh, yeah. I mean, he, do you feel like, since we're on that topic, do you feel like he's too close to Deadshot? I mean, if I didn't know about Deathstroke and Deadshot, and I'd be like, okay, cool, it's a guy, he's got a dead eye, it's a robot <laughs> eye, and he does this thing. It just, uh, it, it, I think there's a necessity in, in, in uh, you know, I'm guilty of it as well in some of these things, where you want to give as much time as possible to, you know, the money of the issue is the pairing and not the villain, especially mm. if it's in a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly I don't think he needs to be more prominent than, than he is in the issue. Um, but I would have liked to know just like a little bit more of something yeah. about him, like maybe even out of his own mouth. Um, cause I think he's just all killer, right? Yeah. Like that's it. He shoots up and then he's got the hostage. Yeah. Uh, so like a, like a little bit more. Cause it's, I mean, as, as long, if you can get to a point where you've got, there's something the hero can reflect on about themselves from this other person, even mm-hmm. if it's like super fleeting, even just like a little thing. Yeah. Um, she traded some of her humanity or had some of it, I guess, trained out of her, right? Because of what her dad did to her. Mm-hmm. He's got his reflexes are different, right? Cause he's got the robot eye. Like it feels like there, there could be something with like one or two more pages where, yeah. where that could have been unpacked a little bit. And both assassins. So there's that, yeah, that mm-hmm. connection too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, out of 10 French shakes, uh, what would you give Batgirl number 18? Splat rats. Um, <laughs> out of the splat rats and the dead Batman and the French shakes. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, I think the price of admission is right there on the cover and it's the two of them. So I'm, I'm going to say eight. I'm going to say eight French shakes on that one. Because I yeah. always like seeing a good Batgirl and Robin pair up. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for it. I'm a sucker for it. Yeah, everything else is kind of background to what they go through and yeah. sort of the misunderstanding and his misjudgment of her and then getting to know her a bit more. So, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Concur. Yep. Concur wholeheartedly. Now, there is a segment called What Are You Wearing? But um, I felt weird telling you to wear a particular something <laughs> like a pop culture thing. But I will say, at least for you, I did wear this team. Oh, my gosh. Staff, Look at that. This team staff shirt just for you. Nice. So I'll at least say that for for the the what are you wearing but we're uh, at i the- will admit that i used to, i i used to have a, a raglan of that very shirt oh, and it got horribly stained oh so no it got pulled out of rotation but i did i did for a while i, yeah. I had one of those so it was, it was white and black and oh white man yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a parent so these things happen so. yeah i yeah i get that yeah thanks to yeah. donovan he he's the one who gifted that to me and i hold on to it well, we're at the end of our segment, and I don't want to have you leave before you can tell listeners and viewers uh, where they can find and support you. And I mean, I, I guess I kind of spilled it at the beginning, but yeah, what are you doing and, and how can we uh, be fans of yours, basically? Uh, what, I'm over on the Twitter, at least for the time being, at the app Brian Q. Miller. Uh, what, look for some more stuff uh, from me in season two of Motherland Fort Salem. Um, which will air at some point. We're about to start shooting. Fingers crossed it all goes like it's supposed to. Um, and then uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe on Netflix at some indeterminate time in the next year and a half. So we're, and it's, it's coming together really great. I'm excited about it. So um, it's, uh, it's a good time. But yeah, that's, that's what I got going on. Okay. 
Well, oh my gosh, as always, it's a pleasure. Oh, please, thank you. Thank um, you for having me. Yes. yes. Uh, and you're making, you're one of the reasons why 200 is special. And one of the reasons why this podcast is gone, has gone on so long, just uh, getting to talk to you and, and loving that Steph Brown. Cause I feel like if, if that run were terrible, I would have stopped my show <laughs> but because I wanted to keep reading and reviewing. Sure. I mean, so it's basically you have helped Backroll Oracle get to 200 episodes. <laughs> no, I will happy to happy to help. When I come back, I'm going to be joined by Scott Beatty, co-writer of Joker Last Laugh, where I interrogate him about the story. And then we are also going to be looking at and reviewing three tie-ins from that particular event, Nightwing 62, Batgirl 21, and Robin 95. But first, Zias's Radio Hour, featuring number one fan by Muna. So I heard the bad news. Nobody likes me and I'm gonna die alone in my bedroom Looking at strangers on my telephone
going. Okay, here is my final guest for this extravaganza. He is a writer for DC Comics since the mid-1990s, including the Batman Handbook, Batman Ultimate Guide, and of course, Batman Gotham Knights. He writes for Marvel Comics with the upcoming mini book of heroes and mini book of villains, co-writer of my favorite Bab story, Batgirl Year One, which you can see back there, and co-writer of Joker's Last Laugh, which is what we've been covering in this huge episode 200 extravaganza. It is Mr. Scott Beatty. Welcome. Thank you, Stella. Welcome. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to be welcomed. Pleased to be here. I'm happy that you're here too. And it was a random coincidence that it just, I had that question about why is Joker in this lab? How did he get there on Twitter? And then you responded and I thought, oh my gosh, what, why don't I just ask him a bunch of burning questions that Sam and I had when we were covering Joker's Last Laugh and here you are. Oh, well, thank you. I have to admit on Twitter, um, I do check my, my Twitter account maybe daily, but mostly to troll politicians. Um, <laughs> and, and occasionally I'm tagged in, in things that I wrote and, and I'll drop little uh, Twitter bombs about uh, things that I have upcoming in terms of writing. But uh, for the most part, I, I've been, you know, kind of the, the guy that trolls nasty politicians. So. <laughs> Sounds good to me. As, a, as an armchair social justice warrior. Sure. Yeah. I was actually thinking about the first time that we spoke, we had to use Skype and it was way back in 2011. Oh my when, God, the bygone days. Yeah. You, me and Chuck Dixon went through and talked about Batgirl Year One. And I actually had to have your phone number in order. We had to do a Skype to call and yeah. I was super nervous about that. And I remember <laughs> calling and your wife answered and I said, uh, is Mr. Betty there? And she goes, it's baby. <laughs> I thought, oh no, it's off to a terrible start already. I was so no, embarrassed. You know, not at all. My wife uh, kept her maiden name so she's actually not a baby so okay she was not offended at all probably just you know upholding the name for our kids because they have to tell people how to pronounce it correctly absolutely yeah i actually had two students that had baby so i learned from that mistake to right off the bat know how to pronounce their last name so it all worked out Okay, well, Scott is on here to answer some questions that Sam and I had come up with when we were talking about that. And then we'll also talk some tie-ins. And I've got questions that'll be, I think, broader scope as well. We'll do the Nightwing tie-in, the Batgirl tie-in, and the Robin tie-in, basically the ones that Barbara Gordon appears. Okay. So just to start off, how did Joker's Last Laugh come about? Well, Joker Last Laugh was a story that Chuck Dixon and I had sort of spitballed back and forth. I think chronologically, we had just come off of Robin year one, and we were looking for something to do uh, together again. And DC back around the early 2000s had what is uh, called uh, fifth week events. And essentially in the publishing schedule, sometimes Wednesday, there were five Wednesdays in a month, okay? Um, which means that they had to fill that Wednesday with material in order to, you know, keep their, their books fresh on the shelf. So the fifth week events were crossovers that came every few months. And so Chuck and I pitched an idea that the Joker had uh, a joke played on him, essentially. He was in the slab, which is DC's meta-human prison. You know, it's like Oz for supervillains. And uh, one of the uh, Oz, one of the slab people decided that they were fed up with all the Joker's, you know, hijinks, his monkey shines, his shenanigans. And so during a routine medical check, uh, they told the Joker that he had a brain tumor. Essentially, they played a joke on the Joker. Well, they didn't realize that that's like, you know, uh, playing with matches over, you know, a can of gasoline. You know, okay. I mean, I, I know there's another metaphor that's more explosive, but what it did was it made the Joker self-reflective. Uh, in the first couple of pages of the book, the Joker went through the, you know, the seven stages of grief in seven seconds, mm -hmm. you know, panel by panel as he dealt with his own mortality. 
And the goal of the series was for the Joker to kind of go on a suicide run throughout the DC universe, having a, a whole army of Jokerized supervillains along the way. I mean, he essentially Jokerized every villain in the slab and made them a version of him. And the, 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 the crux of the crossover was that every other title that crossed over with us could have a villain, not the Joker, but a Jokerized villain. And what they could choose from was basically any villain in the slab, and it didn't have to be, and was actually actively encouraged not to be a villain from their, their book's rogues gallery. So if you wanted Two-Face in Wonder Woman, you could have him that month. If you wanted the trickster in Birds of Prey, you could have that villain that month, Jokerized. And we kind of likened the Jokerization to the jackals or the hyenas in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Mm. You know, those were kind of like the goons uh, with the cartoon guns and everything. Uh, they they kind of reinvent themselves every morning. It's whoever that villain is magnified to the nth degree. Their personality exploded a la the Joker. And so the, the core of it was that Throughout the, the miniseries, Batman and his allies would be just beset trying to stop all the Jokerized villains and stop the Joker from his suicide run, not knowing what his ultimate game plan was. And if you read my blog, I, I've gone through previously uh, the plans we had, the things we could do, the things we couldn't do. And ultimately, we wanted to have a crossover that had resonance. We wanted the crossover to have some lasting impact. And the goal in the end was to kill the Joker, to have a hero kill the Joker so that the hero was brought low by the clown prince of crime. And the hero that we wanted, we couldn't use. And so we did somebody different, but we wanted to have lasting uh, repercussions throughout uh, Chuck Dixon's monthly titles, which then included Detective Comics, Nightwing, Birds of Prey, and Robin. And we would kind of follow it through that. So when we pitched it to Mike Carlin, who was then executive editor, we wanted to do just a self-contained miniseries that only impacted the Bat books. But Mike saw potential in it, and along with Denny O'Neill, decided to make it a company-wide crossover, which had both good and bad aspects to it uh, from there. So in the end, you know, if you've read the series, it's Nightwing who is driven over the edge. And there's a history there because of what he did, what the Joker did to Batgirl, mm -hmm. what the Joker did to Jason Todd, and what the Joker uh, was perceived to have done to Tim Drake in the series. And so Nightwing is the one who was essentially supposed to kill the Joker. And you know, in the end, we did kill the Joker, and, you know, we also brought him back. And so that's, I guess, you know, the uh, uh, how it should have ended or the, you know, sure. the uh, yeah, version of uh, Last Laugh. So that, yeah. that, that, that's it in a nutshell. Did you know going in that it was going to be Nightwing and that that was the person whose story would really irrevocably change from this? Um, no, Nightwing came through revision. Okay. Um, I think more than anything else that we had co-written together, uh, this was the one that had the most changes in progress because of things we could and couldn't do. Uh, it's it's no um, it's no secret now, having you know outed it on my blog. Uh, Superman was supposed to be the, the the hero that killed the Joker, and the reason why he killed the Joker is because we initially wanted the Joker to kill the most beloved hero that we were allowed to have our hands on, and we wanted the Joker to kill Elongated Man. Oh wow. And the, the, the premise was that he killed the elongated man and stretched his body across the, the Gotham Gate Bridge mm. and scrawled on the body, you know, look what I did. 
you know, and Superman just, you know, enraged that, you know, this beloved character, Ralph Dibney, was murdered, you know, would snap, you know, enrage uh, Joker's neck. And at the time, you know, it seemed profound. I mean, this was long before Man of Steel and, you know, <laughs> Superman killing General Zod by breaking sure. his neck. But, uh, you know, we, we planned it and we wanted it to be really anarchic. You know, we wanted it to have just that, that layer of just anything goes, just chaos and anarchy pervading throughout. And when we pitched it to DC, Chuck and I were waiting for our, our rides to go home. Chuck had the train back to Philly and I was, I had driven into New York that day. So we took in a movie in Times Square and we actually saw Fight Club. Mm. And, you know, the space monkeys in Fight Club, we're like, we turned to each other and said, you know, okay, we, you know, we're onto something here. The zeitgeist that we were trying to capture is in this film. And so that's kind of where we were headed with it. But Superman was the original hero that was supposed to do the deed. Obviously, we couldn't. You know, you can't tarnish the big blue Boy Scout. And, you know, they also balked at us killing uh, Elongated Man. And, and we balked, they balked at us killing the Joker. We wanted to kill the Joker and replace him with this Jokerized character from the series. Uh, who would become the new Joker. Mm. And, and, I, and I can quote the executive editor who said to us, you can't kill the Joker, he sells peanut butter. Wow. Yeah. Okay. True story. <laughs> true, true story. Now, I mean, come on, Stella, you know what, 10, 15 years later, the Joker cuts off his own face yeah. and then ties it on with a belt. Yeah. And that gets through editorial, but sure we does. just wanted to kill the Joker and replace <laughs> it with a new Joker. And then, you know, Jeff Johns, you know, makes waves most recently with three Jokers, which mm -hmm. posits that there are more than one ace of knaves. So I, I think we were just slightly ahead of the curve with Last Laugh. Yeah. And Wonder Woman snapping Max Lord's neck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, it's, you yeah. know, it's happened before, but, you know, apparently we were pushing the envelope just a little too hard yeah. and far in 2001. <laughs> uh, would you say that the Joker won potentially at the end of this story by corrupting Dick, or was there another goal in, my, in his mind? Yes, um, on any given day. I mean, I think that the Joker would maybe hold on to that and say, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I made your kids dirty or mean mm -hmm. uh, but then he'd be on to the next thing you know um, mm -hmm. in my mind and I think Chuck was on the same uh, the same wavelength also when we wrote the Joker dialogue we heard Mark Hamill in our ear sure. uh, because he was just so popular and he had so defined the character with Batman the animated series um, I, I couldn't get the the line of dialogue out of my head where the Joker is reacting to Batman punching out his hyenas and saying you know hey I don't hit your kids and you know and he's like oh wait i do you know that sort of thing so yeah uh, and pardon my really bad joker mark Hamill. no that was actually really good <laughs> oh thank you thank you um but but that that's kind of the thing we had in mind is that you know the joker was just trying to do everything that he could so we had a whole laundry list like he wanted to have a baby with harley yeah you know he wanted to you know you know just uh, take a, a the Maori statues of Easter Island and, you know, mess them up. I mean, ultimately the goal was to bring down a hero and, and at least leave that, that thread there. So that's what uh, the fallout that Chuck would then deal with in Nightwing and, and the bat books that he wrote. And we had initially uh, pitched some comic book series that would spin out of the events of last laugh as well. So. And those, did those go through? No. Okay. Um, and it wasn't for lack of, I think it was, uh, by the time we had gotten to the end of it, the fifth week events, Last Laugh was intended to come out in April of 2001, but it was pushed back, I believe, to October um, because of Emperor Joker. So we had to okay. deal with another crossover. We sold well, but I think we had crossover fatigue by the time we came out. 
Gotcha. And I know that uh, when we went into New York to pitch it, uh, we came back later to the DC offices and kind of mapped out everything on a whiteboard in the editorial uh, meeting room. And then we had the editors come in one by one and we sort of explained what they would have to do and tell their writers to do. And I know that there were a few writers that didn't play by the rules um, and they'll, you know, should remain nameless, but uh, they weren't supposed to use the Joker in their books and some did. Okay. And they were allowed to use, again, villains outside of the rogues gallery and some didn't. They, they just went for the low hanging fruit and picked whatever villain they wanted from their own rogues gallery and Joker. Gotcha. So I, I think that, uh, and I don't blame them at all. I think that what happens, you know, when you write crossovers is that, you know, you've got your own story arcs moving forward. You've got your own momentum and then suddenly, hey, it's crossover month you've got to stop what you're doing and do this. And so, you know, yeah. some played along, some didn't, but you know, we, we tried to maintain the core integrity of the miniseries in the title from the secret files through last laugh one through six. And then it would spill over into the other books as most crossovers should. Yeah. Yeah. And I've only read four of the tie-ins uh, and they were pretty, I think they played by the rules, but what one two three of the four were written by chuck so i guess that makes sense the only yeah, one is uh backroll which i do have some questions about that one as well we we were pretty jealous in terms of keeping what we needed to do within our core stuff and so you know chuck even in his books let me see what he was doing so that you know we, we kind of had a through line and you know vetted uh the beats that needed to happen all throughout and Very then afterwards cool. yeah so one of the criticisms that uh, Sam and I had, the guy that I review this with, and I did warn Scott, I said, Scott, is it okay if I ask you some critical questions? And he said, he's okay. Is that we thought this was too big a story for Joker. Can you talk a bit about the scope and why you chose to have it? I mean, I felt like it was large. Just why wasn't it self-contained in the slab? He does go to Easter Island. It sort of spills out. It almost is like world domination because you got <laughs> President Lex Luthor going after him. Yeah. So can you just talk about the scale and why you wanted to go big? rather than localized in Gotham City or the slab? Um, we wanted to go big because it, I think by nature of how we perceived crossovers, you know, it, it was supposed to, you know, go global and the villains were supposed to spell out and go global. And so the focus for many of the heroes were, was to take care of all these villains that were, you know, doing bad things. Uh, Chuck and I wrote the Justice League crossover issue that came out that month and we decided to go big with uh, Dr. Polaris, who is... Mm. You know, DC's Magneto. And his goal was to go to the, the South Pole and switch the, the, the poles of the Earth and, you know, wreak havoc with the magnetic field. And, you know, we, we, we conceived that the only person capable of stopping him was Plastic Man, because, you know, by virtue of not having much metal or any metal at all in his body. And, you know, quick story, the, uh, when we wrote the scene, we had a little cameo of Dr. Polaris in the, the actual Last Left miniseries. And at some point he was crashing planes together midair. And of course this had happened, 9-11 happened like just mm. weeks before. And, but we had written it prior to 9-11. And when I saw the art, I, I immediately called up uh, Matt Idelson, who was the DC editor at the time. And I said, oh my God, we need to do a patch for this because it's, it's too raw. You know, it, it, so instead, inexplicably, Dr. Polaris is exploding a volcano. You know, so it works. It solved that problem. But I, I didn't want us to be guilty of people saying, oh, you know, how can you have planes crashing, uh, you know, just weeks after 9-11 uh, in this in this, you know, supposedly uh, escapist comic book series. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, but circling back on your question, I, I think we just wanted to go big because we wanted to show that the Joker, who normally doesn't spend time with other supervillains outside of the DCU, could 
you know, blow beyond that, but ultimately it would come back to Gotham and be a Batman family story. Yeah, so. absolutely. And, and where does he go from there in the storyline? Cause I'm actually, I mean, I'm going chronological, so he's kind of stuck in this locked room now. Uh, do you remember what happens after this with the character? Um, you know, the thing about the Joker is that he's wherever you need him to be. Okay. So I think that our rationale for putting him in the slab was that he had had a revolving door policy at Arkham Asylum. Right. He's in, he's out, he's in, he's out. And in order to make the conceit work that essentially he's sort of a metahuman in a way, mm. because it's his blood that is the catalyst for the Jokerizing agent that turns everybody else into facsimiles of him. So putting him in the slab is a challenge for Shiloh Norman, who is kind of the apprentice, Mr. Miracle. Yeah. And it, uh, you know, we, one of the books we wanted to spin out of the series was called, um, uh, I think it was uh, Meta Hunters or something of that nature where Shiloh and Dina, the, the federal marshal actually hunt down uh, supervillains uh, using their, their, you know, their various skills. You know, she's a, a federal agent and he's got all, you know, all these skills at uh, breaking out of, you know, traps and things like that. So he would be the ultimate trapster in finding and capturing, and it would be a serial series like that. So was this almost a backdoor pilot then for them? Because we also wondered why yeah. there was so much focus on them, whereas we could have just focused on the heroes and Joker, but you have a lot going on in this lab with Dean. Well, we do. I mean, I think that, uh, I think more than anything else, you know, these crossovers usually lead to something. And so mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the consequences, we wanted to spill over into the monthly books. Uh, we wanted to do Meta Marshals. Meta Marshals, that was the title. We set up Blue Beetle uh, mm. being passed on to another character. Okay. Um, uh, because Ted Cord was going to, you know, be dealing with some personal health issues. We wanted to do a series that was just, you know, focused on the slab itself, you know, kind of a prison drama. And, you know, just kind of think outside the box in terms of these things. Um, but that, those were the core books that would, would have come out of it had we gone further. But, you know, given the, the nature of the series, we sort of needed uh, kind of an everyman character like Shiloh. And I think it's by virtue of the writing that you sort of, you find your darlings along the way. Um, and Shiloh and Dina just became characters that, you know, at the end of it, we really liked. So it would have been nice to see them again. Yeah. So another criticism that I personally had was Barbara's characterization uh, in the first half, and then it sort of switched over to Nightwing. But just that she's so angry, she's ready for the Joker to die or be killed. And leading up to this, her characterization, especially under Chuck with uh, Birds of Prey, she's not necessarily over it, but I feel like she monitors him, but it, it was never this... I don't know, this anger that was just at the surface all the time. And so I wonder what went into that characterization for her and, and talks you may have had with Chuck regarding that as well. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that we were that deep in talking about uh, Barbara's motivations because Chuck, you know, had been writing Birds of Prey with her. And uh, this was, you know, this predated Batgirl year one. So, you know, it's certainly she's one of my favorite characters, but I guess we couldn't uh, get away from the fact that, you know, she's got, she's mad. Yeah. You know, the, the Joker took away the thing that, that she loved most uh, in terms of crime fighting. And so I, I think that she sort of felt like she was responsible for keeping him in check. And then when things did spill out of control uh, as Oracle in her role as the, you know, this character who has a, connections to the larger DC universe, you know, she was best able to coordinate it. In hindsight, I think that, that 
I'm not sure we used her effectively mm -hmm. because I think that she should have been out. She should have been in the field more rather than kind of locked down in the watchtower. But, you know, it's again, we were sort of feeling our way through it. And Chuck and I have a, a pretty organic way of writing where we talk about the overall through line of the story. Uh, we know what the beats are, but we sort of write a couple of pages and pass it off back and forth to each other. And um, I liken it to an old issue of strange sports stories from DC. And it's about a tennis player who is playing tennis with his lifelong uh, adversary uh, competitor who, you know, during the, during the course of these five pages, and it's written by Denny O'Neill, he discovers that his, uh, the, it's not a tennis ball, it's a grenade. And they've got to keep it in play until it explodes. But darned if his adversary isn't breaking a sweat. And oh my God, he's a robot. And so, you know, the, the whole act of writing with Chuck Dixon is keeping the grenade in the air because I'll write five pages that I suffer over for five days. I send it <laughs> off to Chuck and an hour later, he sends back five pages more. And so, it, oh, and he'll write me to the edge of a cliff and say, okay, go. And so it, it has uh, benefited me as a writer because it, it's made me take chances. And then we do a, a, a write through at the end where we kind of, you know, go through for consistency sake. And uh, we kind of have an amalgam voice of the two of us together that is, you know, it's him and it's me, but it's us together. So it's very easy to collaborate. But I, I think this is one case where, you know, in hindsight, I, I, I would have had Babs do more and maybe not be so victimized, like, you know, to be the victim. Yeah. So I, I, I take your criticism to heart on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then it, it was interesting how her anger and, you know, transfers from her to Dick. So you see this shift yeah. where he was telling her, you need it, you know, it'll be okay. It'll be, and then it shifts over. And then she's now trying to comfort him as we see in the, the resolution of this and then tie-ins and, and future issues as well. Well, I think that, you know, both Chuck and I were kind of like Dick and Babs, you know, shippers in a way and wanted the two of them to be together. Yeah. I, I recall an old issue of Batman Family where, you know, I, I, and this is, you know, before Teen Titans and Robin and Starfire. So, uh, you know, depending on which camp you fall in, like who should Dick Grayson be with? Sure. Um, this old issue of Batman Family has the two of them teaming up. Uh, it might be the issue where like, he's in the white Robin tuxedo and, or the red Robin tuxedo and she's in the white backer wedding dress and they're, oh. being, they're being married at gunpoint or something <laughs> like that. But yeah. at, at the close of the adventure, Dick finally gets up the courage to say how he feels about Barbara, who's not that much older than him. Yeah. And she's sleeping. She falls asleep right after he's, you know, squirreled up the courage. You know, this crime fighter finally says, you know, I really like you. And then she's, <laughs> she's zonked. She's out cold. So I think that, you know, he feels responsible for, you know, not being there for her. You know, he's gone off to become Nightwing in the Teen Titans. And they do have this, I mean, he's, he's always burned a candle for her. So I think that his anger comes out of trying to protect her in, in, in any way that a boyfriend or a girlfriend might try to protect, you know, uh, their significant other because something bad is coming their way. Yeah. So, you know, it's chivalrous to a fault. Yeah, Absolutely. Now you said that this was a, a Batman fam, a well, Bat family tale, and I certainly see that because, of course, we have everyone coming together. Huntress is there, though she's always on the limits of or the periphery of that, and then Robin. I felt like Batman wasn't used as much as I would have originally thought since this, this was a Joker tale. Would you say that's fair to say? I mean, I thought it was more of a Dick and Babs with the Joker kind of tale. Uh, would you, was yeah. that fair to say? And then why that, that did fair. you maybe limit Batman's? I'm okay with it, but why did you limit Batman's appearances in the main story at least? Um, because Batman always ends the fight. Okay. 
I think that, you know, when you bring Batman on board and, you know, I can't speak to some of the, you know, the more current things like the, uh, uh, the Joker war and stuff like that, that, you know, these, you're juggling a lot of characters, you know, and there are a lot to juggle in the Batman family, but Batman is the guy who comes in and, you know, solves everything. So keeping him on the periphery is about, you know, making sure that, that he doesn't just, you know, stop the, the forward narrative and, and separating people geographically too helped us to, to keep it uh, to a point where, you know, he couldn't just come in and solve it. Like he couldn't just break through the window. Here's the Joker, you know, he punches him a couple of times and yay, you know, there's no more story. Things had to proceed at the pace that they did. There had to be anarchy. So, you know, we had to move the chess pieces around the board and keep, you know, keep them running from each other to a certain extent. Uh, one question that my co-host asked that I, I was not sure is why have the climax in the cathedral? Hmm. I'm trying to recall. It, it might have been as simple as putting the Joker in that, uh, the, the Pope robes. Okay. Uh, because, you know, he does have a lot of costume changes throughout. Sure. Uh, you know, he's wearing the, you know, the uh, Hawaiian shirt at one point on Easter Island. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's, it seemed like a, a big place, you know, in order to, to show it uh, geographically, I guess, in Gotham. I think one of the things that I would, if I had to do it over again, uh, we were talked into having a rotating cast of artists which I think kind of, it, you know, we, we wrote the series with the same intent throughout, but each artist kind of changed the tenor of the issue in some small ways, because it, you know, if the artist was more cartoonish, then it, it had a different feel than, you know, Pete Woods, who started it off and it was very serious. But, you know, even with Pete, we had some like, you know, nice little gags set up throughout. So I don't know, Gotham Cathedral, I think it may be Heck, it might have even had something to do as a callback to uh, the Batman film with Michael Keaton. Just, you okay. know, some, some big edifice, you know, it had to be yeah. some place, you know, that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, he did mention that. He also wondered if there was any sort of resurrection uh, symbolism there, because, of course, he died and then he came back to life. We weren't really sure. Yeah. I, I don't I don't recall, you know, like any I don't think there was any. Uh, long-term discussion about it. I think we, you know, somebody might've said, let's do Gotham Cathedral. Okay. You know, like it, it didn't, you know, there wasn't any pushback or, or back and forth with it in terms of, you know, the why it just, it seemed like a good thing at the time. Gotcha. Okay. We recently did another show on this collection of essays called politics in Gotham. And one of them actually talked about that. There's a, there's not really religion in Gotham. Everyone's focused on the news and that cathedrals and things are used as quote ruin porn or like destruction porn or something like that. And, and just religion isn't. And so anytime that pops up now, I'm like super focused, like, Oh, how is it being used to see if, if that uh, essay writer was correct or not. So just wondered what your take was i'll have to check that out um my criticisms of things like man of steel are that i you know post 9 11 i have a problem with uh destruction porn Mm. in films because it just it's too raw you know superman would have taken the battle with the kryptonians to jupiter you know or to a desert he wouldn't let the city fall down and all the collateral damage and death as well but yeah that that makes sense um as far as religion goes i I wrote a secret files bio of the Waynes once that, that has been scrutinized to, uh, to the degree where people uh, posit that Bruce Wayne is Catholic oh. or that his parents were Catholic as a result. And it wasn't intended to do that. It was, you know, talking about like secret societies and things like that. And so the problem with nailing down any religion in, in comics, at least, you know, in the past is that it's exclusionary to a certain audience. 
you know, because the heroes are meant to be, you know, everything to everyone. You can see yourself in that hero, even if it's not your gender or your color or, uh, you know, your, you know, who you are at your core. But the minute you say that this person is, you know, Catholic or Jewish or Muslim, then, you know, if it's not your religion, if it's not shared, then it doesn't feel like, you know, that you can cosplay them, you know, in your imagination. Um, and so I, I could see why, why Gotham could be seen that way. And I could also see why Gotham could be seen as, as, you know, not, I don't know, I wouldn't say atheist, but maybe agnostic, uh, just because it's a, it's a city that is so ridden with injustice that, you know, people wouldn't have faith in the traditional places that, that bring them comfort. And so you'd have to put your, you know, put all your uh, faith in, uh, you know, a demon of the night. Yeah. So, yeah. So what are your thoughts then? This is of course something else, but just your opinion on Huntress. Because um, she does, she is a Catholic. Yeah. And I think, perfect. I, I, I think that that is owing to uh, her character and her background as, you know, the daughter of, of, you know, a mafia family, but I mean, you know, whether or not she's practicing or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is as pious, you know, sure. I know she had the, the crucifix and the new, uh, the, you know, the, the most recent uh, iteration of her. I don't know. It just, we don't often see the, you know, we don't see Sundays in comic books, you know, yeah. we don't see, you know, people going off and practicing their faith or talking much about it. And I don't know, you know, what the effect that has, but I think the huntress, the huntress is consumed with exacting revenge for what happened to her parents, her own parents. And so she's a lot like Batman, but, you know, I think she just wears it on her, on her costume, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're getting at something. We, we talked about that and, and I made the hypothesis that I think religion also makes writers potentially nervous to write about just because you don't want to be preachy, but you also don't want it to fall into sort of these tropes of, oh, look at them and make them really terrible. So it, they try to just avoid it so they don't fall into any of the pitfalls, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I had written uh, a bunch of supervillain origins for uh, the uh, Countdown series, um, you know, little two-page backups in the end. And I had my, my origin for, I'm trying to think, was it Eclipso? I think it was Eclipso, yeah, because it had roots and connections to the specter. And I had used the phrase that the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, and I was referring to the Old Testament as like the God of rage and wrath, mm. because, you know, we have in those books, we have Noah's, you know, destruction of the earth right. in Noah's Ark, uh, you know, uh, Lot turning to salt, uh, Lot's wife, that is, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and all that kind of stuff. And so that was the, the metaphor that I was trying to use, but I was criticized because uh, I think somebody said that it was being, that it was potentially anti-Semitic and that was not my intent at all. It was the, you know, the, the New Testament is the forgiving God. The Old Testament is, you know, I'm going to destroy the earth until you fly right, you know, that sort of thing. And so that's where we get the God of wrath, who is the specter and, you know, how that has been perceived in, in, I guess, newer versions of, of the specter in comics. And so, yeah, anytime you, you touch upon religion, it's going to, you know, affect somebody, yeah. you know, wrong. They're going to, they're going to pick it apart and they're going to look for something that says who you are, your own religion, mm -hmm. and maybe your beliefs about somebody else's. And it, it was not any, you know, intention to, 
either affirm somebody's religion or to criticize somebody's religion. It's just that they connected the specter to God during John Ostrander's run on the specter. Yeah. And I was trying as a, a, a chronicler of origins, I was trying to be true to that in two pages. And so, you know, the phrasing may have uh, taken people down a different road than I had intended. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, well, I wonder if this story were set in modern day, or if you were writing it now, would you modify it at all? And if you were to, what would you modify? And then after you talk about this, I've got my two social justice <laughs> questions just to just to warn you. But yeah, what would you think if this were 2020 and you were writing Joker last line? Um, okay, so if I were writing it in 2020, I think the things that I would do differently, I would keep the core element the same because it, it hinged upon a high concept. The Joker thinks he's dying, and so he tries to do everything that he can. He tries to live life in one day. Uh, I think the collateral damage would have been greater and more lasting. I think that we would have lost some heroes, but we would have lost them in a way that uh, showed them dying heroically. Maybe not, you know, getting, you know, shot dead at a, a superhero clinic, you know, in the heartland, um, like in Identity Crisis, or I'm sorry, um, I, I'm, mis I'm misnaming that crisis, the Tom King book um, that came out two, three years ago. Oh. Heroes in Crisis. Heroes Hero in crisis. Oh, yeah. And that's not a swipe at Tom. It's, I think that there would have had to have been some greater lasting impact of it. The joke at the end, uh, Nightwing killing the Joker and Batman bringing him back. It's never made clear who performs CPR on the Joker. <laughs> but in our minds, it was Batman. It's always Batman. Okay. I think we would make that more clear. But I think that the Joker doing what he's doing, I think that maybe in 2020, uh, there might be more exploration of just who and why the Joker would do such things. We, we, we kind of imagine him as, you know, reinventing himself every morning, uh, but just being kind of chaos incarnate, that there's no rhyme or reason to him. He just does what he does and he gets off on it. And so I think we would maybe try to explore that to a certain degree further, but also just have some, you know, some more lasting impact, especially with the Jokerized villains that, you know, the fallout of this event uh, would have would have gone further but by nature of crossovers you know they, they have to resolve themselves and then we have to go back to the status quo things are calm for a while and then we do the next big crisis invasion crossover event you know that sort of thing so mm -hmm. i i think we would probably follow it uh with more of a rift between dick and barbara mm. and i think you know i'm at the point now where i think that i i want to see nightwing and starfire together <gasps> Uh, I know, I know. What a betrayal. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think that there would have to be some kind of conversations in the Batcave. I don't know if I would kill off any of the Bat family uh, because, you know, in Last Laugh, we, we tease that Tim Drake is dead. Mm -hmm. He's not. I wouldn't kill Alfred. You know, that broke my heart because he's, you know, he, he's the voice of the Bat family, the mm -hmm. conscience. But... I think in terms of the mechanics of the story, we'd have a consistent art uh, from beginning to end. We'd still have Brian Bolland covers. And I think it would be self-contained. Uh, I think it would be a bad story and try not to include the larger parts of the DC universe. That was, again, sort of thrust upon us and we had to work around it. But I, I think that at the core of this, this is about why doesn't the Batman family do something final with the Joker? And I think it ultimately comes down to the fact that we don't, they don't kill. You know, they don't kill ever. There has to be another way. But, you know, hey, he kills 
hundreds, thousands of people, but no, this is the line we won't cross. Yeah. And, you know, having that existential dilemma, maybe, maybe voiced by every single character in the Bat family, you know, including the newbies that, you know, weren't raised by Batman, you know, like the Huntress or Spoiler or Cassandra Kane or something like that, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that maybe two factions, you know, the anti-Joker and the, you know, the, the characters who are, are really gunning for him. Like, let's just finish this. So. Yeah. Very cool. So, okay. So two social justice questions. So first <laughs> of all, do you feel like, and this was something that my co-host came up with, Sam, um, Black Mass. Do you feel like his character or characterization is racist in our current era right now with Black Lives Matter and things like that? I think any character who's named Black something, who is a, you know, an African-American or Black character, yeah. I mean, but it's also, you know, built into it. And, you know, we've, we've accepted it, the stereotype. Um, you know, we don't say Panther, it's Black Panther. I mean, that's right. how he's known. Uh, Black Lightning. I, I think that it, it didn't really, uh, it wasn't really an issue with us, Black Mass's race in the story. Just the fact that he had a power that could, you know, swallow up the slab in a singularity. And, um, you know, he had very little dialogue and we kind of turned him into a zombie. So I... I, I guess maybe I would be more mindful of that. Um, when I was writing Number of the Beast, which is another crossover series in the Wildstorm universe, I, had, I created a character named Black Anvil, uh, who was a hero from the 1940s. And he was uh, a, a, a black athlete who could turn his skin as hard as, as iron. And we called, I mean, I, anvils are typically black in color. And we called him Black Anvil because it was a nod to... Uh, you know, this trope in comics that every African-American character was named black something as if you couldn't tell. Uh, in, in a, you know, post Black Lives Matter universe, I, I don't think I would do that. I think I would be more mindful of it because I'm coming from a different place as, you know, as a, a Caucasian writer that, that I should be more mindful of, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the impact of that. And, and uh, ironically, I just read uh, John Ridley's The Other History of the DC Universe. And right, I found yeah. it to be uh, I finished it today, the first issue, and I, I just found it to be really, really compelling. And I love the timeline, uh, how it's set against certain decades and, and chronicling Black Lightning's life and uh, his his struggles that were, you know, hinted at, but in very stereotypical ways in 70s and 80s comics. And I think really just did a bang up job. I can't wait for the next issue. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd, uh, I'd maybe find another character um, that, that isn't part of, you know, the black blank trope. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, his, his characterization was merely, he was a cipher. You know, his, his role was to, to be a, a living singularity in the story. And Sam did say that once we, he ended up reading The Secret Files and Origins at the end. Mm. And I read it after I read issue one, because I realized I missed something and came back and, and read it. And he said that after he read that, The Black Mass which you may have written actually that it gave so. a more characterization. So it was a bit better, but it was just hard that you only had that like the who's who, and it wasn't really as much uh, in the narrative, but yeah, it's, you know, when you're writing a crossover like that and you have so many characters, yeah. I, I don't know that there was a conscious effort to think, okay, we need to give him a character defining panel because it, it was just, he was a, a two dimensional supervillain from, Justice League, I believe, you know, the old, the Detroit era Justice League. So that I guess, I guess at the end of the day, you know, we, we just really just were using characters and, you know, we had a list that we asked for and there were characters that were taken off the list that we couldn't use because they were in somebody's camp. 
uh, editorial or writing camp. And so uh, we wanted to use Shrapnel, a character that I had used in uh, the DCU Holiday Bash, which was my very first DC comic story was set in the slab. And Shrapnel uses Multiman to break out of the slab. Oh, so, okay. so Last Lab is, is very much a callback to my, my, my break-in story at DC. Uh, but we couldn't use him at the time. And so we came up with Frag, who is essentially a, another version of, of uh, Shrapnel. So it, sometimes the decisions just come down to the mechanics of moving a character from point A to point B. But yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. And I see that uh, the, uh, how he could be misinterpreted. To just one other point. When we wrote the, the secret files, we knew we were going to do a secret files for the series. And Chuck and I had gone to the editor and said, why does this have to come out after the miniseries? Mm. Doesn't it make more sense if it comes out before? Yeah. And can we put the first chapter? So the first issue was meant to be double-sized. And so we split up chapter one and put it in the secret files. Okay. And it, was, it came out chronologically first. I don't recall if it was promoted as strongly as the first chapter of it. But we thought, you know, here's all this ancillary material that is, you know, related to the series that's supposed to enrich it and be, you know, uh, added value. Why not do it first? And there was pushback from the editor, but ultimately he relented and allowed it to come out first because he was outside of the editor for the Secret Files was outside of our core editorial camp. And since then, the the one and only trade paperback that uh, DC has done did not include the Secret Files. And if you go to the Comixology page, uh, for Last Laugh, the Secret Files is not connected to the page. And so mm. that needs to be rectified. However, uh, you know, behind me, you know, on the shelf, those purple editions of Last Laugh from Spain uh, are great because they not a- include the, the Secret Files, but all of the crossover issues as oh, well. Oh, wow. Perhaps maybe DC will get it uh, out sometime with the Secret Files, you know, corrected and all the crossovers as an omnibus edition. So you can kind of read the story as it was intended. Yeah, that I think that would be best just because Sam felt like he was missing something. And yeah. I felt like I did, which is why I stopped after issue one and went back because it does give the setup for everything. It explains why Dick and Babs are out randomly driving around. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And, and Pete Woods did both the first issue and that that twenty four or 22 page uh, introductory story. And, you know, I think I've shown on my blog, like all the design work Pete did for the slab, uh, for the prison guards and their kind of stormtrooper like, you know, uh, suits, uh, various character designs and, you know, all this wonderful stuff. And, you know, you see it first in that issue. So every time I promote it on my blog, I say, please, please read the secret files first, because this sets up everything. It gives you a primer for a lot of the supporting characters, including Black Mass. Uh, it's got stuff like the Joker's intake form for the slab where, you know, they kind of do the inventory of all the stuff they take off of him, like his acid spewing boutonniere and, you know, the gag pistol and rubber chicken and all that other stuff. So, okay. Uh, So my second one, I want to preface by saying, I do not hold you responsible. I'm just asking because you were there. So we want to know. I'm a bit numb to it, but when I was reading the credits for the secret files, Mm -hmm. Sam started laughing and said, wait, there was only one woman who was Amanda Connor. And then I said, oh, you're right. And then I did research while at work and looked at all the credits. Well, it's, it's hard to say. All, of, all the tie-ins and everything. Let's just say there weren't many uh, women doing things. And the only woman writer on the whole thing was uh, Devin Grayson. She was mm-hmm. doing Gotham Knights. So I just wonder, you know, what was the, I don't know, the culture like at DC at the time? Was there just a dearth of women and and you didn't have anyone there? 
Um, Any insights there? It's gotten better. I I didn't realize it was that bad in 2001. Well, it was. I mean, it was. I mean, and I I wish I could speak to it more um, outside of just the fact that I was trying to break in myself. So, you know, I I know that, uh, that I was competing against a lot of males and I know the young men my age at the time, but I don't know like many women other than Devin. And, you know, I was always insanely jealous of, of Devin because it's like, not only, you know, was she writing the, the book that the, the later I wrote, but yeah. that uh, her last name was Grayson. I thought, oh, <laughs> you know, she has the perfect name. She was hired on that alone. But Devin's a great writer and uh, uh, I have nothing but respect for her. I think at the time there were fewer women, uh, you know, working and breaking in, even though there has been many women over the, over the years in comics maybe the editors just weren't mostly male weren't giving enough women a chance. Uh, and many of the editors that I've worked for at DC, um, I think there was more gender equity. I, I my editor on the countdown origins, uh, was Janine Schaefer, you know, who I had a great relationship with. And I had worked previously with, um, well, I've got, I'm, I'm blanking on names now, which I guess, you know, kind of answers your question. It kind of shows the, the dearth of, of female editors at DC also, but, you know, and I, I Stella, this also lends itself to the fact that a couple of the, the editors in power at DC at the time were ones who have, you know, since been uh, jettisoned from DC for, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. very, you know, negative behavior. And um, so uh, maybe the culture there, you know, wasn't, you know, conducive to, to hiring female creators. Um, and happily, though, it, it's nice to see that, that there is more gender equity throughout comics and, you know, so many uh, brilliant women writing and drawing now. At the time, I just, I, I, I can't really say because I, you know, I, I wasn't in charge of, you know, picking, yeah. you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a legitimate concern. And when you look back through it and you see, I think if you've ever gone to like a convention back in when we had those sure. and we'd go down Artist Alley and you'd see, you know, maybe 15 to one ratio of classic male creators versus the women in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we owe such a debt to Marie Severin and Ramona Freyden and, you know, just too, too many who are unnamed, you know, that, that didn't get credited in the books too. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say again, I don't hold you responsible. I just wondered since you were there at the time, what you saw and everything. It was just interesting for me. I, I saw a lot of assistant editors who perhaps, you know, maybe saw the ceiling and couldn't get beyond it. Uh, I know gotcha. that the, you know, editorial at that time. Um, and it, it, this was, you know, I broke in when uh, Karen Berger was, you know, in charge of Vertigo and when Jeanette Kahn was still at DC. And, you know, mm. I remember, uh, I remember reading an article that Jeanette Kahn was from State College, Pennsylvania, which was a, a stone's throw from where I grew up in central PA. So I thought, if I ever get to talk to her, you know, that's my in. I knew we're, you know, we come from the same place. Uh, so I, I guess I've never really thought of it much beyond uh, just the fact that, you know, there weren't as many female creators at the mm. time. So, but I, happily that's changed. And, and just, uh, you know, the fact that now Marie Javins is, you know, the, you know, editor in chief of DC just shows you that, you know, that the, we are in much different times than, yeah. and the recognition. Yeah, um, you know, one, one other thing, um, <laughs> uh, you, you had mentioned my wife earlier. I took her to the San Diego Comic-Con know, probably around uh, 2000, 2001, something like that. We went there and we used it as a, a vacation in addition to a, a business trip. And my wife who uh, teaches women's studies, and English Lit had remarked just how few women were at the convention mm. and how clean the uh, the women's rooms were <laughs> on the convention hall. Uh, and this is before cosplay. 
and before, you know, just, you know, there was more, uh, you know, gender equity in terms of fandom. Um, and so she, you know, she wanted to write an article about it at the time that, that you're just, you know, where are all the women? And now when you go to, you know, conventions, you can see that comics have uh, become more inclusive and reflective mm-hmm. of the population. Yeah. So, happily. Yeah. Well, my last question, you touched on it a bit. Wasn't sure if you wanted some more uh, to offer some more insight, but my oh. friend and I, we were wondering about the different artists per issue. I wondered if there was a, a bit of a meta commentary because of course uh, with Killing Joke, so, sort of the multiple choice origin. So I wondered, oh, maybe they're having a different artist per issue to show that it's like a different type of Joker, but he wasn't sure about that. And then you said that if you wrote it today, you would have a cohesive artistic team. So is there anything else you would add on just the inside of, of picking a different artist per issue? Um, I think that, you know, on, on paper, uh, having a different artist and the choices of the artists, I think we were all, you know, pretty good. It made sense in terms of the, you know, looking at the book and what we were trying to accomplish. True story uh, for the covers, uh, they wanted, uh, Matt Idelson had suggested that we get Fred Hembeck to do the mm-hmm. covers. And if you know, Fred is, you know, he's a longtime cartoonist and parodyist of uh, DC and Marvel and comics in general. Uh, Fred used to have a, a, a a uh, strip in the back of DC Comics when they had the Daily Planet final page, which would mm-hmm. have upcoming comics and, and everything else. But he wanted Fred to do the covers, very cartoony, and then have those things uh, be, the covers then be inked by Bill Sienkiewicz, which would kind of be both, you know, cartoony and then, you know, just off the rails in terms of, of you know, Sienkiewicz's very hyper-realistic and, uh you know, his art style just kind of, you know, like something clashing, you know, in order to maintain that uh, flavor of what Last Laugh was about. So uh, ultimately, we didn't do it for, for whatever reason. I don't think it got past just the idea stage. But the, I think the different artists, we had enough lead time. And Chuck and I, our scripts were all in. However, drawing so many characters uh, would have been like a Herculean effort for anyone other than George Perez. And, uh, you know, when I, when I wrote my very first comic script, my first commentary from my editor, I had written a nine panel page. And, you know, even with full bleed comics, that, that's a lot of work. And so my editor called me up and said, Scott, this is great. You're doing a great job, but we don't have George Perez for this. <laughs> so, you know, average artist, like, you know, five, six panels maximum for the, you know, page. You, you, need, to let the, the, you need to let the art breathe. So I, I think that the, the choice was let's have a daisy chain of artists and we'll have enough lead time that we'll have, you know, Pete do all the design work so that if these, if we have callbacks to specific places, specific scenes, they'll see how to draw it. And so that way, you know, as the pages are coming in, the next artist can go, you know, sort of like a relay race and we can all get to the same conclusion. I just think that the characters kind of evolve throughout the course of the story. And sometimes when we write gags that, you know, might seem, you know, very darkly humorous and a different artist would look slapstick compared to, you know, sort of that uneasy laughter you have when somebody says, you know, gallows humor. So, you know, it, it was a grand experiment. And I think that, you know, the successes and failings can be measured equally. But, you know, we, we, we ultimately did what we wanted to do with it, except for the fact that we didn't kill Elongated Man. <laughs> And, and we didn't get to, to, you know, exchange the Joker with another character. So sure. uh, w- when you read it, you know, Rancor, 
Um, you know, he was that little toady guy who kind of, you know, his ability was to amplify the emotions of people mm -hmm. around him. So it, it was his power that kind of fueled the Joker. And in the end, we were going to make him the new Joker oh. and legitimately give the Joker a superpower where if he, he would make you feel uneasy, you know, uh, kind of like those uh, psychotropic weapons that the military has experimented on, that, you know, kind of mess with your mind and make you go a little crazy, you know, like, to cause riots and confusion and, you know, rebellion. That's what Rancor would do. He just would, you know, he would wear the Joker tropes, but it wouldn't be so much about playing cards and, you know, the, you know, the, the poker uh, deck suite of, you know, kind of tropes that have been used by the Joker endlessly. So. Yeah. Did you but, have any oversight on the covers? Like, did you tell artists, this is what I'd like to see on there? Or did you just let them have the issue and read um, the story and then come up with their own ideas? I think it was mostly they read the script and it, Scott McDaniel, his, his, you know, sort of followed that. And he tried to, I think, you know, include as many characters uh, in it. We, we knew we were going to be bookending by Brian Bolland's covers and, but Brian, I don't think his schedule permitted doing the entire series. And so uh, those two covers have been used endlessly uh, for different Joker promotions. Uh, I know the first cover was made into a, both a poster and a t-shirt uh, from graffiti designs and the last cover, um, if you read my blog, there's a true story behind that. Brian's initial submission had the Joker beaten much bloodier. Mm. Uh, his ear had a bite out of it Ooh. and was dripping blood. And Matt Eidelsinger uh, called up uh, Brian and said, you've got to tone it down. <laughs> so uh, if you go to my blog, you can see uh, just, you know, the original with the final published version, which DC deemed to be too bloody. Wow. And again, you know, this is 15 years before the Joker cut off his own face yeah, yeah, and held yeah. it on his skull with a belt. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I, I like to remind uh, executive editor Mike Carlin of that fact that, uh, you know, the Joker sells peanut butter, so we can't kill him. Sure. You know, so. And uh, you've mentioned your blog, and I read a bit of it, but I didn't want to spoil. I think I was starting to do it before my, my deep dive into Joker last lap. But where can people find that? Uh, my blog is uh, HTTPS Scott Beatty. Uh, that's S-C-O-T-T-B-E-A-T-T-Y. Uh, dot blogspot.com and uh, the blog is titled dialogue to follow which uh, in comic parlance is you know if you haven't thought of the word balloon yet if you're plotting marvel style you just you know put in a little place filler called dialogue to follow okay. uh, and so you come up with that that perfect word balloon so it's called dialogue to follow and i pretty much uh, i use it most exclusively to focus on uh, my greatest hits uh, past works i've had a, a great deal of things that have been uh, including Last Lap that had been talked about during the pandemic. You know, in the beginning, for a lack of new comics, people were, you know, delving into classics. And so some of my things like Last Lap and the year one books have gotten a lot of press. And I'm also focusing on, you know, new writing uh, assignments. I have two very small books. They fit in the palm of your hand. The Marvel mini book of heroes and the Marvel comics mini book of villains. They are 150 page, 150 character biographies of you know these are excuse me marvel villains and marvel heroes and that's coming out from inside editions on january 11th it was pushed back because of the pandemic because it was printed in china so okay wow. so they'll, they'll be in your hands they, they ship uh, january 11th if you're thinking about a holiday gift for the the marvel fan in your sphere a little so. stocking stuff for apparently yeah yeah 
Yeah, they uh, and they're they're very cool. I mean, you know, they're they're shrunk down to a manageable form, but they are jam packed with information. And I'm I'm most proud of the fact that uh, in writing it, uh, I was tasked with this sort of like power level sort of sidebar that lists you know their power, uh, strength, stamina, you know, like th- these various stats that you would see if you were playing a role an RPG with mm-hmm. a Marvel Comics character. Um, these things, if you go on the net, even if you go on the Marvel website, they're all over the place in terms of, you know, Galactus is stronger than the thing, you know, or the, you know, the thing is stronger than Iron Man, you know, it it doesn't really make any consistent sense. So our goal, uh, my editor, myself, and the editors at Marvel who vetted this was to kind of make the definitive power level guidelines. So in addition to telling, you know, where the characters come from in a short uh, you know, very short paragraph blurb about who they are and their, you know, their origin encapsulated as fast and quick as we can is that the power level sidebar tells you definitively that, you know, uh, that Mr. Fantastic is smarter than Tony Stark, you know? Yeah. So he gets a seven and Tony's only a six. <laughs> and, Makes sense. It's Yeah. Fair. The watcher's a nine. So, okay. Uh, yeah. So we're quite proud of that fact, but it took a lot of work kind of you know, going through all of it. So uh, I have written encyclopedias, the DC encyclopedia, lots of uh, secret files and things like that. But boy, this one, you know, nearly broke me. Oh boy. <laughs> it's a lot of facts. To okay. Keep straight, so. Very cool. Well, before we get into our little three tie-ins, is there anything else you would like to say about the main story that you think people would like to know or be interested in? Um, just that, you know, I think if you go into it as an, an escapist story, um, you know, it's, I don't know how much it's acknowledged in terms of continuity these days. Uh, happily, I think that uh, my year ones with Chuck Dixon are, are still considered canon, you know, even though we, we, you know, the further you get away from a story, the less it's considered canon. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, we really tried to avoid a lot of, you know, despite having some cell phones and, and technology to kind of steer away from technology that would make any, any of these stories feel dated. But I think if you go into it like a summer blockbuster, I mean, that's kind of what, the feeling that we wanted to evoke is that this is meant to be a popcorn flick, you know, big explosions, big things happening, jokes here and there, but ultimately we wanted to tell a story of the bat family and a significant event. And I think what uh, the things we set up with Barbara Gordon are the things that ultimately, you know, we, we, we touched upon in Batgirl year one, uh, especially in the final pages, where as, as Batgirl is kind of channeling the Oracle that she'll become later and thinking about her future, you know, when we have that, that pop-up of the Joker uh, that echoes mm-hmm. killing joke that, you know, that even though, you know, this was a significant event, she was made better by it. She was made stronger. Uh, even if she couldn't walk today, if she didn't have that, that spinal uh, infusion that, that brought her back to Batgirl, she would still kick ass. When the Birds of Prey television series was on, uh, I know that Dina Meyer, who played Barbara Gordon, Oracle, had contacted uh, Chuck, uh, you know, to talk about the character and that Dina, uh, who was, you know, an action star actress in her own right, uh, studied fighting techniques from a wheelchair, uh, like mm, using tonfa wow. and, you know, Eskrima sticks mm-hmm. so that she could really be active. And then when she got to the set, they had her plop down in a motorized wheelchair and, you know, totally ruined that whole aspect of it. So I, I think that the through line is that, you know, it, it was, it was good intentioned crossovers very rarely these days. You know, the DC universe has been rebooted, what, two, three, four if, if you go into it thinking of it as a fun Joker story, and if you read the Joker dialogue as Mark Hamill as the Joker, you'll have a lot of fun. Okay. 
Sounds good. Uh, there was some, I had a question and then it just, it fled from me. So I guess we'll just, <laughs> we'll just move on. Okay. Um, so we're going to do Nightwing, Batgirl, and Robin. I already did the Birds of Prey tie-in with uh, Gorf. In fact, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, he came on and, and we did that. Yeah. So, uh, but I will bring it up in the Batgirl because there's a question about that. So let's see here. Nightwing 62. So I'm at least going to sort of criticize it and review it, but I tell my guests that are professionals, please do not be holding to that. Because that could be awkward for you. So don't worry about it. But I'll give a summary and then we can talk a bit about it and move on. So Nightwing 62, its subtitle is Midnight Madness, A Last Laugh Jaunt. December 2001 is its cover date. And according to comicsreadingorder.com, it came after Joker Laughs Laugh number two. So yes. just for timeline. Okay. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Staz Johnson, inker John Lowe, and colorist Gregory Wright. Nightwing makes his way inside the slab to try and find the Joker, haunted by unpleasant memories of his previous encounters with the Madman. The Joker has transformed numerous supervillains into his own likeness, and Nightwing soon encounters some of these, Meathead, Riot, and Leather. He is able to deal with them fairly quickly, though his encounter with Meathead is somewhat disgusting. <laughs> Rancor watches this. There he is. Rancor oh. watches this and rushes off to warn the Joker that Nightwing is on his way. The Joker is unconcerned. He's got more important things to worry about, like a whole lot of people to kill. Right. <laughs> so I actually didn't think, well, actually, before I even say what my criticism is, I'll ask you, since you were head of this event, uh, what, is, what do you feel like the purpose is of a tie-in and what should it accomplish as it works together with the main event? Well, the, the tie-in should add value to the story. It should follow a significant plot thread from the, the core story, yet still maintain the integrity of the book, you know, the monthly book. So, you know, obviously, you know, there, there's an opportunity there to keep the through line moving for whatever's happening in Nightwing from the previous issue to the one after the crossover. So I think our goal in kind of talking about Nightwing, which then Chuck wrote solo because it was his title at the time, was that, you know, Nightwing would kind of be the, the reader's eyes into the story. And he would, you know, get deeper into it. I think that at the time we talked about the fact that of all the Bat characters, you know, because of uh, his involvement with the Teen Titans and then becoming Nightwing, you know, the, the reason why he became Nightwing was because you know, they needed a Robin and the Titans needed Dick Grayson. So, uh, yeah, and there he is. Um, that that's, he missed the killing joke. He missed all of that stuff. And so, you know, he kind of has this, this need to sort of, uh, you know, catch up and do something about the things that, that uh, he wasn't involved in by being outside of the Bat family, you know, it's like, yeah. he, he wasn't there to help Batman through, you know, that time. And, you know, you have to, you know, if Oracle is Oracle, then you have to regard the killing joke as canonical. Hmm. And, you know, so if the killing joke is canonical, then Batman did not snap the Joker's neck at the conclusion of that issue which many people surmise based on, you know, the fact that, you know, the camera pans down to their feet and there's this, you know, this moment. Um, so, you know, in the story itself, then, you know, we kind of have, you know, a flashback to the things that the Joker's done, you know, the bad stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't think that Robin has ever really been afraid of the Joker, but this is an opportunity for him to finally understand, oh, wait, he's not just fooling around. There's some really bad stuff here. Mm -hmm. And so you look at this page, my relationship with Barbara, the way each of us uh, you know, looked at our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd gone away uh, because he was rebuffed by her, you know, yeah. but now they're coming back. And, the, you know, at the start of this, if you read the, the Last Life Secret Files, 
it starts with the two of them going out for crab cakes yep. and having a date, you know, it's a date night. And uh, that in itself is a uh, kind of playing off of an earlier birds of prey issue that Chuck did. That's just brilliant where Dick takes Barbara and says, what do you miss? You know, what's the thing you missed most? And she misses flying. Yeah. And so he takes her to the circus and, you know, they take her up on the trapeze and, you know, they, they do this sort of high wire, you know, waltz. Uh, and it's just brilliant, beautifully drawn by Greg Land. And it, it's hands down one of my favorite comic books of all time, just for the fact that it's just about the two of them exploring what it means to be sidekicks to Batman and what they've lost as a result. Yeah, Birds of Prey number eight. That is actually one of the most expensive comics I've ever bought because I had to go on eBay to get it. It's Oh, hard. no. How much was it? You know, I think it was at least $30, which oh, doesn't seem like a lot, but still that's the most I've paid, I think, for a single issue. So. You know, when DC Comics was still at, uh, at on Broadway, you know, 50, you know, on 54th and Broadway, um, I, I lived uh, a little further south here in Pennsylvania and I drive in, it was 100 miles from my house to parking and then just a short, you know, couple of blocks walk to DC's offices. I was there the day that that art came in to Matt Eilson's office and got a chance to see it as art before it was published. And I saw the cover and just thought, you know, how brilliant it was. So uh, that's, that's one, you know, one blessing of being able to, at least at the time, visit DC on a regular basis. Man. Drum up work and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I just asked the question about the purpose of a tie-in. And in my, in my opinion, my critical opinion, this issue doesn't fit that description. I feel like this panel that we're, or page that we're looking at right now where he flashes back is the most important part because I think it gives almost motivation or reason for what happens at the end that he's just, it's, he's pushed. Of course, we'll see in Robin that he's pushed even more. But I just feel like he's running through this lab and not much is really developed uh, for me, at least, that's that's how I was reading. It. I was just like, ah, you know, I there could have been something else with Nightwing. He could have done a, a bit more. What what would I mean? I'm you might disagree. Do do you feel like there's something that I'm missing? Like, what would you say is the the crux of this issue, and and why is it? Well, it's context for it, and it certainly it adds value if you were buying Nightwing at the time. Mm. Um, but I know I think Chuck and I were, uh, and we had mentioned this I think in interviews around that time that. Uh, the core story, the only thing you needed to buy was Last Laugh. Okay. And, you know, like if it had, you know, a Last Laugh crossover, we didn't want readers to feel like they had to go out and buy every single comic book published uh, that week and that month by DC. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, certainly that was very mercenary. Um, <laughs> I, 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 back in the, the, you know, 1985, I remember as a teenager in, in Central PA, I was getting my comics from a subscription service in Maryland, Sykesville, Maryland. And I made the mistake of checking off crisis on infinite earths crossovers that month. And my, my bill went from like $38 to like $120. I was a newspaper boy. Uh, I delivered, you know, two different newspapers in my town and I had to take out a loan just to pay for my comics because of all the crisis crossovers that I inadvertently ordered. So maybe that would, that was, you know, fueling my, my desire to, to just tell people that because we had, had, pitched it as a mini series that was self-contained mm-hmm. we didn't feel like that that the threads of the story had to be in everything else so i think that you kind of kind of get a history of dick grayson and his feelings on the joker and you know it, it's a mini adventure in the slab i mean he's kicking characters butts he's fighting a guy who is literally you know 300 pounds of meat yeah. and literally meat, yeah. you know um and meathead yeah. and uh 
but but you know it's you know when you get back to last laugh you know that's the core of the story so i I think that's the intention there gotcha and you know i I don't think it was meant to be filler but it was also but it was meant to be about dick grayson and the joker and Mm -hmm. and also be you know just kind of the you know the the dick grayson stories that chuck wrote i think were were always best like as they were forward moving because he really kept the momentum throughout that series that you know it's one conflict after another and I think that fits the acrobat that is Dick Grayson. Yeah, yeah. Going back to that question I asked about if, if you were writing in 2020, do you think that Joker Last Laugh could work as just an original graphic novel, just having no issues, but just that whole story being one and then sold like that? Or would you prefer the issue format? Yeah, it might. It might. I mean, certainly a graphic novel is, you know, 64 to 96 pages. I think we could have done, uh, we, we could do something like that. And the problem is, is that, that now, you know, we would be coming after things like Joker War, uh, things like, you know, the Joker cutting off his face and, you know, and three Jokers. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, there's been a lot of Joker material. And uh, one of the issues we had when we published it was the fact that, you know, we pitched our story and then Emperor Joker was a Superman crossover where mm-hmm. the Joker acquires the powers of Mr. Mixias Pitalik mm-hmm. and, you know, and gets the powers of, you know, the universe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, you can't use the Joker too much. I mean, you kind of have to lay him lie fallow for a while in order to, to come back to him because then he has more resonance. So I had pitched a story later that Matt Idelson and I were working on that, uh, you know, the Joker for a while then became off limits because they wanted to let him, let him lay uh, and I, we, we were working on a story where the Joker was trying to find a way to weaponize his, his himself like a plague. And it was, I think it was going to be called Joker plague or pandemic or something like that, where, because his, his madness was aerosolized mm. that, that they had to do something final with him. And it just, you know, it was in the spitball stages and didn't go any further, but you know, the Joker is again, a character that you can't, you know, you got to keep him in reserve. You can't use him too much or he becomes a caricature of even themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all I have on Nightwing 62. Do you have anything okay. else you would ask on, or add on that one? Okay. Um, just uh, on the cover. Um, yep. I, t- I take credit for bringing back the whirly bats. Oh. Okay. When I was a kid, the fact that uh, in the back of the Batmobile, there were personal helicopters that oh. would unfold and you could wear like a backpack. That yep. was hands down one of my favorite things. And I think there's a call out to uh that that dick mentions it uh because they need to use the whirly bats to get from the mainland to the slab island and i think dick mentioned something about you know you know yay whirly bats or something like that so okay let's see if i can i, I think i may not be in this issue it might actually okay. be the last laugh oh yeah oh, and there we go we got some villains I, I if you go back here this uh i don't even think we actually have this it wasn't gorilla grod i don't think we were allowed to use him okay so uh you've got mr or dr savannah i think this is just a random gorilla character because we <laughs> You know, we needed a gorilla. Yeah. And there, here's Frag, who is the human fragmentation bomb. So there he is. We, we did create some villains for Last Laugh yeah. specifically. And then to show that meat. I mean, especially yeah. that one <laughs> scene where he kicks him in the head and it retains the... There, there it is. <laughs> Whoo, boy, yeah. yeah. Molded from ground chuck, apparently, yeah. Yeah, there, I think there's something about, you know, having Nightwing fight a character that's just really grossed out like that. <laughs> in, in the first issue of Nightwing Year One, we have uh, Nightwing, or Robin, pre-Nightwing fighting Clayface in the sewers of uh, Gotham. 
and uh, Clayface points out that he, he makes himself from whatever malleable material is nearby. Yes. Yeah. And so you know, Dick realizes that, that he's made out of poo. So. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it kind of looks like Tobias Whale, too, just with the, the white. Yeah, with the, the Joker yeah. eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I am not going to rate it just because, I don't know, I feel like I would be unfair to it. So I think I'll just move on. So we're going to Batgirl 21. Okay. Again, the cover date was December 2001, and it falls after Joker Last Laugh number three. Writer Kelly Puckett, penciler Damian Scott, inker Robert Campanella, and colorist Gregory Wright. Batgirl is destroying Batman's property, even though it's inside her cave, when spoiler throws up. Cass apparently has exerted herself so much that she needs to throw up. Spoiler has come to fetch Batgirl for Oracle, who has been calling her for 10 hours. So I guess that's how long Batgirl has been training. Once at the clock tower, Oracle updates the two as to what has been going down in Joker Last Lap and tells Cass especially that she will not be going out to fight and will stay right with her. Surprisingly, Cass agrees and goes to train in the danger room, again working so hard she destroys property that is not her own. (laughs) The power flickers and Shadow Thief appears. Batgirl stops the flying shuriken from killing Oracle and Spoiler, grabs Shadow Thief's sword, and then runs out of the building. He chases her and they have a lethal battle where Batgirl copies some of his style. While this is happening, Spoiler helps Oracle restore enough power to disrupt Shadow Thief's device. The fight turns lethal as Shadow Thief is killed, but similar to the end of Joker Last Laugh, which I have a question about, he is revived, this time by Spoiler. Cass is distraught, and Spoiler tries to comfort her, but Cass leaves and flashes back to her agreement with Shiva to fight with her with all of her killing skills, and the issue ends with Cass actually reading up on her supervillain files, even though she wasn't before. Okay. So question here, uh, you had, I mean, you just had some discussions you said with the writers, but with, it seems like there's a parallel between Cass killing Shadow Thief and Nightwing killing Joker. Uh, was that intentional on either your part as, as co-writer of this whole thing or Kelly Puckett? Was there any conversation about that? Is this no, in- no, there wasn't any conversation. And in hindsight, we probably would have said, hey, Kelly, don't have him kill him. You know, <laughs> okay. We've got this planned. Um, you know, because we were so focused on what we were doing, I, I think that we trusted. But, you know, Kelly is just a phenomenal creator. Um, much props to him. Uh, and w- great respect from both Chuck and, and me regarding Kelly's abilities and what he did with the Cassandra Kane character uh, in, uh, you know, in general. So um, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, negate what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything, you know, it, it certainly is foreshadowing in some aspects, I guess you could say, uh, after the fact, that is. But I, I think that's, you know, great cover here by who's yep. this, Tim Sale. Yeah. The uh, Kelly got the basic premise that you could take a villain that's outside of your bailiwick and, mm-hmm. and run with it. Um, you know, at this time, the offices at DC were, were really, you know, kind of, you know, islands under themselves. So, you know, the bad offices had their characters, the Green Lantern offices had their characters, and never the twain shall meet in between. So, you know, if we said, hey, you know what, use Sinestro this month, you know, like that's, that was really the challenge. And I think that because we knew that we were interrupting writers and, and artists' regular runs on a series, and we didn't, that was not our intent. Again, we pitched it as a miniseries that was self-contained, you know, because we had to, you know, shoehorn our way in, we wanted to give the creators something that at least would maybe tempt them 
or, you know, mollify or make up for it in some way. So Mm -hmm. the fact that Kelly was able to say, you know what, I can use Shadow Thief and I don't have to ask whoever is the editor of Hawkman this month in order to do that. And so, you know, we had a bunch of characters who appeared in the slab and we had a master list of characters that were available. So it was nice that he took Shadow Thief and not, hey, here's the Joker stopping by, you know, when when we have the Joker on Easter Island and then Mm -hmm. for continuity's sake, it doesn't make sense. So as somebody who had to write a lot of timelines of DC characters and secret files, I, I was, you know, at the time, you know, no pun intended, super cognizant of the fact that things should make sense, mm-hmm. you know, in continuity as it would in any m- movie that you're watching where, Hey, wait a minute, that character, you know, I don't need to see the, you know, Starbucks cup, which is anachronistic, you know, in game of Thrones yeah, or jeans guy in the Mandalorian, you know? Oh, jeans guy. So, yep. so, you know, um, I, I, I don't know. I guess in hindsight, it, it plays more to the fact that they're trying to make Cassandra Kane a character who they can trust in the Bat family, mm-hmm. that she's not going to murder everyone. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the fact that she's crying here in the, the panel that you have on the screen and that she's trying to, you know, to make up for acting in haste, you know, listening to the different masters in her life, her father, Batman, Oracle, Lady Shiva, that yeah. sort of thing. So, I don't know, I guess it kind of plays towards that, that... Uh, <laughs> The CPR. I didn't know this at the time because we were so focused on doing what we were doing. And I think post writing, we're probably, I had moved on to the next writing. So I know that personally, we didn't vet everything. Okay. And if Matt did uh, vet this or was, you know, talked about it, maybe he thought, okay, well, this is just, again, a signal to what's going to happen later. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it serves a dual purpose, certainly, because I think now, as you see at the end of the issue, she's remembering, we're coming up on that year anniversary where she's about to duke it out with Shiva with yeah. all of her skills. And so I think we, with all those training sequences and how hard she's pushing herself, she ended up pushing herself to a lethal level here. And so here are the repercussions. But I think it does have a nice parallel with what happens with Nightwing as well and that, that regret too. So it, it, yeah, and you know, I think Stella. Twenty years later, I mean, I know the some of the events in Batman right now, where all three characters, uh, Babs, uh, Cassandra, and Stephanie Brown, are all wearing the bat symbol mm-hmm. at the same time. And then we don't just have Batgirl; we have Batgirls. Yeah. Um, and, and this is twenty years on, so like a lot of these character threads that have still that have managed to survive New Fifty Two Rebirth, all that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know the Bat books in general usually tend to survive the uh the the reboots and continuity i think mostly because the bat bat back catalog mm-hmm. earns so much money that to negate you know nightfall or you know contagion or any of that stuff batman year one for that matter you know which is on its you know 98th printing at this point, <laughs> it, it makes no business sense and at the end of the day, you know, people need to realize too, that th- these are business decisions, you know, it's equal parts. Hey, I want to tell a cool Joker story, but also, Hey, there's this Joker story that's going to sell a lot of books, mm-hmm. you know, just by, you know, the nature of what, uh, you know, what we intend to do. So, you know, it's, it's one hand washes the other. Yeah. So a criticism I had on this issue, which you actually started to address. So you may have actually already answered it. I was surprised that Shadow Thief was used in this issue because he is seen in the tie-in with the Birds of Prey, which was 36, and that happened after Joker, Last Laugh, number two. But he was still in the slab when Dinah encounters him, so I guess that's like the okay that he's in the slab and now he's out, so it's okay that we're double-using him. Yeah, 
I, I would, I would imagine, I hate to say this, uh, that it was probably a lack of communication. Okay. Um, you know, remember it's 2001, we have email, we have phones and stuff sure. like that, but you know, we're not just jumping on Facebook in between, you know, writing a page or, you know, inking a page and saying, Hey, I'm just thinking shadow thief. It, it, he's <laughs> not in this other book is you know, like, you know, I don't yeah. think we, we, we did that. And you know, a lot of the, uh, traffic of this was in the editor's hands. Mm. Um, and if I can do a callback to Gorf, uh, who you mentioned earlier, yeah. um, I, I, I would just want to say that I'm so fortunate that I broke in in the VAT offices and at DC at the time when Gorf and Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo, and uh, you know, they all worked for Denny O'Neill. They were the architects of Nightfall and you know, the VAT breaking and the emergence of Bane. So mm. my, my very first, uh, you know, one of the very first things I did, I had lunch with Denny and uh, Darren Vincenzo. And I just feel so fortunate that I broke into DC under the guidance of a lot of these guys, especially Denny O'Neill. So I'm willing to forgive stuff like this because, you know, it, it was a formative time for me, but in hindsight, I'm like, Oh, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll keep me up nights. You know, it's kind of, it's those little like continuity glitches that I'll wake up in the middle of the night and say, Oh no, you know, we have to change that, that sort yeah. of thing. My other question would be just how he knew where to find them. Because, I mean, she's kind of off the grid and uh, not many people yeah. can put by her defenses. So I just wonder, like, how did he know to zero in and, and find the, the ladies here? All right. So little known secret in comic oh, books. <laughs> Remar- <laughs> remarkable coincidences. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so Stella, here's the thing. We were talking about black mass earlier Yeah. Uh, and his power was to, you know, create a black hole that swallowed up the slab. Okay. Mm-hmm. That sounds cool, right? It's a, it's a high concept thing. An editor at DC who shall remain nameless came to Chuck and myself and said, black holes don't behave that way. And Chuck and I, there was a beat of silence and Chuck and I, you know, were kind of formulating a response and Chuck said, black holes behave any way we tell them to. <laughs> and, and he, Chuck finished by saying, if readers don't understand it, they'll think it's cool. Mm. Now that was not a slight against readers by any means, but I mean, this is how science works. It's the willing suspension of disbelief. Sure. If you think too hard about it, why the heck doesn't Kylo Ren cut his thumbs off every time he, you know, he ignites his lightsaber. That's true. Don't, don't, don't think too hard about it because okay. cool. Okay. So black mass you know, creates a mini black hole that swallows up the slab. No, everyone isn't crunched into a singularity. They're not spread out like taffy. You know, it's not like Matthew McConaughey saying, you know, time is a doobie, you know, I mean, or whatever, like, you know, it just, it it is what it is. Okay. Okay. So the fact that he finds it, you know, that that's the kind of detail that would bother me, but there is a certain momentum in comics that you have to skip over certain things and not t- think too hard about it. Maybe you can solve it in expository dialogue. Uh, maybe you just skip over it. Kelly obviously had a reason in his head why it was able to work. I don't know what that reason is and he might not remember, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. So. Okay. We'll go with it. <laughs> so yeah, my last two things are just, I think this might be the first meeting of uh, Steph and Babs, if I'm not incorrect so i think that's exciting Mm -hmm. and then uh just as a a babs uh you know aficionado and someone who takes her side i would also shame Cass for not reading up on her supervillain files but (laughs) she can't read so that's another issue that we have to get through with cassandra so 
I think that's all I have on this issue. Do you have anything else on Batgirl 21? No, no. Just other than the fact that it's, you know, all the Batgirls together. And, and I, I think that there's, there is certain foreshadowing there that, you know, Stephanie will eventually become, you know, Batgirl. Yeah. Um, if I can just interject one quick thing. Please. Uh, one of the books that we talked about that we were going to spin out of this was Blue Beetles. Oh, okay? yeah. Intentional, plural. And Ted Cord was going to have, uh, and Chuck was laying the groundwork for this. You can actually, if you go back and look at Birds of Prey, where Blue Beetle appeared, mm-hmm. and uh, Issues of Robin, that the, the, this, the groundwork was all set up for this. This was almost a go. And I'm not sure why it never, you know, never did become something, except for the fact that we were creating essentially a new Blue Beetle. Because Tim Drake needed the money, <gasps> Ted Cord was going to hire him to be Blue Beetle in his stead because Ted was too ill to take on the duties. And so Tim, you know, would be like, wow, he gets access to all this technology, the mm-hmm. bug, all of Ted's, you know, super high tech equipment and everything else, which was going to leave a vacuum for Robin, which was going to be filled by Stephanie Brown. Wow. So Chuck had intended to make Stephanie Robin long before she became Robin in the title. And that was going to be her redemption too, like proving herself to Batman and to Tim. And where Blue Beetles was going to go is that eventually Tim would come back to reclaim Robin. But along the way, they were going to set up a Blue Beetle in every city. So it was going to become a franchise, not unlike the Robins of We Are Robin later on. And uh, that, that's where that was intended to go. I'm not sure if we were going to actually kill off Ted. I think that, that he perceived his illness to be terminal, mm. but he was going to take a more Fagan-like role in terms of you know, hiring you know, able street kids to fulfill the, sure. the need of Blue Beetle. So, wow. Yeah. Very exciting. And, and I can see already now that you say that some of the seeds that Chuck planted in Birds of Prey, because when oh, Tim yeah. first I mean, meets Ted, like they're getting along talking about tech. And then in a, I guess it was 37, I think is red, black, and blue or I think, or it was 38, but yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool to hear. Yeah. It's uh, I, I think that's, you know, one of the things coming out, I mean, if you're not laying the seeds of something other, you know, and yeah. whether it grows into, you know, to fruition of something that you can mine later on is great. But uh, the fact that, you know, we did kind of like, we, we, we planted, you know, these characters to be there as part of continuity uh, to callbacks because, you know, the, the DC universe has such a rich tapestry that you should be able to, to, you know, visit all these places. And, and, you know, if you don't embrace the soap operatic elements of comic books, you are missing their intent completely. They are monthly you are meant to, you know, come back to romantic subplots and subthreads. Hey, that character hasn't appeared for six issues. Oh, well, they were getting ready to do this and to pull their face <laughs> off and, you know, reveal themselves as the true killer. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's the same, it's the same format. Yeah. Well, here's hoping there's a Backerolls or a Team Backerolls or something book coming out in the future. I don't know. I, I would write Team Backroll year one in a snap. <laughs> that would be lovely. Okay, I'm going to give it a, I am going to rate this one. I'm going to give it seven out of 10 shuriken. And, Ooh, very good. Yep. And then final one is Robin 95, Book of the Dead. December okay. 2001 is the cover date again. And this falls after Joker, Last Laugh, number five. Writer Chuck Dixon, again, artist Jeff Parker, <laughs> colorist Noel Giddings. Joker is holed up in Gotham Cathedral, ready for the final showdown, playing both pastor and coach. So there's <laughs> some more costumes that you talked about before for right. his minions as they get ready. 
elsewhere beneath Arkham, Batman, spoiler, and Huntress examine the remains of Robin. Huntress scolds Batman, which I love. Spoiler freaks out about alerting Tim's family, and Batman tells everyone revenge is for weaklings. Victor Zaz pops out of nowhere suddenly and attacks, and he takes a beating from all three members of the family, but they don't feel better after that. Right. At Brentwood, Alfred and the Dean have a conversation about Tim and his absences. Alfred says he may not stay much longer since his employer is probably in desperate need for him or of him. Huntress, Batman, and Spoiler go to the Cathedral Square, which has a metahuman barrier, and we're told that Nightwing is already inside. At the Clock Tower, a saddened Oracle has trouble figuring out what to do next, along with Ted Kord, when Tim suddenly shows up and explains how he escaped Killer Croc uh, and the identity of the bones that are actually not Tim are unknown. Robin knows he needs to get to the cathedral quickly to potentially save Nightwing from himself, and they end up taking the bug. Okay. Well, I have a question. I don't know if you know this, but how was Chuck able to not burn out, uh, you know, writing the main story with you and then having these four uh, tie-ins? Do you know anything about his process? I mean, is he just a good time manager that he was okay and there was, everything came out? And Oh, he's all about the writing. He, okay. Chuck, Chuck writes, you know, in his sleep. As I mentioned in that little uh, story about how we co-write, mm-hmm. uh, the thing is, Chuck is always probably about three or four issues ahead on every title. Okay, and that, that's that's that. I think that's even conservative. I, he's probably more like six issues ahead. It, he he writes as far ahead as he's allowed. Um, he has inventory issues that are available in case an artist is burned out or you know needs a break, and uh, that can be slotted in very easily that are self-contained. Um, and that's how he operated at uh, I think both DC and Marvel. I think because we had enough lead time also that we had the core miniseries and he was writing these monthly things. And, you know, as we were writing the, the miniseries, you know, certainly we were splitting that half and half. So I think just because of his, like you said, his time management, he's able to do this. Um, reading or hearing your summary, you know, I'm, I'm shocked that, you know, we were able to keep all those, all those uh, threads in the air at the same time. Uh, but that's part and parcel to the crossover in itself. I think the, uh, well, I, I guess I'm lost now. The question, what? Uh, oh, it's other, just other, like, yeah. how did he not burn out? Basically, I was just astounded that you, you know, you both are writing six issues uh, of a main story, and then he's got these four tie-ins. So it was just, it was impressive for me that he was. Yeah, I think because that. I mean, because he had his own uh, his own workload. I think the burden of just keeping things straight uh, fell on me that I was sort of the continuity cop gotcha. um, for the core series. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why. Shadow Thief might appear twice, but uh, I, I've never known Chuck to burn out. I think that he's just he's able to juggle writing and writing different series and different genres at the same time. I, I think that when he gets in a mindset, and I apologize if I'm speaking for him in this, but I think that you know he'll write a lot in the one genre, you know, and then move on to the next thing. I, I don't think he needs a lot of downtime in between. That he's very capable of switching gears without uh, you know losing whatever focus you know that that particular thing needs in order to to be you know whatever story it is so as far as the the robin issue goes the 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 intention was that you know why not go down the avenue of having the joker kill another robin Mm -hmm. we needed to have something that would set dick over the edge uh we couldn't kill batman i mean you know coming (laughs) after nightfall it's too easy yeah Uh, huntress it wouldn't matter 
you know, because nobody was, and, 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 no offense. I mean, just nobody no, was. Like, no, I no just, I'm a, I'm a huntress apologist. So. <laughs> I love the huntress, but I love the earth too huntress. You know, I, oh, I, love, okay, yeah. I, you know, I grew up with uh, the fact that Helena Wayne, the daughter of Batman was, was the huntress and, you know, and there was sort of that nebulous area, whether or not she was, you know, romantically involved with mm. earth Two Dick Grayson, who was mm-hmm. much older because he had the salt and pepper sideburns. <laughs> um, I, I love the huntress, but the, the, you know, the current, version of her is she's a little bit harder to i don't know she 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 is you know her connection she's the outsider so mm-hmm. um and so the the intention here was to you know to to finally push dick over the edge but to keep everybody scattered i think you know the the bat family if they were all in one place they would have been able to handle this but there was just too much going on with joker and all the jokerized villains and you know as a crossover you try to get as many people on stage as as you can yeah. so you know having man bat as uh kirk langstrom and then turning into man bat but only to kind of shock harley quinn out of a hostage situation uh you know the Sometimes it writes itself, the, like the needs of it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's Blue Beetle. Um, yep. But but here, you know, we, we kind of needed to at least readers to think also. Because, you know, again, our initial intention was to have a beloved superhero mm-hmm. be killed by the Joker. And we knew that, you know, if we killed Elongated Man, fandom would hate us. You know, we would be the subject of much ire and death threats, you know. Mm. Uh, but But we needed somebody that they cared about in order for you know, killing the Joker to have resonance. And so, because, you know, we wanted to go large like that because elongated man had a connection to the bat family, you mm-hmm. know, that, that we could then make Superman be the one who takes out the Joker. And so when we were forced to switch gears and, and rethink the story, we thought, well, then it has to be Nightwing. It has to be Batman's first soldier who is, you know, corrupted by the Joker. You know, the Joker pushes him over the edge. And then in the months that followed, possibly up to a year, I think that was the intent. And I'm not sure at what point during this that Chuck went to cross-gen. I think it was later. But uh, at least for that time that Dick would question his own role as a hero Mm. and that it would put a wedge between all of the characters. His romance with Babs would be put on hold. Mm. That the little, you know, big brother, little brother outings on the Gotham subway or the Bloodhaven subway with Tim would be put on hold. It would just, you know, it would have an emotional impact if not a continuity impact. And we would just follow those threads because you know, these, these books are soap operas more than any other title, I think, in the DC universe. And they have a core continuity that, that uh, by, uh, by the fact that Denny had run a tight ship with all the, the, the books, that you know, the things that happened in Gotham and happened in their lives, I, I don't know, I guess the closest thing that these remind me of is like the Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort of internal you know, continuity and angel sure. and things like that. So. Yeah, I don't think that was the intention. Nobody ever mentioned that specifically, but you know, the moving them around the chessboard and and doing the whiteboard plotting to see you know where they need to be at a certain point. Yeah, uh, to advance the characters because mm-hmm. I mean every story, every good story, it's character first. It's not just plot and conflict. The characters have to evolve. I will say that even though I know Tim Drake, or I knew when I was reading it, Tim Drake wasn't dead this sort of spoils the ending when he appears in the cathedral. So I would almost recommend for a new reader to not read this tie-in if they're doing yeah. the, the main story, because then you're like, oh, he's dead. And then you're surprised when he appears. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, 
it comes to mind that maybe a book might have been delayed a week oh, or okay. that there might have been a, an internal thing. I know we, I don't think we ever published a reading list. Like, you know, none of the books were numbered uh, because it was supposed to be a little looser that you could follow, um, you know, the core miniseries and then pick up some of these ones as well. I think even at the time, Chuck said, just read my books and last laugh and you'll know what's going on. Mm. So and, you know, I think it also goes to the old Hitchcockian notion uh, that, you know, Alfred Hitchcock had talked about the fact that if, you know, you know, there's a bomb under the table in the room, that the audience knowing about the bomb under the table is more important than the characters knowing, because that is what causes the characters to have suspense, you know, mm-hmm. and for the audience to feel that, that, uh, that palpable sense of dread. Uh, until the character, you know, someone learns about it and then it's amped up. So even if the readers knew that Tim was alive, Nightwing didn't. And if Nightwing killed the Joker, then, you know, we would be able to say, look, he didn't know. Nobody was there to stop him. And that even feels worse for the reader because, you know, they, they're privy to information that Nightwing didn't have at the time. Since your original plan was, of course, elongated man, was it really just the straw that broke the camel's back for Nightwing to break, that it was just another victim at Joker's hand and that's why he snapped? Or was it Tim that pushed him? Because it was Tim, it was another Robin? Uh, Nightwing wasn't around for Jason Todd. Okay. Um, and I think that uh, Marv Wolfman and Jim Starlin had kind of explored uh, sort of the, the the gulf between Batman and Nightwing around the Jason Todd time post-Jason's murder by the Joker. And it's certainly something that we touched on in Nightwing Year One, Chuck and I did, because Jason Todd is a character who, you know, in, uh, in our continuity, Dick gets to meet his replacement. And, you know, it, it's part of the reason why he knows that there's no going back to being Robin after he's fired from being Robin, that there is a Jason waiting. So uh, because he couldn't help Jason, because he couldn't help Tim, I think that Dick is always torn between who he is now and being his own person and this slavish devotion to Batman. You know, it's, uh, I think that thread is followed in night, uh, night quest mm-hmm. where Dick Grayson assumes the mantle of Batman. He also did it in Grant Morrison's run after dark side, you know, seemingly killed Batman where Dick has always known that he'll be Batman. If there's no Batman that he should be Batman. Uh, Tim has always known that, hey, you know, someday he's going to grow up and, you know, work a nine to five job and have kids. Uh, but, but Nightwing has this responsibility to Batman. And I don't know, I, I think that because, you know, he, he does feel so devoted and the loyalty that he shows that, that you know, he, he's more apt to follow his emotions. You know, he, yeah. he, he got justice. He found the killer of his parents. Mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne never did. Yeah. Bruce is all about the war. Nightwing tells jokes, you know, Robin, you know, tells bad puns. I mean, it's just the the differences in their character. Yeah. I did like that this issue, it felt nostalgic to a certain extent. This is not the first time that Tim has gone up against Croc, which he actually mentions. And then that Huntress, I guess this was more in the main story. Huntress is the one that finds Tim's remains, which I like just because they had worked together. I think it was in Contagion. Um, and so he kind of gives her the benefit of the doubt, whereas not many members of the Bat family do. So I did like that. And I especially liked this scene. I'm overall, I didn't care for the art as much, but it really works well with this particular scene of the flashback of Tim explaining how he ran into Croc. He didn't last five minutes. I think he said in Arkham Asylum or something like that. Croc finds him and then how he actually escapes him, which is really well done. So I, I enjoyed this scene. 
Yeah, I think that uh, the editorial team was being more experimental with the choices of artists around this time, yeah. uh, which is, I think, a benefit because I, I don't think we would have had uh, Javier Polito or, or Marcos Martin for Robin and Batgirl Year One um, yeah. if not for their willingness to try new artists who mm-hmm. you know were just at the beginning of their careers yeah. at the time. And uh, yeah, this you know, and Tim is, Tim has always been going back to something you said before. He's always been the bridge between the other characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's the guy who literally figured out Batman's identity <laughs> yeah. and offered himself as Robin, you know, mm-hmm. like, Hey, I, I, I see that you've become, you know, kind of distant and cold. Um, I'll be Robin, you know? So he, there's a, even more optimism in Tim and, and, and by, I mean, the character has been through, you know, hell, his mother dying, you know, his father being crippled and then, you know, being murdered later in, in other runs. The fact that uh, that he's still a hero and still maintains this optimism. I mean, he's, I think, probably the most altruistic of the entire Bat family. Yeah. You know, because he started it before bad things happened. Mm-hmm. Just to do the right thing. Yeah. And he has to work harder at it, too, which I think Chuck really explored in the, the all the various... Uh, Robin miniseries that he did where, you know, Tim chose his staff, his whistling staff. You know, mm. he had to, you know, he had to really knuckle down. Like his abilities are earned. They're not as innate as the other characters. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's all I have on this issue. Do you have anything else? Yeah, that's a great one there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's the Bill Stankiewicz covers. Very yep. good. Um, no, I don't really have anything more to add, except that uh, I think that if I recall, if I recall correctly, that the bones you're seeing is uh, Jolton Joe Gardner. Okay. And for continuity uh, geeks out there, Joe Gardner is a clone, I believe, of Guy Gardner. Oh. Uh, <gasps> and from the Guy Gardner series or something yeah. to that effect. And so... Um, the fact that it's an adult sized skeleton, you know, in pieces, mind you, and not Tim Drake, but that's, uh, I think what we had in mind with, uh, you know, the, the, the pieces that were consumed by Croc. Okay. And also just the, the very nature of, uh, the fact that Croc ate him, you know, uh, which we were, I think ahead of the curve on that, that, uh, at the time that Croc was still sort of just, you know, the scaly, uh, you know, lizard-like villain, but we didn't, we, I don't think anybody had gone down the road yet that he was really surrendering to the, the carnivore. In yeah. Him. Now, Joe Gardner's not militia, right? Yes. He is militia. Yes. Okay. So yeah. now I have a question of how his bones are here, but he just appeared in uh, the Birds of Prey, that long arc where uh, Dinah is inadvertently dating Rachel Ghoul. Oh, boy. Well, I I don't <laughs> I don't want you to have trouble sleeping at night. I wonder how he got here, though. You know, I'd have to ask Chuck who who we intended the bones to be. Okay. If it's anybody, yeah. um, you had you uh, if you can scroll back through. There's a panel that has a bunch of villains together. So we've got Copperhead. We've got somebody in an eye patch. I don't know. I'm assuming that's Doctor Phosphorus Mammoth. Is that Halgrimite at that point? Or yeah. yeah, it might be Halgrimite. And then of course our our super gorilla and <laughs> yeah. Warp. Um, <laughs> I know that, the, and there's Rancor wearing the uh, cheerleaders outfit. Um, <laughs> I know that we had a list of the characters, and again, you know, with something like this where you've got crossovers happening at the same time as the the core book, there might be characters appearing, you know, in in panels just as panel filler mm-hmm. that, that you know should have been elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I know that you know a few of these are supposed to be there. I mean, Warp is definitely supposed to be there. But do you know I, who that guy in the background is with the, the mask on? 
no, like the no native clue. bath. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no clue. I know that Pete Woods had inserted some characters in uh, in the very first chapter that uh, you can see some just you know some some minor characters. I think one's like a Muppet or something that's oh boy that's just in the background art. There's, yeah, for fun. You know, yeah. as I'm looking, I'm like, hey, there's a Muppet. So, yeah. There's the power of being an artist. You can kind of sneak things in whatever you yeah. want. Yeah. And there, there's a great panel when the, the Joker's in the slab and he's trying to be recruited by Captain Nazi and uh, to join the Aryan Brotherhood. And I, yeah. I actually, I post this, I posted the last few years, given the political climate, yeah. that, uh, that, that uh, even the Joker uh, thinks that Nazis are bad. He's like, you know, I'm mean, but you guys are just plain evil. Yeah, so, <laughs> I remember like, that. Yeah. I, I and love that you gag. talked about it on your blog too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Okay, well, I'm going to give this another 7 out of 10 shredded costumes. I think it was mostly the art. It was kind of touch off and on for me. Like I said, I really like that one scene where the, the flashback. And then this conversation was a bit odd. Just revenge is for weaklings. You have to be strong to deal with this, Stephanie. Um, and some of the, the back and forth between the, the crew when they're in Arkham was a bit odd for me. So just a lower. But I felt like this tie-in particular was really worthwhile because it does add and it lets us know, oh, how did actually Tim get out of that situation? So I felt like this was a worthwhile one to get. But again, don't read it if you don't want to spoil yourself for what happens. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, looking at Batman, I, I wondered if he would be more broken up. Unless the yeah. Batman knows something that we don't, uh, you know, in all this that, you know, that, you know, he'll have a, a moment later where he'll say that, you know, clearly the skull was too, you know, it was not Tim's, you know, yeah. from a, you know, phrenologist standpoint or something like that. Yeah, I know it hurts. I know it hurts. Well, it's interesting just because I think about Officer Down and he was distraught to the point of doing nothing. And then you have this and it's another Robin and, and yeah, he's fully functioning and he's saying weird things. So I felt maybe it was a bit out of character for Batman. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know when I was writing Gotham Knights that there was a real push to kind of move past uh, the, you know, the, the dark Batman and have Batman be, I don't know, optimistic, I guess. Mm. But the thing about Batman is that, you know, when he's in the room, everything stops. And so, you know, he, you, you kind of writing a crossover around him, you sort of have to hobble him or give him something else to do or some yeah. other concern uh, in order for the other characters to have room to, to breathe. So I, I, I know Chuck probably had this thought out in his head at the time. And, you know, because of the, because of the fact that you know it's such a fast moving it's a, it was you know literally a weekly series mm -hmm. that you know that's that there was a lot that had to get accomplished in a, a short amount of time so i don't know i guess maybe if we did it over again uh maybe try to i, I guess jettison all the crossovers mm -hmm. just keep everything in one book because i think the crossovers are where things you know maybe beg the question in terms of continuity or, you know, overlap. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot when I was doing my feminist research and I was going through all those. I was like, there's so many crossover. It crosses over into Orion. I didn't even know Orion had his own oh, book, yeah. which I thought was funny. I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, I have to admit, and I, I do this unabashedly, but there is a lot of, uh, of fan service and, you know, and fan service <laughs> to the creators who were working on it. You know, Slig from uh, The New Gods, mm. he's one of the deep six, uh, and he appears in the Orion crossover. Uh, Slig, uh, in the original Orion issue, 
uh, going back, you know, back to the Jack Kirby days, uh, Slig's mother box was killed by Orion. Mm. You know, the mother boxes are sentient. And so uh, the, there's that sequence that Marcos Martin drew so beautifully where uh, Shiloh drops his mother box because the, the basement where the aquatic villains are kept is flooding. And it was just, just to have a flooded scene. You know, it's that scene in every film where, you know, the character is being propelled by the water behind them. Uh, Slig is able to escape and he's jokerized because of the pale pallor of his skin. And he picks up a mother's box and he has, he hasn't had a mother box in years. And it's like, you know, Slig will find you a home, he says, or something like that. So that was pure geekdom of us calling back to, which is probably the, you know, the single best Jack Kirby New God story, which was called Glory Boat mm. from, from that Orion run. So, you know, the chance to do stuff like the Whirly Bats and things like that, it's not just the creators, it's also to the fans. I mean, I believe that every great comic is fan service. Yeah. Because at this point, we've read them, you know, we're part of it mm-hmm. and we are, we are paying it forward. So when you see, you know, Ahsoka Tano in The Mandalorian, that's fan service. Yeah. And we're like, woo, you know, when Captain America picks up Thor's hammer, you know, and the entire theater erupts. That's fan service. And we, we do our, we owe it to the fans yeah. to give them that, you know? So. Yeah. Very cool. Well, sir, it's been an extreme pleasure. It's not often you get to talk about a story with one of the writers and, and oh. just pick his brain and, and figure out, you know, why'd you do this and all that. So thank you for entertaining all of my questions. Well, Even some of my criticisms, I appreciate it. <laughs> Stella, if we can't take the criticism, then we shouldn't be in this business. I mean, <laughs> um, but the criticism is is uh, you know, is welcome because I think it keeps us honest, to be honest. And, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I love geeking out over this stuff. And and I feel fortunate as a writer uh, to have checked this off my bucket list, uh, having worked in comics and have stories that, that still, you know, even, you know, now 20 years almost, uh, that, that people still, you know, read and pick over warts and all. I mean, that's and you know for every great story there's a story that has you know has some leaky parts and but they were all well intentioned i mean we we really put a lot into it with the hopes of making it good and i i wish we did had the opportunity to tell last laugh as we wanted to but sometimes corporate decisions get in the way and there's also this notion that we don't own the characters and at the end of the day we've got to put them back on the shelf because the joker sells peanut butter mm. so yeah It's interesting. I I think about, I uh, taught for 10 years. And so I think about you try to deal out equal punishment to students. You don't want students to see that you allow something to happen with one student, but not the other. And so I'm thinking about these stories where you wanted something to happen to elongated man and Superman and all of that. And then, you know, further on it happened. And I almost wish retroactively that someone would have apologized to you because I'm thinking about identity crisis where all that terrible stuff happened to poor Ralph. So all of these things that you had in mind, it basically still happen. It's just, you guys didn't get to do it. So. Well, and I think if you look at the era in which some of these stories are published, you know, at at one point, somebody going into the offices and saying, we're going to break Batman's back. And for Mm. two years uh, or a year, someone else is going to be Batman and it's not going to be Dick Grayson. That that would never have flown. If we said, we're going to kill Superman and replace him with four other people and, and Clark Kent won't even appear for a year, that would never have flown. But then it did. Yeah. And then later, you know, you try to do a story and it's like, well, no, we can't do that to this character because they sell peanut butter. And then, you know, 10 years down the line, Joaquin Phoenix is accepting, or 20 years later, he's accepting an Oscar yeah. for portraying the Joker as, you know, someone who is mentally ill and becomes the Joker because of society's 
unwillingness to treat mental illness with the seriousness that it deserves. Like if we had made, you know, this about mental illness and made it a, you know, a, a societal polemic, it wouldn't have worked. It's the Joker as a cartoon character who, you know, thinks he's dying. And it wasn't anything about cancer patients. It was about, hey, this character says, you know what, the Joker's a jerk. Let's tell him he's got a tumor. You know, it, it works differently in different eras. And, you know, certainly in, you know, in an era where we have things like Black Lives Matter, or social justice warriors and things like that, that, you know, comics are evolving with us. And sometimes they reflect things well. Other times, yikes, you know, when Lois Lane turns herself black, you know, at the time that, that, that story, you know, was, was attempting to be relevant, but in hindsight, it just looks bad, you mm -hmm. know? You know, or the, the issue of Lois Lane where Lois has an Indian papoose. You know that cover where she's got a, a Native American like baby? One. I'll check it out where she okay. says, you can't have my papoose, Superman. Oh, and she's no. being pelted with rocks. Oh, yeah. I mean, at the time, it was, it was published during a great push for, you know, more, uh, more laws to, to, to help the Native American okay. uh, populace of the United States to, to you know, uh, to give land back, land rights, and, you know, to, to reverse, you know, hundreds of years of persecution. And here you have Lois, you know, the crusading reporter, dressed in a fringe dress with an Indian papoose strapped to her back. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it, at the time, it was an attempt to, to deal with a social issue, mm -hmm. but it, the stereotypes just don't make it look good in hindsight. So, yeah. So I, I feel fortunate to having, you know, having worked in all this stuff and, and to, to add something to it. I, I believe firmly that the superheroes are social justice warriors. You know, they wouldn't do what they do if they didn't believe in the inherent goodness of helping every person, you know, so. Yeah. You know, if I could have you go back in time or in your 2020 rewrite of this, I kind of want you to write a one shot of what that man goes through who gave that false diagnosis yeah, you know, it's... Because <laughs> you only see him at the end, I think, when Dinah pops in and finds him. He's like, I lied about it. But yeah, I just wonder, like, what has he gone through all these days? And like, oh, I made a mistake. Yeah, I think that, that our high concept was so high that at certain points, you know, like, we, we should have had a callback to that character. But in the end, it seemed, it, it seemed appropriate that Shiloh uh, and Oracle, you know, that, that, that we see Shiloh, but it's Oracle talking about watching the Joker, you know, with those thermal cameras that, that she's still always keeping an eye on him, that despite yeah. everything that happened, that, that she still has her obsession because things went off the rails so quickly. I, I guess if I were to write it now, I don't know, that, that, that character still serves the purpose. He's kind of like that guy, you know, and I say this in pandemic times, he's that guy who gets bitten by the zombie and mm. then hides it, I see. you know? Yeah. Yeah, you no, no, I'm good. I'm good until they start getting pale and sweaty. Mm -hmm. And eventually they're the one that, uh, that disrupts everything. Like the, the carefully crafted society inside the mall is then because, you know, he's the one who's hiding that he's slowly turning into a zombie. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of threads in a crossover. And if you, if you call back to every single one, then it's, you know, it's that the, the denouement that you don't need to talk about, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess sometimes messier endings are better, but I don't know if I would have this guy, you know, I don't know. I mean, we have him drinking as he's watching the evening news, mm -hmm. realizing that he caused a lot of collateral destruction. Yep. I yeah. think that's all we need from him unless, you know, oh my gosh, he becomes the Joker out of guilt, <laughs> you, know, or, you know, whatever. I yeah. mean, 
comics can go any any which way. Absolutely, yeah. And I did forget to say when we were talking about it, talking about Babs in particular, that Sam and I really loved that last scene. We thought it was really powerful with how Babs shuts all of her surveillance off. And you have that mixed message panel at the bottom where, yeah, she's walking, rolling away from it, but her head is down like, oh man, you know, the loss was there. So well done on, the, on that final page and the, the voiceover as well, you know, who won or did we win? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that that, that informs the writing of Batgirl year one Mm. Um, because she was as Oracle, she's all about uh, controlling information and using information instead of her, you know, her fists or her feet and, you know, putting him in a box and having control over him, you know, is in some ways, you know, getting back for what the Joker took from her. But, you know, we wanted that quiet, that quieter ending and we wanted it to be in her voice, I think specifically. Uh, you know, you're right. Batman's kind of a tourist in this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we had a, you know, two more pages where the Batman uh, would sit down with everybody in the Batcave and kind of have a debriefing. It's something I tried to do in, in an issue of Gotham Knights where I think somebody brought donuts and they were talking, they were talking about Bane because he was the, the threat in my story where he was, uh, he believed he was Bruce Wayne's brother. And just having them all around kind of like talking about uh, the plan of attack. And usually we see this on the fly, literally, as they're swinging from rooftop. They, they have mm-hmm. this expository dialogue in between. But, you know, occasionally you get to explore a different setting to tell that story. Yeah. Well, we're at the end of our time. And well, you did talk, of course, about some of the th- ways that we can support you. Is there anywhere else that we can go to find you if people want to find you or support you? How can we do that? Um, well, you can check me out through my blog. Again, that's uh, scottbeatty.blogspot.com. Um, I'm always promoting what I'm writing, things that I've written in the past that, uh, you know, that may be available in a new format um, or has gotten some kind of accolade here or there. But uh, that's the best place to find me, and I, I try to, to stay current there. Uh, avoid me on other social media. You don't want to hear me rant about, you know, <laughs> politics or stuff like that. But I'm human. I'm, I'm a person. I, I get sure. to... I get to have opinions, but uh, my, my work, I think, you know, is, you know, speaks for itself. And uh, I appreciate you and everyone else who have read my work and continue to support it. That uh, I was a kid who was, who grew up on comics and this is a fulfillment of a lifelong dream. So, you know, I, I can think of no better and more fun time than thinking about sound effects for what it means to punch, you know, glass underwater, you know, to escape, you know, so. Yeah. Well, yours and, and Chuck's back row year one is the first thing that I recommend when someone asks, what should I read for back row? I recommend that. And then I recommend Brian Q. Miller's Stephanie Brown run. So you're always number one. Cause it's, is my favorite story. I love it so much. Thank so you. I'm, you. I'm deeply in debt. I would not have done this podcast if it weren't for that story. So I, I thank you for the 11 years and 200 episodes that I put into this show. It's because of you and Chuck. Oh, that's, that's awesome to hear. I, 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 I'm touched. I'm, I'm honestly, uh, you know, that, that makes me feel good. And so it makes me feel good too, that, uh, when, when, uh, women readers, comics readers, such as yourself, uh, call upon that, uh, because I, I know that, uh, you know, I, I wrote it as just a guy, you know, I was newly married at the time and, you know, my, my experiences, uh, probably didn't lend themselves to, you know, being the voice of a strong female character, but I am proud of the fact that, uh, that we were able to make her a strong female character. I, I know it's some, there are some criticisms of, of certain the scenes in the story, 
but uh, you know, as a father of a daughter now, I I hope that 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 you know she can read that and see that that th- these are the characters that we aspire to, and that uh, Barbara Gordon I think is one of the best and most interesting characters. Um, you know, Robin Year One was a blast to write, but Batgirl just you know that that really wrote itself. We really had an energy and a, a uh, momentum that's you know I don't know. We I think we were done with nine issues in in half the time that we would have written anything else just because it really was just rocketing along. Yeah. And uh, um, hopefully it'll come around and, you know, either be touched upon in that Batgirl movie that they keep talking about. <sighs> um, it was almost, it was this close to being an animated <laughs> film. Yeah. This, this close, yeah. except that the Wonder Woman animated film at the time did poorly. Yeah. And this was years before Gal Gadot, you know, yeah. made Wonder Woman a blockbuster, but hopefully uh, it will live beyond that. Cause I think that's a story that uh, really with the subway, with the helicopter, um, with the, uh, the bat uh, black canary uh, uh, team up yeah. that uh, just is, I don't know, we, we were thinking cinematic and when Marcos Martin was brought on, when we knew that Marcos was going to be the artist, we actually went back and rewrote the first issue okay. just to his art. And I think we, we probably mentioned that in the last time we talked years ago, but uh, that that's one that I, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm waiting in line to see that post pandemic in the theater yeah. on the big screen. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait for it. Yeah. I started a, um, a petition and everything. I don't know when that was, must've been after wonder woman to try to get them. And I sent it off and the president wrote back and said, we, we just can't do it because of sales, which was a bummer. Cause Lauren Montgomery had done, yeah. I think a still of it. And then kind of a back door to it. It was in uh, Batman brave and the bold, I think yep. like a little segment yeah, of her. And so it was like all there, they had the tests and everything, man, it's so close. They, it was in the very last episode of the brave and the bold. Old, where yeah. Batmite is switching channels. Yes, there's a. It goes from standard animation to CGI, and it was sort of a precursor to uh, Beware the Batman in that mm. style. Yeah, but it's Batgirl fighting Firefly, and it, it's literally scenes lifted from Batgirl Year One. So I, uh, when I found out that Lauren had wanted to do that, I was like, oh, you know, just missed yeah. opportunity. But, I know, uh, I know. We can hope things have absolutely. gotten better. Maybe, yeah. Well, I'm happy that it was uh, so influential on you and and I'm grateful for all the press you've given it. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much again for your time. Thanks for the deep dive into Joker Last Laugh. I so appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me and check out my blog for the behind the scenes because I tell lots of stories of the stories that were, the stories that weren't and, you know, little little stories about, you know, Brian Bolland's cover that was too bloody for publication. Oh, gosh. I, I am interested in that, actually. Check it out. We good? Okay. Well, friends, we made it. Thank you for listening. If you just listened to a segment, thank you for listening to that particular segment. Thank you for supporting me for 200 episodes and 11 years. I do really appreciate it. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolltheoracle at gmail.com. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Backroll the Oracle. Subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version, of course. And I've recently changed the handle, so it's not Backroll the Oracle, all one word, but I've actually spaced it out, Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast, so you should be able to find it more easily. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well, and support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast, and thanks to you. 
Paul Farmer, the renowned physician who has spent his life trying to cure the world's sickest and poorest people, once quoted me something that the writer Thomas Merton said, We are bodies of broken bones. I guess I'd always known but never fully considered that being broken is what makes us human. We all have our reasons. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we would never have chosen. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. We have a choice. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing. Or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and, as a result, deny our own humanity. And that's from Brian Stevenson in Just Mercy. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?